At Cocoa Talk, we'd like to thank our Patreon sponsors. A warm thanks go out to Al Hartman, Alan Huffman, Alan Murphy, Blair Ledoux, Brendan Donahue, Brian Joyce, Brian Weasler, Christina Armstrong, D. Bruce Moore, Davey Mitchell, Diego, Disney Saints fan, Eric Canales, Fedor Stamen, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Webkey, Grant Leedy, Jason Bucata, Jason Downs, Jenna Farron, Ken Reichert, Kyle Etter, Malfunct, Michael Pitsley, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Richard Lorbieski, Rob Inman, Stephen Wagner, Steve Bjork, Terry Steen, Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tom C., Tom S., and Tim Lindner. Thank you ever so much, patrons. Coco Talk is an unscripted live broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own and not necessarily those of the Coco Talk show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds encourage, sense of humor recommended. If any off-color comments were made, we're sorry. Hi, this is Dale Lear, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calor computer. It's time to drop your socks, grab your real-time clocks, and let's rock. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Coco Talk. This week, we bring you a very special guest, none other than the multi-talented Glenn Dahlgren, everybody. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the tiny flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to everyone's favorite live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. We're talking about Coco Talk. We got Thank a you, great show. What the hell did you just say there, Mikey? Thanks for stepping Welcome all over me. Mikey sorts cables. Okay. I don't know what the hell he just said, but that's fine. All right. He missed the memo on being muted when we start this whole thing here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've got a great show in store for you. We've got a great guest. We've got lots to talk about. So we're going to very quickly go around the panel here, and then we're going to just jump right in. So with us today on the show, our resident Apple guy and our viewer into the future, Mark D. Overholzer is here. Welcome, Mark. Hello. We've got our backup streamer and engineer, Mark Bosley's in the house from O Canada. It's L Curtis Boyle for the Thunder Hello, from Down Under, David O'Connor from Hello. Santa Fe stepping on the show. Michael Furman is here. We've got the guy, the guy who uh, purchases from eBay. It's Brian Weasler's here. The music man Brian oh. Schubring is here. Hello. Nick Morota is here, Rick Eulen, special guest, uh, another special guest, Tim Holleran is here. Hey, Tim. 
our one of our producers of our show, an engineer and streamer and co-host, Rob Inman, is here. Driving from whereabouts unknown, Grant Leedy is here. A guy who likes to say, Oh, crocky! From down under the thunder, Nicholas Morentes. Good day, Nick. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. <laughs> All right, there we go. There you have it. No better words were ever spoken. And so we're going to get right into our special guest. But before we do that, we've got a really great infographic produced by our producer, Rob Inman. This is a professional show. So... This is our guest. Enjoy this. You might know me from my uh, period running Sundog Systems. Ladies and gentlemen, it don't get no better than that. Thanks for wow. that production there, Rob Inman. <laughs> Excellent job. Now, now I want to talk to me. After that. <laughs> uh, oh my God, that was that's classic. This is cutting edge live broadcasting. Uh, <laughs> Glenn, that was amazing. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. Thank you, Curtis, for arranging this. I don't even know where to begin. Curtis, do you want to maybe just give a quick summary? Since this show is called Coco Talk, most of the people here are Coco fans. Maybe we'll give a quick um, synopsis of some of Glenn's Coco offerings, and then we'll get into his latest project and then go through the whole thing. Does that sound good, Curtis? Sure. So hopefully I've got everything here on my list. Um, and, and Glenn did some stuff that he sold through some other companies before he started Sundog. And I think, if I remember correctly, were you were a teenager in high school at the time this all started? That's right. Yeah. So he started with Hall of the King, uh, and the next few are from Prickly Pear Software, and then Dark Hold, Hall of the King 2, Dragon Blade, and then Champion was briefly th- sold through Mark Data Products, uh, then Hall of the King 3. And then you started Sundog and started selling some new stuff, and then you kind of took over some of your older titles as those companies shut down. Uh, so then we have uh, Kung Fu Dude, White Fire of Eternity, In Quest of the Star Lord, Warrior King, Kung Guy to be Ninja, uh, soundtracks which you co-authored with your brother Brett, and then you helped with Sinistar. 
and Paladin's Legacy as well. And then you also sold some other titles on behalf of some other authors through Sundog. And I think at the near the end of the Coco's life and, and Rainbow's life, I think you were the game manufacturer for the Coco. You kind of took the, the title from DICOM and Tom Mix and Spectral from previous years. That's on roughly right. Yeah, that's that's about right. Yeah, there were enough, there was a lot of products in in my day. That's impressive. That's impressive. And as I was going through some of the screenshots, I mean, some of the artwork in those Coco Graphics Adventures are really just stunning, considering the resolution and, and color limitations. Um, uh, well, yeah, I really appreciate that. I, um, as I was saying before the show, I. I don't really consider myself to be much of an artist. And when I uh, sort of graduated into PC games and started seeing what real artists can do, um, I was content to art direct rather than, than paint. But in the Coco days, I had a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they, they looked, they looked good enough to sell, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, the thing I remember about looking at ads in the rainbow magazines and stuff is that a lot of times there would be artwork that would sell the game. You were basically buying an album based on its cover and you were hoping the songs didn't suck. But uh, in your case here, the, the actual in-game artwork was, would probably be better than most uh, advertisement artwork. You know, I mean, the game was as good as the promo, I would say. I mean, that, that was, those graphics were stellar. So that's really wow. cool. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. I, I put a lot of time in it. I, I had a lot of fun uh, doing the art uh, for my games. It's really kind of the last art that I've done. And, uh, and actually my, my children are better than me at this point. <laughs> um, my, my son Emmett did all the interior illustrations for my book. Um, so that's pretty cool. That is cool. That is cool. So I'm sensing a theme here. We have a game called Hall of the King. We have Dark More Hold, Hall of the King 2, Hall of the Thing King 3, Dragon Blade, um, White Fire of Eternity. Uh, there's just a lot of, uh, let's say, adventure themed stuff going on here. So I take it that is a, a genre that you are fond of, fantasy, adventure, story driven well yeah i think most of my life honestly has been driven by sort of the love of the adventure um i think i actually started really enjoying adventure games on computers when i played adventure or colossal cave um that was my first uh, exposure to it and it was just just amazing i dreamt about it when i wasn't playing it um and then i actually my first game uh it was not on your list uh, it was called demon cross and it was a um, a submission to Color Computer Magazine Programming Contest, and it won. And so I thought, hey, maybe people like the stuff that I'm putting together. And I'm sure it wasn't very good. I don't even remember <laughs> what the adventure was about or, or anything at this point. But what it did do is it gave me a structure, a programming structure, that I could use to make adventure games. And so, you know, you know, back in the days when engines weren't a thing, this was, you know, what I had to work with. Um, and even you'll see some of that in some of the other games like Darkmore Hold. I mean, the fact that I force you to type in a three-letter command for every character um, who's in your adventure party, that's from adventure games. I mean, that's, that's where I created that whole expectation. I mean, I think I figured out that that's not the way to do it when I made Champion. Because Champion was the same kind of game as Darkmore Hold. But you actually selected the things you wanted to do. There was more animation. There was more sound. It sort of was the game that it was supposed to be. Darkmore Hold was kind of an experiment for me. Um, and uh, I guess some people liked it, but it was very, very simple. 
Okay, just real quick though, you mentioned there was a game you did that we didn't have on our list. Curtis, note to self, you're fired. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where you would find a reference to that game anymore, though. So, I knew the old CCM because I, I remember the CCM programming contest because I remember the arcade game that won was Bugs, Bugs, I believe, which is actually done by Dave Shuchin and Dave, Roland Knight. They won the arcade. Yes, I remember that. And they, they ended up that. doing work for DICOM, whom we'll get into your involvement with, with Dave Dyes as well later on. But uh, yeah, I forgot that there was other placements, just like the Spectral Contest a year or two earlier where they, you know, some like Whirlybird Run was what the main winner in that one too. So there was a few of the, the Coco magazines and game companies that actually did have contests for brand new programmers like yourself to, mm-hmm. you know, see what you, what you could do and get, get yourselves popularized out there. And it obviously started you in your career. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a sort of a, a huge push in the right direction when I realized it could be a little bit more than a hobby. And actually, I used White Fire of Eternity in a, a scholastic uh, programming competition that, I mean, it was kind of a big deal. They actually took us all into some kind of convention, into a hotel, did a big presentation, and, and, I, uh, and I won that, too, with a Coco game. Nobody else had Cocos, just me, but uh, they liked White Fire of Eternity, so that was, that was pretty cool, too. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. I didn't even know they had such uh, competitions. It, well, it was it was about there were a lot of categories, and I'm not even sure that um, all of them were about programming. Um, so I think I hit my niche <laughs> with with that game. That's cool. Well, I think maybe we should start off by talking about your latest project first which is a book which I think the culmination of everything you've done probably has led up to this based on some of the themes that you work with. And then we can then go back to the days of the cocoa and, and, and then fast forward from there. So let me real quick, um, I, I queued up your cover work here. So this is your latest book, which is called The Child of Chaos. And so it's That's looking right. like this is going to be part of a, uh, a series of books. You know, when I first uh, wrote this, so this is actually, this book has been 20 years in the making. Um, Ever since I shipped Wheel of Time, I have been working on this book um, in some capacity or another. And it's really only lately in the last number of years that I've been able to focus on it. Um, Got lots of great feedback from beta readers and and managed to uh, get it to where I wanted it to be to release. Um, It was never supposed to be the beginning of a series, but the changes that I made um, in the story during that time opened up a lot of possibilities. And I definitely love this world, even though I kind of break it at the end. Um, but I, I want to stay in there. I love the characters and people seem to be connecting with it. We, I've got, we've gotten a lot of um, really good reviews from the, um, the ARC readers, the advanced review copy readers um, that you can see on, on Goodreads and, and BookBub. Um, so, but the way this book came about, um, honestly, it was, um, I, so Wheel of Time it was a really difficult uh, game to get off the ground because Legend at the time was a, an adventure game company. And um, that's what people expected from us. But I really knew that we needed to do something else. And I knew that we needed to do something like a, a first-person shooter. And I was really a big fan of first-person shooters. And there was, and we had the Wheel of Time. And actually, using a first-person shooter got us the Wheel of Time license because Robert Jordan didn't want an adventure game made in his world. He wanted something else. So it all kind of came together. But we pitched the game to a number of different companies, one of which was Activision. And Activision, they were um, excited about the game, but they weren't excited about the license. They didn't like Wheel of Time. 
And so the night before I gave the presentation, the pitch for this game, I had to come up with an alternate uh, premise for the entire game. And I did it the night before. I came up with something really cool. I really liked it. And we pitched it. And we ended up not going with Activision because uh, um, they were actually in bed with Quake at the time. And we were with Unreal, which is a, a different engine, um, a different technology. And so, um, so I shelved that premise. And so after I was done shipping Wheel of Time, and we did that through GT um, and, and maybe Infogram, um, I came back to that premise and said, is there a game there for I can do for my next one? And the more that I explored it, the more I realized it was not a game. And there, there was a story here, but there wasn't really, it, it didn't want to be a game, it wanted to be a novel. And so for 20 years, I've been holding on to that and working on it. So now I'm finally able to, to deliver it, and I, it feels really good. That is cool. And what is the, it, 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 is it supposed to be for like young readers or what's, what's the audience or demographic for it? Or? So um, it is a young adult book, but I would say that um, it, it's a little darker than young adult normally gets. Um, it, it has all the classic um, pillars of a young adult story. So the, the age range of the protagonist and um, his you know, friend group are all pretty appropriate, but there are some dark areas to it. So I would say um, it's young adult because young adult can be darker nowadays. Okay. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it to like a 12 year old. Gotcha. 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 And it's, it, it, adults really enjoy it. So just because I'm shooting for that young adult uh, demographic doesn't mean that adults should avoid it. Right. It's not a, it's not a kid's book. It is not a kid's book. Yeah, and so kind of like this, the great like a movie example is Goonies. Goonies is a story based on young adults, but ad, ad, adults enjoy watching it too, right? It's kind of like a young Indiana Jones. I, is that is that a, not that that's a story analogy, but just from an audience appreciation analogy? Does that work? I, I would say, I mean, yes and no. I would say it's more like The Hunger Games, okay, um, which is you know targeted towards a young adult, but it gets dark. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Now, have you, cool. You've mentioned on the cover that it's it's book one, so obviously yep. you're planning sequels. Have you got a whole plot laid out for the future and, and how many books you're planning on doing, or is that still open-ended? You're still developing it? I know what the sequel is, um, um, but actually what I'm doing right now is working on the prequel. Um, there are There's a character in there that people really, really connected with, and uh, I got a lot of feedback saying that people wanted to know more about it. So I'm writing a book based on that character. Um, and it's called Game of War. It's based on Dantes, the priest of war, inside this book. And uh, it's it's kind of amazing. I'm actually really enjoying uh, writing that book. And I'm hoping it takes me less than 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> there was a quote I became familiar with, and it had to do with um, the author of Ready Player One, Ernest Klein, I think. And he said something like, you've got your in whole life to write your first novel, and then you got a year for each subsequent one, right? So yeah. it's almost like people need that you got to churn them out and then the pressure goes on you have to worry about the quality and all these other things. Right. So, uh, it's, it's, it's a really interesting ecosystem in uh, self publishing. There's, it seems like the, the general consensus is once you start doing this, it's all about quantity. It's all about, you know, making sure that you have enough pages out there to read so that you will get compensated on Kindle unlimited. Um, and I can't, buy into that um and it, maybe it's because i've shipped a lot of product um and i can't ship one unless i know it's it's what i want it to be and so i, I can't imagine uh doing like a, a novel a month which is what 
these some of these people are, are doing. And they're successful at it. They have an audience for it, and it's that's great. But it's just not me. I was going to mention, too, you've got on your cover there, you've got the mention that Piers Anthony gave you a rave review for it. This is what fantasy fiction should be. So how did that come about? Like, did you contact him? Did he contact you? How did... I know you guys worked together a little bit on, on some PC games that you'd ported based on some of his Xanth novels, but mm-hmm. was there a relationship already there and that's how that happened? Or So um, so we worked with a number of authors um, I'm back in my legend days. And Piers Anthony, we made the, um, the Xanth game. That was not my game. Um, I was working on Deathgate at the time, which is based on the Deathgate cycle by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Um, so I didn't have a lot to do with that, although I was the person that was really excited about that license and I made our company go after it. So I was really actually disappointed that I wasn't the one who got that license, even though um, Deathgate was actually a much better fit for me. Um, So it's interesting. I didn't communicate with Piers Anthony at all during that process or after until recently when I decided, okay, I'm going to contact um, some authors and see if I can get them to review my book and get, get some quotes. Um, and I, I contacted Piers Anthony, and I think I used the the fact that we had made the game in order to sort of get that connection and get him to read something. Um, and he came back and said, you know, I hated the game, and uh, <laughs> uh, why didn't you guys listen to me? And I had so many good suggestions, and I'm like, oh, crap, this is not going to go anywhere. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure the game would have been better with your input. Um, I personally did not write that game. I really wish I would have. Um, would you be interested in reading my book? And he said, okay. So uh, he got it, and then he said, so I've been reading too many books, and I'm not going to have time to read yours. And I said, okay, well, I totally understand. You have to get back to writing. I mean, he's in, he's in his 90s, and he's still writing like crazy. Wow. Um, and, and I totally, totally got it. And, uh, and then the next day, he said, I, I read it, and I just got so enthralled with it. I read the whole thing and wrote a review in one day. Oh, wow. And... and and the review is fantastic. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better review. He loved it um, to the point where he gave me, you know, a quote like that. But he gave me a ton of other quotes, too, in this review. And you can you can see the whole review at highpeers.com. Um, and uh, and it's just I mean, it's the basis of my marketing at this point. I mean, why would, <laughs> why would I not leverage that as much as possible? And I'm, I'm really thankful. I'm so thankful that he, he took the time to, to read my book. Um, I, di- I did not expect it. And I did not expect the the. Um, uh, the review that I got. That's high praise. Yeah. It's high peers. <laughs> Real quick. I just, <laughs> I just want to acknowledge we're, we're, we're helping put some pennies in the bank here, but we have three people in the live chat mentioned they've already ordered one. So uh, Jason Downs uh, just did a pre-order on Amazon. Thank you, Jason. Rob Inman just did one. And uh, who else was that? There was three people, Jason Downs, Frodo just did too. Frodo in uh yeah, he's in the Netherlands. In the, yeah, so very cool. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the support. It's really difficult for an indie author, um, a self-published author, to get the, the word out there. It's just, you know, if you're not being published by the big five, and it's just, it's an uphill battle. On trying to get the word out. So thank you so much. That is cool. Everybody. Is there going to be an audiobook version at any point in time? I kind of want to do one, and I kind of want to read it. I kind of want to be the guy to do it. I did some voice work in in some of my games. Um, in Deathgate, I was Sangdrax the Dragon, and in Wheel of Time, I was a couple of guards. But I I never want to rely on myself um, to sure. be like the only actor um, yeah. because I've worked with some really good actors for those games. Uh, so 
I want to do it. Um, I really just need to know that it's the ROI is going to be there. You know, is yeah. it worth actually having that product? Um, and I'll find out, I think. I've got more research to do. I have right. so much more learning to do about this whole process. But I do. I want to do it. We have a hey, question Glenn? in the live chat from Jeff. He wants to know, is it only going to be available in ebook, or will there ever be physical copies? So on my website, which is mysterium.blog, um, you will be able to buy – well, actually, you'll be able to buy the um, the paperback on Amazon in the same place you're, you the uh, ebook is there for pre-order on launch day, not before, and that is August 16th. But on my website, on mysterium.blog, you can order – the paperback and hopefully the hardback as well. And I will sign them. Awesome. Uh, it'll be the same price and I, I will autograph them. Awesome. You can even ask for a specific message if you want to. That is awesome. To, to do that. That's awesome. And we have links to all your blogs and websites and ordering stuff. It's all in the description of this video. So if you read into the description, guys, all the links are there. Um, real quick, I don't want to take away from, from everything you have to say, but I just want to share a quick story of me. I, I have not been a reader for a long time. And just during COVID, I just started reading. And speaking of like young adult stuff, I started reading a book series I read when I was a kid. It was called Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. I don't know if you ever heard of that one or not, but it's think of like Hardy Boys, you know, so it's kind of like a Hardy Boys style thing. These books were written like going back to 1964. But when you talk about it's it's designed for young readers, but, you know, adults will enjoy it too. I find now as an adult reading those books uh, they read really well, and it's really good stories. And I've now become kind of a fan of mystery. I've always been a sci-fi fantasy fan, but I'm kind of becoming a fan of mystery too. So COVID's allowed me time to read, and so I'm definitely want to invest some of that time in reading uh, your 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 book as well. You know. So uh, just two things I wanted to mention about that. First is young adult. The people who buy young adult. 70% of them are adults, are over that range. <laughs> and the people who read them, I mean, they're not all, all buying them from themselves, but the people who read them, it's 50% are adults. So it's, you know, that is the the audience that um, that really is going after young adult. And that, well, and look, what cool. look what happened with the Harry Potter franchise, right? The first mm -hmm. couple of books were really light and, and more kid-oriented. Then adults latched onto it and they became more it became really darker. Dark. Yeah. 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 It almost uh, like it, that, that that particular series that followed the audience as they aged, it got more and more adult themed. And people are actually looking at that as a model. And I'm I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I'm I don't write to the audience um, at this point. You know, I don't have to because I'm not yet in the thrall of of uh, what's popular. Um, I, I there's a lot of authors out there that are sort of they pick their genre based on how it's selling, and that's where they write to. And I'm I'm not there yet. I'm pretty much telling the story that I really really want to tell. Um, because it's just been in me to tell. Um, so, so you know, I hope that people uh, connect with this story and these characters, and I think they will. So far, they, they seem to have been. Um, and, that's, and that's what I want to stick with for a while. And we'll see about, you know, if I want to branch off into other genres. But I'm really a, I'm a fantasy guy. I'm a sci-fi guy, too, but I, I love fantasy. That's my, my first love. And about the, the COVID issue, um, the one major downside for me for the book is that I wanted to do a big launch party. I mean, I actually had talked with uh, this library in Walnut Creek that is wonderful. I mean, it's two stories. It has a coffee bar. I mean, it's really, really upscale. And they were excited about it. I was even going to bring in a live band um, to do it. And I can't do any of that stuff now. Um, and I, I feel really bad because that's part of the, the experience of being an author is being able to interact with your audience and sign books and talk about it and stuff. And that sucks. But the other, uh, the flip side of that is people are at home and they want entertainment and they're reading more. So 
maybe launching during this time isn't isn't a bad thing. I'll find out. Very, very cool. Do you want to give us any teaser on what the story's about, or is it just better that people buy the book and find out? Or um, It's really difficult to, to boil down, but it's a world where um, there are two classes. There are the priests who are um, drawn to their religions, um, and there are religions like war and, and evil and good and law. I mean, and it sounds kind of simplistic when I just say it out like that. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, not a bunch of crazy you know, the, the demon of Mechalabath or, or whatever. I don't, I don't do that, but it's not because it's not about um, a bunch of proper nouns. It's about what are they? And they are all aspects of order and order has shut chaos away a long time ago um, into this vault. And in the thousands of years that they've been in, in, uh, in power, um, society is pretty much stagnated. They are in power. They love it, but nothing grows, nothing changes. And that's kind of where, where um, the, the main characters come in. And they, they not only challenge that from both sides, um, they challenge it from, you know, there's someone who's very evil who's challenging it. And there's someone who's just trying to live his life um, and, you know, uh, in, enjoying his imagination. And both of them are uh, coming after trying to, to make the world something other than what it is. And I don't know. That, that I'm probably all over the place. Okay, but, no, that's uh, cool. That's cool. That's enough to whet the appetite for sure. Now you had also you had mentioned that the the cover art, and I'm going to switch back to that real quick too. Um, tell us the story behind the cover art again for those who weren't uh, talking to before the show to you about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So as I told you before, I'm I'm not an artist, um, but I do enjoy art directing, and I do enjoy working with people who are way more talented than me, um, who can actually take uh, some of my ideas and bring them to life, and actually you know make them into magic. And I've worked with a lot of fantastic artists in my career um, doing that. And um, there was one artist that I worked with in a number of games, um, Wheel of Time and Deathgate and, you know, most of the games that I, I created at Legend. And her name is Cindy Wenzel. And she had actually been out of art for a while. And she was my first call. Um, I called her and said, listen, is it, do you think it's possible to work again on a, on a project? And I described it. And she read the book and she was inspired. Um, and I think she was excited to have the opportunity to, to do another project with me. And it was great. It was a fantastic experience. And we got something, I think, um, hold, holds itself apart a bit. It's not your standard fantasy cover because it actually sort of invites you into the story. It engages you with those dice. And those dice are really important. In fact, this is a scene from the climax. Um, so it, it, as I've heard uh, somebody told me, the cover to a book ha- makes a promise that the book has to fulfill, and this does. And so, so far, the, the reaction to the cover has been fantastic. I mean, I couldn't be, I couldn't be in a better position um, than to have a cover that, that Cindy made for me. It's wonderful. That is. Cool. And you mentioned also in the pre-show that there's some inside illustrations, too. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and who did that? Yeah, my son, Emmett, uh, made the interior illustrations, and uh, um, they're, they're really cool. I, I didn't expect that to be the case. Um, he was going to give me some temporary shots just to put in there to um, to show to the art readers, and they ended up being really wonderful. Um, so I'm I'm happy. There's there's actually quite a number of illustrations inside. So um, I, I don't have one to to show you right off the top, but uh, uh, be uh, look forward to that. That is cool. I want a hard copy, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach that to you after the show. That is so cool. That's so neat. It's not it's not every day you get to say. 
hey, I know the guy who made this book, you know? So even though I haven't met you in person, I can at least say, hey, I know the guy who made this book, man. This is awesome. So I, I'm really happy uh, for you to know me and for me to know you. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> well, listen, the, the pleasure is all yours. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> um, so there was, uh, and I'm sorry, I know, Curtis, you, you're more prepared than I am, but is there a contest we need to talk about or something like that? Um, uh, for the book, um, yeah. yes, there is a, a, um, a giveaway going on right now on Goodreads. I'm giving away 100 ebook copies. Um, and uh, right now, I think it's going on for one more week. Right now, if you join, there are about 300 entries. Uh, so, you know, right now it's, you know, you can win one, one of three chance you know, of, of winning the book. So get in there, get your entry in there. All right. I just posted a link to that in the live chat for the good reads. What is good reads? And I'm sorry, I should know, but I don't know. I've learned a lot of this in just the last few months. So don't, it, it's fine uh, that you don't know this stuff. So good reads, there are really three big sites out there. There's Amazon, Goodreads, and BookBub. And Amazon, um, they're the, the, the mammoth, you know, they're, um, they're the huge site. And actually, at this point, they own Goodreads. So Goodreads is kind of their social component. Um, and they have um, lists. They have you know, people who have show what they're reading, what they have on the shelf, what they want to read. And they do these, um, they do these giveaways. Um, so it's, it's, I'd say Book Club is a better place to go if you're looking for bargains. But they are huge, too. Um, they have lots and lots of people there looking for, for books. Goodreads is a place that you should go if you want to see sort of what people are saying about a book. Okay. As far as the paperback and, and hopefully the future hardcover, I don't know if that's cemented in stone that you're doing that or not. But uh, we were talking during our sound test a couple of days ago about you know trying to hit the international markets and being able to sell the actual physical copies elsewhere. Um, what what stage is that at, and how long would people in say the UK or Australia or, or Europe you know have to wait for that? Or I already have um, so pre-orders from the UK and from a couple of other places. So um, I have not publicized. I have not made a universal link, which I probably should, which will take you to the right Amazon store um, for you if you click on it. But I will say, if you know where Amazon is in your country, go there, and um, the Child of Chaos pre-order will be there. Um, so you can order it now. Um, you, the paperback and the hardback, um, you'll be able to order the paperback in the same place on Amazon, whatever Amazon stores in your country. Um, the hardback, it might be there. I don't yet know. I, I haven't done the research I need to do to figure out how to get that in there as well. That's why I'm saying come to my, my site. I'm definitely going to be putting together a, a hardback. That's my intention. And I'll be selling it out of Mysterium.blog and I'll ship anywhere. Very cool. Now, Dave, David Lord in the chat is asking, is there any plans on translating for other languages? My wife would really like to translate it into Italian. Um, she is Italian. <laughs> she comes from Italy. Okay. Um, apart from that, um, not yet. <laughs> it depends on if I see you. If there's a real demand, I'll do it. I'll do it. Part of, my uh, words. Part of translating to Italian requires a lot of hands in the air. Right. Hey, hey, I got your story right here, right? So That'll be on the YouTube video. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, well, we, we definitely wish you a lot of success for that. Feel free to check in at any time if you want to give us updates on, on how it's going with sales and things like that. And uh, I'm following you on Facebook. I think I'm following you on Twitter now. And so if, when you, if you're going to do more appearances, we want to know. Uh, and so we can stay stay on top of that. And it's Mysterium 
blog is the best place for people to come. And that's your blog and, and your body of work on there. I was looking at your catalog today is, is really impressive. So if people want to see a lot of the things you've done, mysterium.blog is the place to go, right? Yeah, there's a lot of actually behind the scenes uh, stories about the development of a lot of my games. Unfortunately, I started from pretty much most recent to least recent. So I haven't written up a lot of stuff about the Coco stuff because that's so long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I even have to remember the things to write up about the, the Coco. And there, there wasn't as many sort of, you know, oh, my God, it's a complete disaster. And we have to figure out how to how to salvage the game stories about that because it was me. You know, <laughs> I was making the game. So, you know, I had to solve my own problems. Um, but with, as the, the teams got larger, there's more of those kinds of stories like, oh, we, I have this client who has these, these uh, um, priorities and I have this client who has completely different priorities and how do I make everything work? And there's some of the stories, especially for like Unreal 2, it's a really interesting read. Excellent, excellent. Um, one of the things that Curtis was talking to you about too was kind of dealing with Rainbow Magazine and um, advertising with Rainbow, being on Rainbow. I don't even know where to begin to set this up, but Curtis, you want to help me here? And maybe how do we lead into this here? <laughs> well, I'll mention from talking to multiple companies and authors that uh, you know advertise their games in Rainbow that uh, some of the Rainbow staff definitely had favorites um, that they, they played, and they'd give them different discount rates for you know the exact same advertising. Um, and, and that became, you know, a bone of contention with quite a few. And I think it's why the market kind of shrunk a little bit faster than it probably would have normally at certain stages during its publication life. And, uh, and I mean, you, you've mentioned uh, in the past, some, you know, hinting at some stories on that. And I've talked to Dave Dyes about that and, and a few others as well from other companies. And uh, it's never been really talked about in public. Um, and and, and it's, it's, this is not meant to be a complete mudslinging. Everybody's human and everybody has, you know, their biases and their favorites and stuff. And I mean, you know, some people helped support Rainbow in the very early days when they were, you know, literally, you know, a line printer on Lonnie Falk's kitchen, you know, table type thing. So he probably did play favorites with people that supported him early on. But I just w- would like to hear some of the stories about, you know, how difficult it was to get into that market, how difficult it was to get, you know, the, the inside front cover and, and everything else there and some of the, the details behind that, how that all worked. As a historical. Right. <laughs> sure. Um, okay. Well, I, 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 at this point, I don't really think there's any reason not to say something. I think, you know, um, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody comes off as, you know, the worst person in the world in, in this story. But, um, but I, it's not something I had discussed up until this point. So I'll just, I'll just say that. So when I started making games and I started deciding, okay, I wanted to have my own company. Um, and this was after working with Prickly Pear and, and Mark Data and Saguaro um, and making 25% on my, my games, which was fine. I mean, I learned a lot um, working with those companies, figuring out sort of how to sell in this marketplace. But I realized I actually was going into college at that point, and I realized I can just pretty much do this all on my own. Um, and I wanted to. I wanted to sort of make it my own entity, um, make my own vision, because uh, I wasn't, you know, a cactus um, <laughs> because Prickly Pear, I, I mean, Saguaro, he, they told me, they just copied Prickly Pear. That's why they're called Saguaro. They just took Prickly Pear's uh, business plan and made them into Saguaro. So I'm, I'm not a cactus. Um, so I worked with Prickly Pear and Prickly Pear was great. I honestly, I, I had the best time working with them. And in fact, when they decided, and they were the second owners of that company, they purchased it from the Prickly Pear people who came before them. Um, and 
when it came time for them to kind of be done, they actually wanted to sell me the company. And I said, you know, that's, that's great. Honestly, I have a lot of respect for Brickley Fair, but I kind of want to do my own thing at this point. But what they did for me was they created a relationship um, for me with Rainbow. So they were one of the earlier advertisers in Rainbow. And once you get a rate with them, it kind of locks in. And so by creating that relationship, I got their rate. And it was significantly better. And for a college student, I kind of needed that. In fact, if I didn't have that, I don't know that I would have been able to start my company. So I ended up, I think, with a half-page ad um, to, to start with. And then things went really well. I mean, people seemed to like the games. I was writing all my own stuff at the time. So I only had to pay myself and I had to pay advertisers and pay for the, the cost of goods. And then uh, it, it started, you know, getting bigger. I went to um, Rainbow Fest and I started getting full page ads. Um, and, and there was one Rainbow Fest was, it was a lot of fun um, because they, I think it was at the same Rainbow Fest that I met both Steve Bjork and Dave Dyes. And uh, these were my heroes. You know, I had never never uh realized you know these people were you could walk up and talk to them and that was really cool uh and both of them were very approachable and really nice um and dave and i really hit it off uh he he was a nice guy and he loved the idea that he could kind of kind of come in and help me out a little bit because he saw me not as a competitor honestly but as a a fellow gains maker and so that relationship um helped me a lot um he ended up giving me access to roland knight's um assembler um and some of their some of their um their their dos uh routines which were invaluable in making games uh later on so i I owe a lot to to dave dies to the point that when i was in contention for the inside front cover um of rainbow magazine uh lonnie came to me and said you know we're going to give you this deal and um and he said something to the effect of and i had no idea really what it meant at the time but let's show those guys from Canada uh, what we can do to them. Something like that. And I actually didn't even know he was talking about Dave at the time, but uh, Dave was the, the other company in Canada. And so this was a big deal for me because I was a, you know, I was a college student with not a lot of money and he was asking for a significant more for the placement and for a full page there. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to talk to the one person who can tell me about this. So I went to Dave and I told him the deal that he was offering me. And Dave was like, hmm, that's interesting because I'm getting charged like double that. And so <laughs> I, I realized what I had done and I was like, oh, okay, I, uh, maybe, maybe I, I shouldn't have done that. But he was my friend and Lonnie wasn't, you know, so I, I chatted with him about it. And then I found out that he went to Lonnie and said, I know that you're offering the inside cover for this amount. And you're, you're making me pay for this amount. Give me the same deal or I'm out of there. And Lonnie was just really pissed. And so he, he said, fine, leave. And so that's why for the longest time, there was just nothing on the, the back cover. There was like a, a, a Christmas message or something like that for a number of times. And then I think uh, someone else picked it up. Um, and, and then he came back to me and said, all right, you can have this deal, but you need to do it right now. And you need to do it with whatever art that you have. And I just couldn't, I couldn't justify. I didn't want to lose out on getting the inside front cover of Rainbow Magazine, but I didn't have anything to put in there. I didn't have a new ad. I didn't even have a color ad. I had, you know, an ad with one color on it, which was red. And I said, well, maybe I can try to 
make the the uh, the screenshots and get those into full color and and get that on there. But the the increase in money that I was going to be paying wasn't enough for what I thought I would be making back. And so I finally had to say, I just I can't do it. I can't get the inside cover. And once I think both of those things happened, he finally came back to me and said, okay, you know, fine, it's open. Come in and take it if you want it for the original deal that I that I uh, gave you. And that's when I did it. I created a new ad with all color, full color graphics. And I took that inside cover and it was the right move for me at the time that I took it. And thank God I didn't take it when he tried to strong arm me into taking it. So that's kind of the story. It's, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's how that went about. Yeah. And apparently that, that those kind of side dealings were going on pretty well, you know, from the, you know, from like 83, 84 on after the initial companies, you know, that kind of back Lonnie at the beginning there that they definitely got the preferential treatment, you know, kind of gratis after that as much as long as everyone in the market still. So, yeah. But one, one thing about this story that's really heartening to me is that, you know, the collaboration between two, you know, quote unquote rival game companies, you know, sharing tools and assemblers, I think it was Phantasm, wasn't it? The one that Roland did? Well, I called it Phantasm. <laughs> I was actually going to bring it to market. Um, and, uh, and that's the name that I gave it, but because it was so awesome, it was really fast, really fast, like three times as fast as the, any other assembler that was on the market. And that's why I really wanted to do it. I was a little bit scared about it though, because I didn't have a personal relationship with Roland Knight and he's the guy who wrote it and he was the one who's going to have to help me support it. And so it ended up not being the right thing to do to, to actually, uh, put it out there, but just having access to it and having, and using that development environment was fantastic. Do you so, have, did you end up using any of Dave's other products, like for doing your graphics stuff? Did you use the Rat Designer package you did, or were you using Color Max or Coco Max? Or do you? I use Coco Max. I think I was just most familiar with that, and it did what I needed it to do. So, I was happy with Coco Max. I was really waiting for the longest time for it to come out on the Coco Three. And I think I used Color Max for a little while until Coco Max came out, and I was happy. Okay, and I, I would presume you use Coco Max and Coco Max Two for your Coco One and Two games. Yes. Earlier. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Now, Ken Reichert in live chat is asking a question that was going through my head, too, is what, what, why do you think he had something in for Dave Dyes? Why did he want to say, let's, let's get that damn Canadian? <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I, I mean, there's, uh, there's something, there was a previous events that happened in that relationship that predate me. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Um, and, and Lonnie was the a kind of guy, he really held a grudge. If you yeah. got on his bad side, you know, he would let you know and, uh, and you could never because he, you know, he was he was the top of the of the uh, the heap at that point. Rainbow Magazine was the magazine, especially at the end. It was the only magazine. But um, he kind of owned the whole world of promotion for the, the color computer, and he knew it. Yeah, yeah. Like he was the Rupert Murdoch of uh, you know of, <laughs> of, of color computer. When you think about it, right? One and he owned Rainbow Fest too, which was the place to be if you wanted to sell your product yeah yeah that's interesting when um what was your first computer was the coco your first machine so it was but it almost wasn't um i actually was i i i knew that i wanted a computer i i wrote a game called beyond the silver pain um when i didn't even have a computer i wrote it in basic because i was just learning basic and i typed it out on a typewriter and at one point i tried to go into like a department store and type it into a computer to see if it worked. And I never got to the end. Um, so I really, really wanted to write games. And I finally saved up enough money to buy a color computer one 
think it had 4K. Um, and I was babysitting some kids, and they went to a uh, uh, like a, a, a computer um, daycare kind of thing. It was a it was a course, and so I was there with them. Um, and at the end, it was for the TI 994A. And at the end, they said, okay, well, anyone who's here, we have a special deal if you want to buy a TI 994A. And I'm like, oh, man, I could have bought that with this deal instead of the color computer. But it was already being shipped to me. And I regretted it until I got the color computer and I started working with it. And to this day, I, I was totally glad I did not get the TI. And you, so you started writing in basic. When did you make the leap to assembly? Like how long were you bang away on that keyboard before you just dived into the deep end of the pool? Most of the, most of my games, my early games were all in basic and you might not know that um, because I did a lot of tricks to try to cover that up. Um, I used a lot of assembly uh, subroutines and, um, and uh, uh, tricks to make you so you couldn't break into the, the listing and, you know, see what, how to, solve the adventure games by, by listing them out. Um, and I think it was Kung Fu Dude. That was my first all-assembly project. But for something like an adventure game, I really didn't see the need. I mean, you are parsing text and stuff, and yeah, you can write all of the infrastructure to do that, but I had, a, I had my engine, you know, and I, I was really happy with that. And, uh, and what I did was I just tried to speed up the things that needed to be sped up with assembly. Yeah. That seems yeah, like, like displaying a, text a common and, theme. Yeah. 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 The text and the graphics, uh, you know, I think for my first, I think you can see in uh, Darkmoor Hold, I'm loading right onto the screen. I didn't even know enough to like load it into a buffer and then slap it uh, onto the screen. Uh, so, so yeah, a lot of little, little things like that ended up being assembly. Now, what, what assembly were you using back in the early days? Were you just playing Ed Tasm from Radio Shack, or did you get a Microworks or something? Or, I think maybe it was, I think it was Ed Tasm. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I think it was Ed Tasm on disc, but I might have actually had the cartridge for a little bit. Yeah, we've had some interesting stories from some other developers in the days, like you know uh, Rick Adams has talked about when he was developing uh, Temple of Rom. He was doing it all on cassette, and he had to put it on three 20-minute cassettes to get it to fit. <laughs> And then he also had his computer overheating, so he had to have a can of you know compressed air to keep blowing it out to try to save before it crashed. Or a Freon so, or something like that. It was yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you've had any, any you know, <laughs> tales like that in your past doing development. I've had I've had computers that failed at Rainbow Fest and not knowing uh, what the hell I was going to do. Um, and I think I, I ended up bringing like spares and replacements just in case. Um, but uh, I've never, you know, I, I think I've always managed to to salvage the situation. Now I'm, I'm I'm assuming you played other games on the Coco too besides just writing stuff. So do you have any memories of fond or favorite Coco games that weren't yours? <laughs> um, so like Time Bandits, I, I played. Um, there was a I, I really wish I remember the, the the game. It was a big maze, um, and things were eventually coming after you, and it was a top down, um, and it was really weird. Uh, but it was really fascinating. I didn't know how you were supposed, to, even how you're supposed to win. Uh, didn't um, we play that recently on Game? On? Are you thinking Death Trap, the one where you're driving the tank around, or that Trying might be it? Dogs? Yeah, yeah, it, it was a tank. Okay, uh, and you can't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> it was really fascinating and it had a really interesting atmosphere. I really loved it, um, but I couldn't figure out how to win. I mean, could you even win? Yep. Okay. Yeah, you had to collect four stars. Diamonds um, or something. Or diamonds, diamonds, yeah, to, to win. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I, I had a kind of an issue with a lot of the adventure games on the Coco. And I think it's because, and I, I have this issue with, with adventure games in general. If I don't trust the author, then it's very difficult for me to play the game. Because adventure games are very difficult to design. And even mine, my early ones, I don't know that I would trust me either at that point. But um, it's all about logic. And it's all about if a player is playing an adventure game and he has that aha moment where he figures out, oh, I have this information from over here and I'm using it with this item that I got from over here and I'm putting it all together and I'm solving the puzzle that's in front of me. And it's like, that makes sense. And it's kind of a twist on what you might normally do, but it's cool. That's great. That's what you're shooting for. But what you normally get is how the hell is that supposed to work? Even after you've solved the puzzle. It's like I just tried every item on everything and then suddenly something worked. And, uh, and that's, I, re I really didn't like that. And I think so, there were a number of, of adventure games that were just unplayable um, in the Cocoa world early on. I would even say like Sierra produced a bunch of games that had uh, restore puzzles, which is you cannot figure out how you're supposed to solve the puzzle until you die. And that's like, I've got right, a list right. of like, like, like 10 different things that you just cannot do as an adventure game designer. And that's one of them. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Like, if you missed a certain, if you didn't pick up a certain object at an earlier stage of the game, and you missed that opportunity, you're stuck. You can't win, and you can't go back because this was before the whole open world concept happened. So it was very linear, and yep. and you could get into these Kobayashi Marus. That is a bad design. Absolutely. That actually is a different problem. Um, what you're describing is just bad, bad design. Yeah. Because if you if you don't get the thing that you're supposed to get, and then now you need it and you can't get it, that's just you know something like that should have been spotted. What I'm talking about is like you walk into a room and you fall in a pit and there was nothing to tell you that there was a pit there. But now you know that there's a pit there because you fell in it. Right. That's a restore puzzle. Okay. And so now you know you have to swing over the pit even though there's nothing telling you there was one. Okay. Plus a few of the games, I mean, you had leaps of logic. Well, I wouldn't even call it logic, just leaps of faith basically because you're some random thing that you'd never think of in a million years, you know, is what you have to do to get to this next stage of the game. And there's a few of those too. I, th I think I wrote up. Um, if you read, if you read um, the behind-the-scenes story on Deathgate on Mysterium.blog. I talk about this, and I actually talk about um, my issue with illogical puzzles. And there was one called Dragon Knight, and that one I literally took the disc out and whipped it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and that was after solving the puzzle. Is after I solved the puzzle and realized how horrible it was that I destroyed the disc. <laughs> yeah. Was, I, uh, uh, and then you never trust that author again. No, no. And that's the thing. I mean, game design is all about trust. It's like you are asking the player to trust you to create an environment, to create an experience that is going to be good for you. And that, in fact, I, I've had a lot of conversations with junior designers about this, um, where they think that they're in competition with the player. They're trying to create an environment that actually beats them. And I'm saying, you're not even there. How are you going to enjoy beating them? All they're going to do is get beat and not like you uh, for having a bad experience. Preach <laughs> so, on. So basically, yeah, you have to be, you have to create something. It's not about you. It's not about you as a designer. It's about the experience that the player is going to have. Make yes. it good. And if you're putting a restriction on players, you have to ask yourself, why are you doing that? Is it important for balance? Or is it just because you think you don't want this person doing it? Because if they want to do it and it's fun, let them do it. The author obviously doesn't want anybody to buy any more of their games. Uh, Brian Weasler, were you going to ask a question? Sorry, I just want to make sure we're not. 
we're all gonna. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna ask, Lynn. Uh, was there a game that you were most proud of? Not necessarily maybe the most successful game, but a game that you designed that you 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 consider to be maybe one of your best games that you did. Um, I would have to say it's Wheel of Time, um, and it's not an adventure game, but it did have a lot of story in it. It's a um, a first person shooter, um, but it used the license, the world, um, the characters in a way that I don't think. Uh, People expected, but a lot of people connected with it. Um, and I had, I had just actually started, I'd been playing um, Doom, and I had been playing um, Magic the Gathering. And I said, there's got to be a way to bring those two experiences together. And the end result was a first-person shooter where you had these artifacts that had limited charges that had both offensive and defensive capabilities. So I could shoot something at you, and it would, um, some of them, some of the, the attacks would actually lock onto you. And the slower it came at you, you knew it was going to be bad if it finally hit you. Um, but it gave you more opportunity to do something in reaction to it. So you might be running all over the, um, the, the map with these things following you. Finally find a reflect. Use the reflect and everything would just bounce off you and go back to the person that cast it. And those experiences, I don't actually think that there have been any other games that have really leveraged that sort of offense and defense, um, you know, playing of of magic cards kind of thing in, in something like an action game as, as, uh, as visceral as, as that was. So that plus the Citadel mode, which is the whole point of that was, I want to be a level designer, but I don't have any talent. You know, what can I do? And the Citadel mode gave you a map and let you customize it uh, with traps and with troops and then hide your seals and then other people would come in to try to get it while you're trying to get theirs. So it's kind of a capture the fly sort of thing. And both of those sort of design pillars made for a really incredible experience. And it, it did really well with the people who knew about it, but it didn't get marketed as well as I really wanted it to. So did you have a lot of creative control over things like Wheel of Time yourself? Like, did you really drive the entire thing or did you have other people that you had to kind of you know, merge their opinions with yours type thing? So, so I'm a creative director. Um, and usually what that means is I'm the lead designer. I'm in control of the artistic vision. Um, so I answer to somebody, but it's usually the executive producer. And the executive producer is there to clear things, clear problems out of my way. But I'm the one who holds the, uh, the vision uh, for the game. And so it gets... Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm responsible for a, a lot in, in that case, but um, the more creative people, the more talented people you have working for you in a situation like that, the more you want it to be a collaborative experience. Um, and I learned that kind of early on. I mean, I was coming out of the Cocoa world. I was an auteur. You know, I was like, I was the guy in the basement making my game and nobody else was going to tell me the way that game should be. Nobody else was really influencing the game. But when I got into PC uh, game design, I realized, you know, I started out with that mentality and then I slowly understood, no, no, no. There are lots of people here with really good perspectives on things that I need to incorporate into that vision. You know, there were people there with ideas that you didn't want to incorporate into that vision. That happens all the time. But I learned that the, um, the way to deal with that is to listen, listen to everybody, respect what they're saying, because there may be something that you really need to, to, to hear in that. And then if you can't do it, if you can't do what they think is a good idea, explain why walk them through the process um you know here the design is this way and it will break if we do something like that i had executive producers honestly that tried to do that they would come and, and identify a problem and try to solve it and i'm like okay well i've lived with this design for years now 
I'm kind of familiar with what's going to happen if we try to solve it that way. And then I'd have to walk through the process and say, you know, go ahead, throw the, uh, the problem over the, the fence at me. I'll catch it and I'll figure out how to solve it because that's my job. So um, there's a lot of responsibility, but it's a lot about it's a lot about people issues too. making sure that you have a talented team that's invested in the final product that you're making. That is interesting. I think modern video games now, when you look at some of these big productions like the Assassin's Creed franchise, for example, it's it is so big. And it's such a big game, such a big story. It makes you wonder, what are the teams? And you're talking about some of the administrative parts of this that I think most game players don't even think about. I mean, what do you think uh, a studio like Ubisoft has to deal with when dealing with one of these major AAA titles? You know, I I, I can't even imagine. I'm sure you've got a reasonably good idea. Yeah, I actually... um, uh, There was was an opportunity to work at Ubisoft for me. I was... um, I was thinking about working on the Rainbow Six franchise, and I ended up not wanting to go to Canada. <laughs> um, so I stayed here, and I actually started working on Star Trek Online at that point. But What's with all the Canadian hate today? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have nothing against Canada, but I did not want to go to Montreal. It's just too damn cold. Oh, okay. Well, that, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's Sorry where Ubisoft was. <laughs> yeah. should have um, asked for Vancouver, BC. I really actually... I've worked with the huge teams. Unreal 2 was a big team. Um, I had a lot of people who were not all in the same place, and that that creates all kinds of other issues, too, um, trying to direct people who are off-site. Um, and people problems are a huge part of that. I mean, people have real egos. Like on Unreal 2, um, we had the level design team and we had the artist team. And the artist team, um, they figured, hey, we should own the final look of the game, right? That's what you're paying us for. We're artists. We've been trained to do that. But the level design team came up through sort of the traditional uh, first-person shooter, 3D level design way of doing things. And in, when they were making, making maps, they owned the final look. And the thing of it was, from a practical point of view, they were the last ones to touch the level. So it was hard to tell them, no, you can't own the look of your level, um, even if what you're doing looks good to you, because the artists are there to provide that expertise. And so for a while on Unreal 2, even before I actually joined the project, there was kind of a civil war forming about who actually owned the look of that game. And it's like a million of those kind of, uh, of interactions and conflicts that you have to, you know, there, there are two kind of, I, I learned at working at Legend, there's two kind of people who, who uh, are, and that is someone who comes into a room that's on fire and helps to put it out, or someone who brings in a bunch of gasoline. And there's plenty of those. Now, go, going into your creative directorship and stuff, Tier 2, you, now you've worked on P, like PC games. You worked on the co-games originally, of course. But you've also done some mobile games. You've done massive online multiplayer games. Is there a big difference on how you have to conduct those types of projects versus the PC gaming market? Or is it basically the same thing, just on scale? Every project is its own disaster. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, so you learn something from every single game you work on and you hope you don't make the same mistakes twice. But I mean, the fact that every project has its own team uh, means it's got its own challenges because every team has its own individual quirks and talents and, you know, things that you want to capitalize on in order to make the best possible product. And it could be that this team you know, shouldn't make the game that they've been assigned. At Legend, we were lucky uh, in that we could kind of choose 
You know, I would pitch product and I would do so based on the people that I knew I had in my pocket. You know, what were their talents and uh, how could they be, be best applied? Wheel of Time was kind of, you know, sort of launching off into the deep end and we didn't have any of those people. I had to figure out how to build the team for that game without knowing how I was going to do it. Luckily, I had some artists. I had some incredible artists. And I used that to create some uh, some shots that sold the game before it ever existed. And if I hadn't had those, no way anyone would have taken me seriously. Uh, so luckily, I had enough expertise in one area that I was able to sort of bluff my way through and get expertise in another. That's how we got Unre the Unreal um, Engine is we showed those shots to Mark Rain, and he said, God damn it, we need to make that in our engine. And Tim, and, uh, Tim Sweeney, the same thing. As soon as I took the, uh, the shots and I showed him, we went to his house. We were the first, um, the first licensee of, of Unreal. And I showed him the shots, and he, and he didn't even really listen to much after that. I mean, Tim's a really, really interesting guy. Um, he just started recreating some of the shots in his engine as we were talking. Um, that's how fascinated with it he was. And then when we finally made the, um, the prototype and showed him the prototype for Wheel of Time, he said, that's the moment. He said later in an interview, that's the moment he knew that licensing his engine to other, uh, other companies could see um, lots of new content that they couldn't make uh, in their engine. And that's where he knew that licensing could be a, um, a real deal, a real uh, place for them to focus their time. Cool. Did I answer your question? I don't know. I just went on stuff. <laughs> hey, it partly did. I, like, I was just wondering if there was any major differences between you know, the standard PC market and then also you know, going for the mobile market because like, you've done some you know, mobile stuff and also the massive online games like Star Trek Online. Is, is yeah, there a big difference with the way those are handled? <laughs> they're completely different. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, so mobile was a huge um, learning curve. I mean, all of so massively multiplayer games, they're their own thing. You actually ship a massively multiplayer game, you're breathing rarefied air. They're way more difficult than you think they are. And if you want to tackle one, then you better be ready for what you're signing up for. Um, people aren't, aren't really doing that anymore. I mean, it's not, it's like there was a gold rush when um, World of Warcraft came out. And even just before that, that's where everybody wanted to do a massively multiplayer game. But they were really, really hard. Um, and then in mobile, it's all about networks. And what I mean by that is you can spend a bunch of money creating a, a mobile game and no one will ever see it um, because you're not, you have to spend at least as much on marketing um, because it's the people who own the networks um, where you can get, get users, get eyeballs. They're going to make all the money off of your game. You're not. Um, and so it's only the people like King um, and um, Zynga at one point, um, they had their own networks. So they didn't, they weren't, uh, they weren't beholden uh, to those gatekeepers. And so they were able to make money. But a lot of indies just weren't able to make uh, any significant dent because of discovery. They, they couldn't get their, their products in front of people. So, so was that mainly yeah. because of the carriers and stuff? Or was that more so just because the market exploded so large that there's so many competition like to get eyeballs on? Right. So, yes, um, the carriers were an issue really early on, even before like the iPhone came out. Um, they were the, they were the gatekeepers. In fact, I worked a little bit in mobile at a game at a company called uh, Hands On Mobile. I worked on a on a poker <laughs> it was a poker MMO actually. We created a whole casino and you know all the, anyway. I, I wasn't there long, 
Um, but they, I learned there that the carriers were the, the gatekeepers. You had to have the carriers on board. Otherwise, you'd never get onto their list. And those were the little feature phones. You know, you'd flip through and, you know, see what they were promoting. And if you weren't on that list, you'd never get seen by anybody. That was nasty. Now it's those networks. And I don't know if you've seen, you know, if you, if you play like uh, free games, you'll see ads popping up on your on your phone. Uh, and some of them are video and some of them aren't, but the, the way they get those ads onto those uh, free games is through those networks. They're ad networks and they just prop, they populate tons and tons and tons of games, but buying space in those ad networks can be really, really hard. And I'm, I'm actually now just learning about the whole landscape of ads in Amazon and Facebook and BookBub and Goodreads and all that. It's a whole different game that I know nothing about. I don't know how to set up how to set up bids for ads or, you know, how to target my perfect reader. I don't know any of that stuff. And I have to learn because I'm going to launch a book. So uh, for a lot of entrepreneurs, the, you know, the fun of creating a company is, is the fun that they get. Once the company's up and running for a while, they kind of get bored and they have to go start another company and sell this one off type thing. Have, have you been kind of along that line too? Or, or do you like to see not just the project through to the end, but to keep the vision of that company going like you, you obviously did at Sundog for a few years, but is that still the case these days? Now, so I, 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 I don't want to say, I, my first initial reaction is I couldn't care at all about that. Um, I am not about making companies. That's, so it's one of the reasons I joined Legend and um, I was able to be part of a larger group than me. Um, I am about the product. That's really all I care about. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be the guy marketing. I don't want to be the guy even producing. What I want to be is the guy coming up with the design or coming up with the story or directing the art and creating something out of nothing. That's what pushes me to do everything that I do. Um, running a company is not interesting. I will do it if I have to, and I have in some cases, but I'd much rather work with talented people making a product and then you know, figuring it out after that. Um, but I'm, yeah, that's, that's You're just definitely more on the reason. creative side versus uh, the, 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 there's no that. question. I learned that about myself really early on. And then I just wanted to ask, this is going back to the Coca days there. Like I, I was taking a look through the ads in rainbow and you mentioned like you did the original, you know, five page ads and stuff. It looked like Sundog had actually moved around a few times between a couple different States. And then of course you ended up on the West coast. So <laughs> were you, were you following your career at that point? Or were you like, was that schooling that was causing that or just okay. you know, wanderlust or what? <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so when I first started, I think Sundog always was out of my dorm room in uh, Penn State. Uh, that's that's where, I, and I actually used that address in my first ad. But the dorm room wouldn't take mail addressed to Sundog Systems, so they returned everything they got sent there. <laughs> and I didn't know it for the longest time. I just thought I wasn't getting any orders. And so I finally confronted them about it, and because somebody complained that they got their their order returned to them, and they said. You know, you're you can't run a business out of your out of your dorm room. You can't accept um, uh, mail to Sundog Systems. But I said, fine, all right. I changed the ad to my mother's house. You know, to my to my parents' house, and um, that's the address that I used. And then I created for her a stamp, a rubber stamp that said forward to, and then my address um, in college. And so everything she got, she stamped and sent on, and that they allowed through because it was addressed to me. So that was my first address change. And then after that, um, after college, obviously, I wasn't going to stay there forever. 
um, in a dorm room. Um, so I, uh, I moved to Virginia to, and that's where I joined legend entertainment. And so for, that was my address for a while, um, at, at legend. And then I think, um, one of the questions that, you, that I saw on the sheet was what happened sort of after that? Um, and someone else was selling my product. Um, uh, when I sort of, you know, uh, ramped down. So I, I sold, I was still active even when I was at legend. I think I said I had a new for 91 ad at that point now we had contras which was its own nightmare contras boy yeah we'll get into um, that <laughs> <laughs> um and uh and i i did it for a while but i mean legend was you know they didn't use the term back then but it was a startup it was a fairly new company new products uh, and people were working really long hours and so that's kind of what was expected to me especially as a new guy coming right out of college and so i worked a lot of hours there i really didn't have time uh, for Sundog Systems. And at that point, the market was declining so much that it really didn't make sense. Um, I, I couldn't really program. I didn't have time to program in it anymore. And I wasn't even really doing a lot of that at that point. I was mostly selling other people's uh, games through Sundog. Um, and so when it got to the point where I just really couldn't spend the time on it anymore, this offer came um, to, to buy a non-exclusive license to sell the product, to sell my games. And at that point, what I really cared about, honestly, was getting all of my authors paid. I wanted to make sure that they got some kind of compensation um, to sort of wrap up their experience with Sundog Systems. Because honestly, I think you cannot find an author that had a bad experience uh, with Sundog Systems. Um, I was always fair. I always paid my bills. Um, and people really enjoyed the, that process. So I wanted to make sure that they got paid. And so I got... I got, I, I can't remember how much it was, but I made sure that every one of my authors got at least a hundred bucks out of it. Um, and I think I, I made like a lot less than that for mine. Um, but at least they, I, I sent them off and they were, they were happy. Um, and so at that point I could focus mostly on legend and that's, you know, where my career was at, the, at that point. Cool. Okay. Cool. How are you doing on time, Glenn? Are we, are you exhausted? Are you cool? Uh, I'm fine. I mean, as soon as you want to move on to another segment or something, you should No, no. Know. Well, I was going to say, we should probably take a break because we've been going at this now for a little over an hour. So we'll take a commercial break and we come back. Curtis, what would you like to focus on? And the people in the audience, too, let us know what you'd like to – your career is so extensive. Uh, I've got some specific questions on Cocoa products because, of course, we're a Cocoa show. Yeah, so I wouldn't yeah, mind getting yeah. some of those out of the way. And then maybe just cover some of your experiences with the, you know, the, the PC side of things, too. Um, some of the big big titles you worked on there. We haven't even talked about like Glee and some of the other stuff you know, too much yet here on the show. So Yeah. Right. All right. So we're going to take a commercial break. We'll come back. We'll have some more Coco questions. I'd definitely like to hear some more about the PC side of things too. And um, and if the guys on the panel, if you can think of some stuff you'd like to ask Glenn, those who are watching, if you have some specific things you want to know about, get those questions ready. So we'll be back in a couple minutes. Thanks for being here, Glenn. And uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be back. Absolutely. It's time for everyone's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord This Week? Please welcome Old Benny, Old Benny Hansen. He started with microcomputers back in 1976. Ensign Rutherford bought his first silver cocoa in 1982, and in 2000 wrote the Return of Cocoa emulator. Hippie Trail said he never had a cocoa back in the day, but did have a TRS-80 Model 1 and 3. J.R. Blade Jerry is a coconut from way back. 
K9 Kraken, Will Nielsen, says he started gaming and learning basic on the Coco at age 9 and is now waiting for the Gimme X. John Vela says the Dragon 32 was his first computer and he's now looking forward to trying out the Coco Pie. Also, a special thanks to Alpen Grace, Voice on Tech, Coco Talk patrons David Ladd, Jim Rye, Paul Fiscarelli, Rob Inman, and Terry Steggy for boosting the Discord server. Join us on Discord at discord.cocotalk.live. See y'all on Discord, everybody! It's. And now, these messages. It's a Radio Shack Merry Christmas. This year, I needed to give a real family pleaser. Honey, please help me with this budget. How about a new game, Dad? Please. And I found it. Radio Shack's Color Computer 2. On sale for just $99.95. It entertains, educates, manages. It's expandable and affordable. Now that really pleases me. The Color Computer 2. Sale price for Christmas. Only at Radio Shack. Hi, I'm Kieran Unscombe, author of XRAW, and your brain is resolving sensory input into Cocoa Talk. At Gsoft, we make games for the TRS-80 Color Computer, TRS-80 MC-10, and Dragon Computers. Our basic games cover the range of genres from arcade, to text adventures, to simulations, to 3D dungeon crawls. This is our latest puzzle game from Japan, Fruit Panic. So come on, drop by our website, and download our latest games. Tired of switching your joystick between the left and right port? Want to change between different controllers? Well, Joey has got you covered. The Joey Controller Switch. Take control of your controllers with the flip of two switches. Order today at cocoman.biz. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. Legend says, when the moon is full, if you go out in the country by the lake and whisper the name of Nick Marota three times, his spirit will appear and he will grant you a product idea. Radio Shack has a great gift idea for the whole family. Fast action TV games. And they're on sale. Get this six game model for $29.95 or the four game model for $21.95. With rising entertainment cost. That's a real bargain. You play hockey, tennis, squash, and more. Easy to hook up and great family fun that last all year long. The sale price TV games. At Radio Shack, a Tandy company. Hi, I'm Terry Steen, author of Balloon Fire and other amazing games on the color computer. And you're listening to Stevie Stroh on Coco Talk. It's. And we are back. Thank you, Glenn, for being here. Our guest of honor right now is Glenn Dahlgren. Thank you. Yes, you're too kind, and thank you. We mostly know Glenn from a plethora of games he's provided for the Tandy Color Computer, but his career spans many decades, many products, many platforms. Uh, L. Curtis Boyle's with us from the Color Computer Games List website, 
And Curtis, you've got more questions. I know Rob Inman has some questions. I think everybody wants to hear about the Contras. <laughs> I'm sure there are. Other, There's a few of the, the mystery uh, things other, to talk about. Other there, so. things. So Curtis, why don't you we take have it a away? Question from the, we have a question from the chat too. Okay, go ahead, Mark. You want to handle uh, that? Erico just wanted to know if uh, in your adventure game, did you ever hide anything, an Easter egg or anything on the help command or anything? Oh, geez. Uh, not, not on purpose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe there's something on the disc that I didn't intend to get on there, but uh, I was not a big Easter egg guy. In fact, um, when we released like uh, Wheel of Time and and uh, Unreal 2, the level designers would sneak those in there, and I hated it mm. because they wouldn't tell me. And I would find out about it like, you know, suddenly you're wandering through a Wheel of Time level and you come across Abe Lincoln. It's like, what the hell is Abe Lincoln doing in, in a Wheel of Time level? Um, <laughs> so... So I, uh, I was just not a big Easter egg maker. Um, I, it was hard enough making a game, you know, <laughs> I didn't really want to spend the time making something that people, you know, wouldn't see, wasn't really on the main path. And in that case, you and Mark Siegel of uh, Tandy actually have that in common because when the uh, microprogrammers snuck in the three Amigos picture and control it reset, they didn't find that out until they already started burning ROMs and he was livid. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah, you know, and it's I, the way I look at it. It's like I don't, I don't have a problem with them. I actually really enjoy that kind of thing. What I have a problem with is not knowing about it, and not being, not knowing that people won't um, happen upon it. You know, in you know, the, the, who are not looking for it because if it interferes with the actual experience, and believe me, some programmers and level designers and stuff, they're not. You know, they don't cover their footsteps as well as. You might hope, you know. So if they ended up putting something in there in the main experience, that's where I have a big issue. So for you, it would have to be something that was designed to be part of the game in the first place and for it to be worthwhile even trying. No, well, well, I mean, I'm not. I'm certainly not going to assign Easter eggs to anybody to, to go in and do because I'm very cognizant of the budget and the time. You know, we, we need to get the game out and we are always uh, under time pressure to do so. So I'm always cutting things. I'm never putting in um, <laughs> Easter eggs. But my point is, um, yeah, so if, if, you, if you decide to use your own time and create an Easter egg, but you screw up my game by doing so, that's when I have an issue. Okay. I know like some of the Cocoa programs, like we were mentioning the other Gonabana thing too, uh, where Steve hit on the actual disc when you bought it, an ad for Gonabana too, because he was planning on doing that. And of course, the whole deal fell apart, but... And there's been you know, a few others. Dave Edson from Aardvark used to put little hidden messages in every game he did. It just became a tradition for him. So it's, it's, it's definitely interesting hearing that there's definitely different mentalities on, on whether it's worthwhile or not. I mean, there's famous ones like Warren Robinette and Adventure for the Atari 2600 because Atari wouldn't let you know authors have any credit with their names attached to it. So he snuck it in as an Easter egg you know, just for himself. But uh, it's interesting to hear that, yeah, you, you, you don't really think, you think an Easter egg is cool because you found something, you know, that nobody knows about or not, not too many people know about. But on the other hand, if it does screw up the main experience of the game, what are you doing? That's right. It's, it's all about risk versus reward. I love, I, again, I love discovering those things. I love the thing that I like as a designer is looking through in the, the tiniest cracks of a game and knowing that the designer was there before me, knowing that he knew that I was going to go around looking through here and he gave me something for doing that. And that I love. It's not really an Easter egg so much as it is just really good design. And I, I really reward for that. the player basically. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That yeah, that to me that is And that makes repeat sales. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Because <laughs> it, it makes for good repeat playthroughs. Yeah, yeah. people go looking yeah. for those things. Yeah, one of my favorite game systems was the Sega Genesis, and 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 basically most of the games were the platform genre, but there were good platformers and there were bad platformers, and a good platformer does kind of invite and reward the exploration rather than following the 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 road less you know taking the easy path uh if you go off the beaten path and you look around if you're rewarded for doing that that encourages you to want to do more than that and like that you just said it really well that the it's nice to know that the developer was there before me and and knew and left this waiting for me that you know, it makes it worthwhile. I hate completely linear gameplay, you know? Yeah. And you feel like you wasted your time if there's yeah. nothing there. Yeah. And yeah. you want to explore. I mean, that's as a game player, that's one of the things you want to do because you have this great big open world or whatever. You want to explore it and you want it there to be something at the end when you get there. Yeah. Yep. And you like seeing, you know, discovering surprises and stuff too, where you know, something you weren't quite expecting all of a sudden, oh, I've got to go further now because I've seen this type thing. So, yep. Exactly. Yeah. Now, speaking of, of sales a little bit here, um, like all of your first batch of Coco games was all adventure game based. Um, so I guess the first question on, on that is the Hall of the King, was that originally designed to be a trilogy? Like I think each game took two discs by itself because mm-hmm. of all the graphics. Or did you did you do the first one and kind of see how it went, how sales went, and then you decided to add the sequels afterwards? Or had you pre-planned that whole thing to be a trilogy? So, so I think a lot of my fascination with fantasy started out with Dungeons & Dragons. So I played D&D in high school, and um, I was one of those guys that was actually making modules for other people to play. I really liked doing that. Hall of the King was a D&D module that I made. So I had it planned out as a D&D module, and then I kind of you know, figured out how to take elements of it to create a computer game. But I think um, um, Whitefire Eternity was like that, um, and I even Star-Lord, I think, in Quest of the Star-Lord, started out as a tabletop game. Um, so... So I kind of, you know, I think uh, when it came to what have I made that, you know, I've um, that's that has sold that, you know, Brickley Pear wanted. And I think they might have actually come to me and said, you know, we, we want a, another one. And I said, OK, sounds good. Um, and each one, I got a little bit more content in there. And even on the third one, I got some I started getting some machine language in there and some animation. So each one started getting a little bit better. And actually, you know, after making adventure games for PCs, I look back at some of those and I'm like, they are so short. It's like there's, I mean, you can't fit any content on on a floppy disk, even if you've got two of them. (laughs) It's like you're done with it in just like an hour of play almost, you know, depending on how hard I made it or how impossible the puzzles were. And if you didn't guess the right verb to use or something. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's incredible. I, I watched, I think I watched a playthrough of In Quest of the Star-Lord and I was just amazed at how quick it went. Yeah. I mean, adventure games now are like, it's hours and hours, days and weeks to solve. And back then, if you knew what you're doing, you can get done in 15, 20 minutes. If you do all the yeah. moves. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then along that line too, like a little bit later on, like when you started Sundog is when I think when you did your first arcade style game, which was Kung Fu Dude. Now, was that a conscious decision because the arcade market was probably bigger than the adventure market, which is a bit more niche than that? Or was it you just wanted to explore that genre or did you actually like arcade games or what? Yeah, I'm, I was a fan. I mean, honestly, that's what I that's that's what I why I do everything. You know, if, if I enjoy something, then I kind of want to do that. I mean, it draws me to it. So I liked, uh, you know, martial arts beat em ups. And so I wanted to make one. And so I made Kung Fu Dude. And people actually were like, why? Why would you call it Kung Fu Dude? And I said, it sounded good. 
<laughs> it sounded a little weird, but it was memorable. I mean, you remembered Kung Fu, dude. Um, uh, so, so yeah, and actually, yeah, I liked it. Um, and I used that as a basis, and I learned more and more and more. I made Kung Fu Dude, and then I made Warrior King as uh, we went to Cooker 3, and then I made Kiyom Guy. But it was the same basic construct. I just tried to get better at it. But I would play games like uh, Ninja Guy Dan and Rastan and, you know, those kind of games in the arcade. And I loved them. Um, and so I wanted to make them. Yeah, like Rastan kind of fits fits your motif of liking fantasy adventure games because that was a fantasy adventure arcade game type thing. So. That's right. Um, I, I imagine you probably like Gauntlet and stuff like that too. Then for the oh yeah, some reason. Or, like were you into the role playing? Like you were in role playing in Dungeons and Dragons. Were you in the role playing? You know, games like Ultima and I guess Dave dies. Of course, did Gates of Delirium and some of that type of stuff. Or was that just a bit I, too involved? Or yeah, I tried and I just I couldn't get into them. Um, there were they were probably too demanding in terms of uh, the time required. Um, so I was never a real real um, you know RPG computer guy. Uh, in fact, I was looking at um, a Darkmore Hold, and I think you know one of the questions you had about that was, "What was my inspiration for that?" You know, did I, did, was I looking at Muds? Was I looking at you know other games in the in the time? And the truth is that no, I, I actually kind of evolved that out of adventure games to me and D and D, but there really wasn't anything that I was looking at any like computer role playing games that I was a fan of at the time. That's that's not what was being that I was exploring uh, in that direction. It was just. Seemed kind of fun, but but if you see like the the evolution for me, so the evolution for the fighting games was Kung Fu Dude all the way to Kiyum Guy, but the evolution of that particular kind of game was uh, Darkmore Hold to Champion. Champion was um, the game that I was trying to make with Darkmore Hold, um, and it, and it just you know it was a lot easier to play because I wasn't forcing you to type in commands, and it's still you know it was a fairly simple game, but I think it was more uh, it was more enjoyable. Okay. Is there any other questions in the chat here before we go on to my next one? Or? We did have a uh, question yeah. from the live chat from David Croker. He says, I'd love to hear some game design thoughts of Warrior King and Come Guy. Those were two Sun Dog System games I played most. I still have those original red discs. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, kill you and kill you often. That would be the game design thoughts that I had about this game. <laughs> I mean, I went back and played those and I realized how unfair I was. In fact, I think that's how this whole thing started is someone posted a, a video of them playing Hume Guy yeah, Paul on Fire. Facebook. Yeah. And uh, and I had to weigh in because I couldn't believe how unfair I was um, to, to people. I mean, I'm the junior designer that I should have been yelling at um, uh, about about killing the player. Um, the, the truth is that Warrior King was worse um, because I, I kind of had it in my head that you needed to learn. It absolutely had restore puzzles in there. You just didn't know if you were going to leap off this cliff, if there was going to be something for you to leap onto. It was off screen. So you kind of had to learn that there was a little island there for you to land on. And if you didn't the first few times, I was okay. I'd make you start again. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was extra gameplay, I guess. Um, but I look back at those things and I think, you know, I never would, I never would make a game like that again. At least not as, not as uh, nasty. Um, but the, the kind of games that they were, I loved. I mean, I loved the having a little character. He gets better. He gets, he gets weapons. He gets abilities. And he gets more cool and more powerful. And he gets to fight stuff and uh, explore these, these uh, sort of – they're kind of platformer levels, but I never really made a platformer. It was more about the you know, double dragon, Rastan kind of, um, you know, kill all the enemies sort of thing. So, uh, you know, 
I guess that's where I, where that those came from. I just I just liked it. Now, this is an interesting debate I've had with some other people recently too, and and, and I wanted to get your your perspective on this. Um, the games I think back in the eighties on all platforms were were much harder and much more kill the player type thing. Like you really had to you know pixel perfect jump to get to a certain spot, and and now it's much more you know okay we'll give the player a lot more slack. Um, do you think that was just because of like hardware limitations and stuff back then? You had to make the game difficult in different ways, or is that just been an evolution of gaming itself that you're no longer trying to kill the player, you're no longer trying to make it so pixel perfect to get something done? I think it's a combination of both, honestly. Uh, I mean, back when I was making those games, I was figuring out how to make games. And so if it worked, I was happy. Um, and, you know, I, I the pixel perfect jump, I, I probably should have felt like I should have had a, a better barometer for whether something was unfair, but I didn't. Um, and, and people still seem to have fun with it. So I guess I, I wasn't, you know, I would do it differently now, but at the time I, I think it was, it was fine. Um, and, and I think at the time there was more of a mentality that was, it's okay to screw over the player. And you look at like um, massively multiplayer games, there was a real, when they first started, Permadeath was a thing, you know, and, uh, you know, being really hard on your players, making them, punishing them for doing the wrong thing. Um, that was a real thing. People had to contend with that. And there were, there was this old school group of thinkers that said, it's okay to really screw over your player because they deserve it if they do the wrong thing. But then people like uh, Blizzard came out with World of Warcraft and there were still like you know, runs to get your stuff if you die and run corpse corpse runs, um, and uh, and and I think players liked it liked it better when there wasn't as much punishment. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense, right? <laughs> you want to have fun. You don't want to get slammed over the head every time you do something wrong. And that's that has helped to sort of form my philosophy of game design, which is create an experience for the player that they're going to enjoy, not that's going to make me feel good about tearing you down. Yeah, because I was discussing with some players on some other podcasts recently because, I mean, there's some younger people coming into it and they think a lot of the old games, especially the European ones, because they even did this worse than we did here in North America, um, that there's this whole mentality change because back then it was like the, the puzzle solving, be able to figure out that pixel perfect jump and getting just the right twitch on the joystick at just the right time to make sure you got it. Like that was your sense of accomplishment. But today's gamers, they play those things in there. Do they think they're just horrible designs because... You know, you, you die five, six times in 10 seconds, and then you just say, I'm not playing this anymore, and you throw the joystick or the disc against the wall type thing. So, <laughs> if, you, if you make a game like that, you are making it for a very small audience. Um, though there are going to be people who are proud of the fact that they can, you know, they figured out how to beat your game despite all of the challenges that you put in front of them. And there are, I think Dark Souls is sort of famous as a game that's really, really hard. And yet some people really like that about it. So there are people out there who want a hard experience, but most people, if you want to reach most people and as a game designer, as a writer, you know, as anybody who's creating entertainment, that is your goal. Of course, you would like to make money on it somewhere, but the, the goal really is to reach as many people as possible and to have your work speak to as many people as possible. That's, that's all I want to do. Okay, so the basically, I, from what I'm hearing there is that basically the the mentality of the developers now has changed over the years that you want to engage more players 
I guess, more casual players. Uh, it would be one way to put it because we're getting people that you want to jump into a game 15 minutes because they got a little bit of free time type thing, then jump back out and come back to it later. As opposed to, I have to make it through every single level to hit this one pixel perfect jump I missed you know, last time, three hours ago before I got had to run through all these levels again. So I think the actual design mentality has actually changed over the years somewhat too. Uh, yeah, I, I think that may be true, but I don't think it's, I mean, as you see different formats for games, I think the challenge is always, how do we make the best possible experience for the player? And I'm just thinking about like VR, you know, there was a whole period where, you know, screw you if you can't, you know, if your stomach can't handle it, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to create a, um, a, a locomotion model um, that for you. But the truth is that a lot of people had that problem and you don't want people to be throwing up after playing your game. So you're going to work to try to make the best possible experience. You're not going to, you know, make it impossible to, to play. I, I just, I can't see an upside to it. Okay. And then uh, continuing on your, your Coco history here. So when the Coco three came out, I mean, you'd had a couple games, uh, arcade games like our, you know, Kung Fu did on the Coco one, even had digitized sound effects in, which was really cool for the time. Um, when the Coco 3 came out, were you like super excited when that came out and just, you, you had you know, just a whole plan of things to do and, and things to try or, or had you started already thinking at that time because the Coco 2 market had started to shrink a bit by that time, were you already thinking of maybe jumping ship to something else? Uh, no, I was still definitely, um, I, I was all in for the Coco. I think when it came out, I mean, I probably had the same reaction that a lot of people did um, in developing, which is number one, wow, it's going to be faster that's cool. I really wanted more speed out of a Coco. It's going to have more colors. That's cool. But also I know how to develop for the Coco one and two. I don't know how to develop for the Coco three. And, you know, I'm a full-time student at a college and I'm trying to make my way. Am I really going to be able to, uh, to take this on? And, uh, um, I mean, but I think everybody has that, that, uh, that reaction when they're faced with something completely new. And, th and the truth is that I loved the capabilities you know, that it opened up. I, I mean, I, it's hard for me even to look at my Coco one and two games now um, because the Coco three games are, you know, they're in color for it effectively. And uh, uh, so I, it was, it was a big shift and um, I, I loved, I loved the jump. Yeah. Like you mentioned before on your Mysterium blog post there, you had the, uh, the whole stack blasting thing when you're doing warrior King, cause you're trying to get the graphics going as fast. Cause one thing people didn't realize at the time, we, we've got this new screen. It's got 16 colors. It's got more pixels. It's four times or five times the size of the original one. And I've got a double the clock speed CPU. So you giveth and you taketh away type thing. Like now I've got to move yeah. five times as many pixels with only twice as much speed. I mean, you can do palette animation tricks and a few things to help you know, leverage that a little bit. But I think a lot of people didn't realize you know, with all this extra graphics, it actually would slow down. So you had to discover new techniques to get the game speed back up using the higher yeah. graphics. And I, I won't ever purport to be like the, the graphics master. I mean, there are people, I'm, I'm sure there are people in the audience um, uh, who are way better at moving pixels than I am. Um, um, I know some of the tricks that we did back then was like, you'll, you'll see on a Warrior King or Kiyom Guy screen, there's a huge border around them. You know, yeah. I'm not moving those. I'm not redrawing those because I don't have to. Um, I, and if I did, it would be really a lot slower unless I was doing some hardware tricks, which people do. And it's fantastic. Um, it contrasted, yeah. Yeah, it contrasted. Um, but even some of the early DICOM games, I think uh, you did the same thing. They just limited the amount of, of screen space by putting up some kind of interesting ornate border. Um, so I didn't have to, uh, to redraw as much. Um, so yeah, I, I had, a, I had a lot to, to learn about moving things. And in fact, you'll notice 
that on um, Warrior King, there's a flicker. And that's because I am redrawing it, but I'm not syncing it um, to the refresh rate. And Dave, Dave told me, Dave Dice told me, why aren't you doing that? And I said, do what? <laughs> and so he, he told me how to do that. And I'm like, oh, geez, I can't believe that I shipped a game with that. And I had no idea why I was flickering. Well, and the you'll notice, thing is, uh, uh, so on Warrior King as well, you'll notice his heart is beating. Um, and that's only because <clears throat> I'm shifting between two different uh, pictures. His heart beating is not animation. It's just, you know, it's one way on one side and one way on the, on the next screen. And I'm able to, to, uh, to gauge frame rate that way, just while I'm watching his beating heart. <laughs> it's actually it, interesting uh, you mentioned like Dave Dyes, because you know, I've, I've actually went on a little project last year. I don't know if you've heard about the 639 processor. It's kind of a sequel to the 639. It's a bunch of extra registers and speed and stuff. <clears throat> and I was going through and optimizing some of the old Coco 1 and 2 games to use the new CPU. And I was going through some of Dave's stuff. So I went through some of his really old stuff up to his more modern stuff. You could watch his programming techniques change. Like the first few was doing like a load A story you know, to copy something. Then he, oh, load D, store D's faster. <clears throat> and then when he gets to Marble Maze, he's stack blasting like crazy just to, you know, so he can move the full screen at once. So I'm imagining you went through the exact same sure. learning curve. You just got, you know, some tips from Dave a little bit ahead of time to help speed up the process. Yeah. After he laughed at me, he, he clued me in. <laughs> <laughs> And then the next uh, the next game after that, um, arcade wise, I guess is, it was Kim Guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess one question that's always uh, I've always wanted to ask is the digitized voice at the beginning that announces the title of the game is that you kind of distorted? Yeah. Is that your brother? Or who, who no, that's that? that's me. I just yeah just shifted it a little bit. I'm actually the voice of uh, Sinistar as well. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and then after, you know, like you can notice the speed increase between Warrior King and Gun Guy as well. And, uh, but then after about a year or two later, I, from what I understand from being at Rainbow Fest and talking to Kevin Darling about it, it was kind of a challenge because a lot of people said you can't do a real arcade game under OS9 type thing. And then uh, he worked with you, and then Eddie Coons came in and kind of cleaned it up afterwards to finish the game out. How did that all come about? Were you, were you one of the people that challenged him and said you can't do a decent arcade game, or was that from other people, or how did that whole situation come up? So, no, um, I think it was Kevin Darling who came out and said, excuse me, it is possible to make an arcade game under OS 9. And, um, and, and people were basically telling him he was, he was crazy. And, and I think he actually came out and said, listen, give me an arcade game and I'll port it. And, and he made it, he sort of did it sort of to the public. And I remember Game Point uh, came up and said, Okay, I'll I'll challenge you. If you make a game in OS nine and it's good, I'll market it. I'll I'll sell it for you. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that? Any what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, if someone makes a good game, you'll you'll sell it. Sure. I mean, you're you're a software company. And I figured, you know, what the hell could it hurt? You know, it's not like you know the things that I'm doing are are trade secrets. Sure, why not? I'll give him the source. Let's see what he can do. And so I gave it, I gave him all the stuff. Um, he actually made a significant amount of progress, but then at some point he just stalled. And it wasn't because um, it couldn't work. It was just, I think it was a time thing. It was a schedule yeah, thing. Yeah, he got, from I remember the story there, he, he basically had like the core done in a few weeks or something like that. But then his job took him elsewhere because he was doing ports for the Atari ST and a bunch of other stuff. He got hired, so he had a bunch of private contract work and just yeah. couldn't finish it. And, it. and it was such a shame because he had done a lot of the core work and it's like, 
we won't, he, he won't be able to prove anything. We won't be able to show it off and I won't get a new product out of it, which I was really looking forward to actually having an OS nine game. And so Eddie Kunz came in and was really nice, uh, came in and uh, finished it up. And that was, that was awesome. And so we actually got an OS nine game out of it and proved that, yeah, you can play an arcade game in OS nine. So and what was your opinion of OS9? Just because I'm, I'm heavily involved that side of the community myself here. So, of course, I've got a bias. But I thought I'd ask somebody honestly. <laughs> um, I, I don't have that much experience with it. I never spend a lot of time because I was always about coding to the, the computer rather than coding to an operating system. And I never really used the Cocoa too much for, like, productivity or other stuff. It was all just about making games. Um, and so I think I graduated to the PC at one point, and that, that became sort of my computer of – you know, do everything else on. Uh, so I don't really have an opinion aside from the fact that I always thought it was slow. Yeah, we've been working on that. But <laughs> <laughs> Another 20 years, you'll get it. Um, I, I did want to mention one thing, actually, before I forget, uh, like Kevin Darling, when he did talk about the project afterwards, he said you had some of the cleanest looking source code he'd ever seen from a game developer. So he, he gave you like huge compliments on it. Cause I guess a lot of people just don't bother commenting nothing. And it's just like, you have to figure it all out. I commented everything and I'm not even sure why it's just, that's sort of my personality. I wanted to make sure I knew what was going on. Oh, and I think part of it had to do was I was a comp sci major at the time. And so I sort of had that mentality anyway. I mean, I was learning in my comp sci courses and I was sort of applying some of that. I didn't, I didn't ever want to look back on my code and forget what the hell I was thinking when I wrote it. And so, yeah, it, it worked out because uh, because I ended up giving the code to somebody else. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm the same way. If you've seen my source code, it's it's commented just about every line. Because if I, well, this happened. I mean, I developed Nitrous 9 from 92 to 2001, and then I kind of retired for 15 years, came back to it. And it, thank God all the comments were there because I would have had no idea what I was looking at. Exactly. Now, after, after Kim Guy came out, then you kind of, you settled back as far as not doing the actual coding anymore. You did some, you know, digitization. You did some help with graphics and stuff on some of the other products that you ended up selling. I'm guessing that was because at that time you were starting to work at Legend and starting to work on the PC side. And you just didn't have the time, or were you busy with college? Or yeah, so it was ending up finishing up uh, PSU, um, and you know, senior year was was rough. I had some some hard courses, and actually, I was <laughs> I was uh, in some really high level drama courses at the time. They they didn't know what to make of me. I was the only comp sci uh, student in these high level drama courses. It was, that was, that was really weird. Um, but at the time I actually was able to use like soundtracks and Kium guy as coursework. I got college credit um, for Kium guy as my final for my graphics course, my computer graphics course. And I got credit for um, soundtracks um, for my independent studies course. So that was awesome. That's why I was able to keep working on um, computer stuff at the time. But I think part of it was that at that time, Sundog had been established as one of the premier game um, makers and distributors. And so people started coming to me and asking me, you know, would you like to sell my game? I got a lot of submissions of things I, I never, <laughs> I never sold. Um, but I got a few really good ones. And like, um, uh, I think, uh, you know, Thelda was something that I didn't have anything to do with um, producing. Yeah, it was Eric uh, Wolf, I think. Or, mm -hmm. or somebody else. He, he actually had a bad experience with another distributor that didn't pay him. And I was like, well, we don't have that problem. And he was like, well, can I still work with that other guy? And I said, 
if he's not paying you, why would you still want to work with him? You know, I think we need an exclusive arrangement. And once we did that, you know, it sold really well and he made a bunch of money that he got paid. Um, And so, you know, I had, I've had basically the same arrangement that I had with Brickley Pear and, and, uh, and uh, Mark Data and Saguaro. I I paid 25%. um, And every, I just had a program that just, you know, calculated every sale, 25% of it went to the author. And so it, it, it worked out because people were looking at Sundog and they knew that the stuff coming out of the company was, was quality. And so, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, Sinistar uh, came out of that too. Do you want, do you want to talk about yeah, the that? whole story of the phantom software? Yeah, that's, <laughs> I should get that on the record real quick. I just, cause this just occurred to me and maybe answer it later, but the name Sundog at some point in time, it'd be interesting to know what, <laughs> where did you come up with that name? You know? Yeah, sure. I actually, it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Um, I wanted a colorful name. And so I just um, looked up synonyms for rainbow. And Sundog is an atmospheric effect that happens um, on the side of, of, of the sun um, if certain conditions are correct. And I just thought that was kind of cool, the idea of sort of a, you know, legendary creature called the Sundog. And so that's why I made the, the logo into sort of a rainbow ending in a dog. That's how Sundog came to be. Uh, but as far as Sinistar goes... Um, this was a little bit after the whole blow up with Lonnie and Rainbow and, and Dave Dives. Um, Dave Dives was still very interested in the color computer, still wanted to be involved, but wanted nothing to do with Rainbow. And actually, there was a time when I was selling Dicom products um, through Sundog because he was not selling them anymore through Rainbow. Um, but he still, you know, wanted to... He, he said, basically, I kind of want to make a game, but I kind of don't. Um, and I said, you should do it. Why not? And he said, well, if I do it, I don't want it to be 128K. I said, fine, make it for 512. And I think it was actually one of the first 512K games yes, was. That, that was released because he just didn't want to try to squeeze it into 128. That's it. <laughs> and so, but when he worked on it, he said, like, I, nobody can know it's me, especially not, not Lonnie, um, because then he might have an issue with it actually being in the, in the magazine. But he just, that was his deal. And so he created the whole idea of phantom software. And until I think it was about, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I would, I never revealed the fact that Dave Dyes wrote that product. But at that point I figured I think enough time has passed. It's kind of okay. Statue of limitations is up. So he made it, I, I helped him a little bit with it, just like on uh, you know some production and, and the audio and some, oh, and some of the graphics. I think I actually made the graphics for the Sinistar face. Um, but he did it all, and it was it was uh, it was great. It was a really fun experience. Yeah, like I, I interviewed him by email, like oh God, must be 15, 20 years ago, and he gave me permission to put all the Diecom games up for download. And uh, he kind of hinted that he might have been involved with it, but he would never <laughs> say anything officially. So <laughs> I <laughs> hope probably because it was still too new. <laughs> yeah, I hope I didn't let any cat out of the bag. But you know, at this point, I think it's I think it's okay. Yeah, I think he'd be okay with it. I haven't talked to him in a while there, but I mean, he told me some, like he was telling me the whole Lonnie story mm. even back then. And he said, you know, I don't want that to come out because there's a lot of you know, people from Rainbow still around that might take you know, personal offense to it and stuff. But now it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's history. It is something yeah. you don't want to lose. And we've, we've seen tell-all books of all the other major computer companies and software companies. So this is not unique to the Cocoa world. This happened everywhere. Absolutely. Now, as far as far as the other games, like you started selling stuff like uh, Contras and Photon and Graphic Express and, and Crystal City and Xenix. Now, Crystal City and Xenix were both 
originally done by Ghost Up Software when Jeremy Spiller was selling it through them. And then they came to you. So did all of these people come to you to get distribution or did you pursue any of these after seeing the games in action? Because you thought this is really good. I'd like to sell it. So Jeremy's games were, um, I mean, they were fantastic. I mean, they were really fast. They were really clean. Um, they were a lot of fun. And GoSub, it was his company. So he wasn't selling it through GoSub because GoSub never had it. I don't, maybe he did have an ad. He did briefly. Point. Yeah, then he started yeah. selling it elsewhere. But he actually sold it through a number of distributors. I wasn't the only one. But the quality level of the products was, was high enough that I thought, you know, this is something I wouldn't mind actually putting some marketing dollars behind and giving it a, a place in, in the, uh, the Sundog lineup, even though I didn't have um, an exclusive arrangement with him. And I think, I think uh, he was the only one that I ever did that with. I, everything else was always exclusive. Um, and so uh, I just, I, I think we were one of the first people to, to push uh, Crystal City. I think that's about when I, I made that arrangement with him. And so with that, as sort of the you know, the reason to go after that, I said, okay, I'll sell that, I'll sell Xenix, and uh, and I'll I'll give it a, a prominent place, and um, and I think he saw most of his sales through us. Yeah, I would I would say so from what I remember seeing at the fests. Yeah, and I think I met him at a fest, and actually a lot of these a lot of these relationships and a lot of these deals happen there. Just yeah. you happen to you know meet the people that you've been dealing with, and hey, you know what's going on, and what do you got working, and. Yeah, so stuff like that definitely happened. Yeah, like like Dave Dyes, as you mentioned before, he was always really friendly because we were fellow Canadians. <clears throat> we always hung out together at the fest. Mm-hmm. And he'd take us behind the booth and he'd show us, you know, he's doing some other light gun games that never came out. Like there's a Wild West one that he was working on and he was showing us all the little bits he was adding in and there. And yeah, there's a lot of, lot of camaraderie. I mean, that was one thing nice about the Cocoa Market. I don't think we were quite, with a few exceptions, as cutthroat as some of the other big 8-bit and 16-bit computers at the time where the, the, the literally the companies hated each other. So you would, you would, you get, you know, fired because you went and visited somebody else at some other company type of thing. Yeah. That, I, I mean, maybe they were bigger business, you know, like the Apple II or Commodore, maybe they were slightly, you know, larger markets than us. And maybe that's, that fostered, you know, more of a demand for that, for the slices of yeah. pie. But, Plus we were but, always the underdog computer. So we helped, you know, defend each other. Like, you know, no, we are yeah. a decent platform type thing. So, but you're right. It was, a, it was always a really good community. I, I really, it's one of the reasons I think I stuck with it is because I really enjoyed the people so much. And one thing I'll have to say I'm proud of is that we still have that today. We, we've, we've been on other podcasts with some other, you know, other computer bases like Amiga and stuff. And they always compliment the Cocoa community on being such a friendly community. There's not all this infighting like they do see in the C64 and on the Amiga and a little bit on the Apple side. Like we seem to be a much more close knit friendly community for whatever reason that may be. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And I hope it always stays that way. Uh, ben Drake's had a quick question. Uh, buzzard bait or Lancer? <laughs> oh, you went there. I can't believe you did that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know what landmine I'm about to step on, but um, I think I have to say buzzard bait. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been an ongoing you know, in, in thing here. And there's definitely some camps. Like I'm sure. Myself, I'm on the Lancer side. I preferred the physics. I mean, the graphics and the sound are better on buzzard bait. I will give it that. But to me, the gameplay just seemed a bit smoother. But that's it's personal preference. Really. <laughs> but yeah, it's been a, it's been an ongoing joke. We're planning actually because Nick and I both have birthdays in November. We're gonna have like a head to head game on challenge ah. with both of them. And settle it. And of course, we'll end up you know deciding Pegasus and the Phantom Riders is actually better. Than yeah, that. yeah, that'll be. <laughs> <laughs> we should also so the, mention that okay. Ben Drake's is uh, Omni, or the Vertex Omni, uh, the demo demonstrator. So he has a real appreciation of sort of stuff. This sort of stuff. 
Yeah, he's working with a company that does live demos of a VR rig. Uh, it's kind of got a treadmill base and you got a helmet and a whole nine yards. But what he's actually done is he's done a number of videos where he has taken color computer games through an emulator and run them through VR. Oh, uh, so I can't even imagine that. Like yeah. Yeah. Right he's done. He's done uh, like, like uh, Peg, what the Phantom Slayer, the Ken Callahan. Phantom, Phantom Slayer. Yeah. Where you're actually walking on the platform. You turn, you right. shoot the whole bit. Yeah. So yeah, Ben is Ben has kind of pioneered taking Coco and Dragon games and and doing him videos of him on YouTube doing them in VR, which is really cool. Kind of like the, the past and the <laughs> I future. I never would have called that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we didn't either. We just discovered him on YouTube because I was doing a search for stories, you know, for Coco. What happened this last week? And all of a sudden, I see this guy in the three yard, you know, the big you know helmet rig on, and he's in this enclosed circular platform with a moving treadmill that goes in uh -huh. all directions. And he's playing Phantom Slayer, and I'm going, "What the heck?" <laughs> now he's become a That's regular great. in the chat. So, are you working on any new game projects now, Glenn? Have you got anything in the in the works? No, I've been focusing mostly on. I, so I I did some freelancing um, for a couple of companies um, in the VR space and in the AI space, um, but but nothing really happened there. I mean, they were more pitches than they were actual development. So I don't mm. expect to actually see those games out there. I've been focusing on the book and teaching um, and, you know, and, and a little bit of freelancing here and there, but the book has been the focus. It's, it's my new launch. It's the new product that I have um, and because it's been such a long time since I launched anything. And yeah. I'm really enjoying the, the idea of, of putting something that I really believe in out there again. Sure. I'll just bring that up again real quick, too, for everybody to see. But, yeah, the book is called The Child of Chaos. And there are links to it here, but you can find it on Amazon. You can pre-order the, uh, the e-book. You can get real books and all kinds of stuff. So make sure you check all that stuff out. And I'm actually getting reviews from uh, all sorts of authors. Um, and uh, uh, like Lee Sheldon, he was a... Um, a writer producer on Star Trek Next Generation. He gave me a, a really wonderful review. Um, uh, Christy Marks, who actually was a writer on like Conan and Red Sonja and Gem uh, uh, in the Holograms um, and, and a bunch of stuff. I mean, she worked on everything. She gave me a really wonderful review. And there's a couple of, um, of very famous uh, game people out there who are reading it right now. I won't name them because until I get a review from them, I don't, I don't want to out them. Uh, but I'm hoping for some some big drops there too. That's cool. cool. That's cool. Sorry about that, Curtis. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I've only got one other Coco question to ask uh, before we get onto the PC side. But I thought I'd also mention because you just brought it up too that you've actually been teaching some video game designing classes at the University of California Berkeley. Now you didn't do it this last year, and of course COVID's kind of screwing everything up for everybody. That's, that's exactly why. But but how did how did you get involved with that? And what exactly is the program for those that don't know? So um, how I got involved is I answered that. <laughs> it looked interesting and I just uh, wrote to it and it's really weird because I I'd never taught before so I really didn't have any teaching experience so I was a little wary even just going in and and uh, seeing if that was something I wanted to do I was kind of scared of the process um, but the so the, the the place that I work is called summer fuel and what they do is they create an experience for um, high school kids that are coming from usually internationally there are some Americans but it's it's from all over the world. It's kind of kind of really cool um, how they come from everywhere. And every summer there is a uh, it's a month long course um, that or it's it's kind of like a it's a summer camp for those people who go to the University of California Berkeley and they get to live in a dorm 
for this period of time. They get to sort of explore San Francisco, but they have courses. They have their morning and, and evening classes and they have workshops. So it kind of gives them a taste of what college is going to be like without, you know, while still making it just, you know, kind of like summer camp. It's still really just a lot of fun. And one of those, those courses was computer game design. And the person that did it before me kind of came at it from a more like, hey, let's play with a, an editor and sort of make a game and so um, and see what, what comes out after all that time. And that's, you know, I know I come from a programming background, but that's not what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do, I didn't want my, my course to be bug fixing. And that's effectively what it would end up being, I thought. So I made it all about design, um, dis discovering the sort of fundamentals of design and working through, you know, how do you take an idea? How do you examine that idea? How do you fix problems in that idea? What are the things you need to know? What are the, the games that you need to be aware of? Um, and then at the, the end, um, they all present. They, um, they come up with their own idea. They figure out how to create a pitch deck out of it. They, they tell me what their inner loop is. They tell me what their, their monetization method is. They, um, they figure all that stuff out and then they present to the whole class. And actually on my website on mysterium.blog, I put a couple of, uh, I don't think the whole, the whole uh, uh, presentations there, but I, I took a few of my favorites and I put the, like the title page up there from, from those people. I talk about, about the, um, the whole course there. But I, I take that and I add it to a bunch of labs where we're just playing games. Usually they're tabletop. I mean, it's a computer game course, but game design is really universal. Just learning the fundamentals of what makes good game design. You can tell that from playing like Liar's Dice and Dixit, things like that. And then I also take them on, uh, on field trips. So I take them to MADE, which is the Museum of Digital Entertainment in Oakland. Um, and that's great. They've got every game ever made. I, I don't know if they have a color computer in there. I told them they had to get one. I don't think they did. Um, but they have everything else. Um, and it's great to, and they're all playable. They have systems for all of them. So they're able to just point at a game on the wall and then go and play it. Um, and so the kids have a great time there. And I take them to um, the um, Art Institute, San Francisco, which they have a whole game design wing um, where they, and they actually have like scholarships for people who play, um, uh, who play Fortnite and, and some of the other big games out there. Um, they have teams, um, but they have whole sections where it's just um, 3D art and, and game design, and, and the, the walls are plastered with it. It's fantastic. And then um, I also take them to an actual developer. Uh, so I think the last couple of years I went to Glue. Um, they're a, a mobile game developer. And, uh, and they're, they're usually, the, the whole experience is a lot of fun. The companies that you take them on the tour, like like this mobile developer you're talking about, do they do they get something out of it too? Like, do they get a? Um, I think it's just community outreach. I mean, they really enjoy showing off <laughs> a little bit. Um, they and actually, uh, that's I went there, and the first year I went to Glue, Tom Hall was there. Tom Hall of Doom fame, and it just he just happened to be working there, and he's the one who presented to my kids. I'm like Tom. How's it going? Because I'd seen him a few times at GDC, at the Game Developers Conference. And uh, and so we got to talk after that. But it was awesome to give those kids a chance to hear game design theory from the guy who made Doom, or one yeah, of the guys absolutely. who made Doom. Yeah. yeah. I was just wondering, like, maybe if, if some of the, the kids actually came up with such such a cool gem that maybe some of the mobile game developers, hey, maybe we should hire you to, you know, design a game. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say, though, that 
coming into it, um, most of the kids, I, I'd say, who would consider getting into game design as a in a field, you know, as a as a profession? And maybe two of them out of I only had like about 10, 10 kids. It was very, very small classes. Um, but at the end, like eight of them put up their hands, and I thought that was a success. Absolutely, I think that's one rapture with that they did want to pursue it afterwards. Yes, they after that they were exposed to enough of the of the splendor of, of game development that they were interested in potentially pursuing it. Cool. And then back to the Coco for one last question. Of course, this is one of the burning ones along with the Sinistar, you know, the whole Sinistar secret thing is, is the fun of Contras. And now we, we've heard a bit of this from Jeff Seidel independently. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, but basically he took the project over and he actually had it on his resume on the web for a while. And he, he, he how did he word it? Taking over someone else's mess. I believe is his exact oh, yeah. wording. Yeah. So since you actually had to deal with, you know, the whole the whole project as a whole, and this actually was several years late. I think you were advertising in 91. It finally came out in 93 or something like that. Yeah. So what what is the whole story? What happened there? Was, was Doug just overwhelmed or, you know, just beyond his abilities or what happened? I, to, to be honest with you, I, I don't think this is going to be the story you want it to be. I, I don't even remember a lot of what was happening there. But I will say that, I mean, there was Doug – um, who started it and he had a lot done, um, but he just wasn't really that focused on it. Um, and I mean, it kind of worked and it looked really promising, but he just couldn't, couldn't bring it to completion. Um, and I would say, you know, anyone, any programmer coming into somebody else's program that they have to fix is going to not think much of it. Um, I will say, you know, Doug knew, Doug had a lot of the basics down, um, but his style was never going to match. Uh, Jeff's, but I swear there was somebody else. I swear somebody else came in between those two that tried to to, to fix it, and I cannot remember who it was. But I think they gave up. <laughs> they tried for a okay, little bit. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I, I could be wrong, but anyway, Jeff uh, and I um, started working together, and I, uh, I again, I'm. It's been a while, so I'm not entirely sure if I think I was working with him on Photon um, and GraphExpress at the time. And I said, you know, now that we have this relationship, it's clear, you know what you're doing. What would you think of, of finishing up the Contras? And he was like, well, I don't think I would really like to do that. Um, but he, uh, he, uh, he took a look at it and I guess he viewed it as a challenge and he finished it out. And thank God, because I think, you know, I don't know that I had been advertising it at that point, um, but it's very possible I had and, and uh, just got flaked on. Um, so, you know, thank God he finished it up because I don't, I would not have been able to get in there and finish that up. I know it. It just was not in my wheelhouse. Yeah, it's, it's actually a very good game. And actually there's a, there's a totally un-Coco Relay channel that was actually covering all the versions of Contras for every single home system and the arcade games. And uh, they actually found the Coco version and they actually played wow. it all the way through and won it, you know, right through to the end. But they discovered <laughs> a bug that even Jeff had mentioned in his resume. Because Jeff, when he was doing the finishing of it, I guess he he was kind of by himself. I don't know where he was based at the time, but he had said that he could not test two player because he had nobody else to play the game with. So some bugs if you have two players were actually it'll lock up in a loop and you'll keep hearing sound effects and stuff going, but you can't do anything. So yeah, I was a little worried because I never got to the end. I'm like, I hope you can. <laughs> I hope it's possible. Yeah, no, they actually have the video of it doing it. I've had a couple other people like just writing to my website that said they've won it. They sent me screenshots of the winning with the scrolling credits and stuff like that at the end. And and I think Paul Thayer's actually completed it too, if I remember correctly. The guy was playing Kim Guy when we started this whole conversation mm-hmm. to get you on. So yeah, that's, it, it, it's a very good game, and it's actually one of the top. It's also five twelve k game. 
and it's 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 one of the top five arcade you know clones I think I've seen, and it was definitely based on the uh, Nintendo version, not the arcade version, which actually have you know fairly different gameplay. There's none of that three D right. stuff where you're running the hallways and stuff. But. Right, right, yeah, yeah. It came. The end result was was great, but it was so late in the the uh, lifespan of the Coco that it never saw the success it really should have. I yeah. mean, if it had come out, you know, uh, even six months before that, it would have done so much more. Yeah, it was with the very, very tail end. But I remember you guys were advertising it like a good year or two before it actually came out. And, you know, just it just kept getting extended. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I remember. One, one, quick, ambitious uh, project. Like, one thing that really impressed me about that game was the sound routines. And I don't know if that was Doug's work or Jeff's work or a combination of, but they actually had digitized samples, almost like a mod file playing in the background. It wasn't just the normal four voice music like Xenix or something used. It was you know, drum sounds and chords and everything else while you're getting your simultaneous sound effects playing at the same time. So you're actually having three, four voices at once. And that's one of the very few games that has gone that far out to have a running real soundtrack on a Coco, as well as all your explosion sound effects while doing hardware scrolling and everything else at the same time. It does lag later on when you're getting into busy parts of the game, but very ambitious project. Yeah, and well, Jeff, I, I don't remember if it had that go early on. I, I suspect it might have tried to do that, but um, Jeff, that was sort of his wheelhouse. I mean, he was a graphics programmer, and you know, he made Graphics Express was kind of amazing for what it was, and uh, yeah. um, he was he was the perfect guy to go in and finish that that, that game. And I'm I'm really grateful that he did. And Photon, I mean, it's an original game. It's it's got great soundtracks on it, huge amounts of puzzles and stuff. It has a digitized, you know, smart ass Lidvide guy, you know, going chastising you between screens, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> and it's and got a typo. Actually, it's got a typo on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it actually says addicting, something like that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I still have that manual actually for that. Um, but that one actually I did see I think you guys had actually talked about doing an official PC port at some point. And I saw an unofficial PC port. I actually had a copy of, but had none of the music, none of the speech. It, it, the gameplay was there. The controls sucked, but it was basically a, a poor man's version of it. Did the PC version ever actually come out? No. Um, and the reason that I was considering it is because I was at Legend at that point, and occasionally we'd have like um, you know brainstorming sessions um, of what game we wanted to work on. And I said, well, listen, there's this really cool original game that I made. Well, I mean, that, that Sundog Systems uh, produced. And uh, I, I thought it would be kind of cool to release that on the PC. And I talked with Jeff about it, and I talked with Legend about it. But I think Legend, I mean, Legend was an adventure game company, and it wasn't really in the business of making games like that. It was interested enough to, to start those talks, but not really enough to, to take a completion. Okay, so the only port the PC saw was this unofficial one that somebody had done. Yeah, we, and I had I, it in the nineties. I played it for a while, but I lost it, and it seems to have disappeared from the web. So I don't. I don't even Good. Know it <laughs> 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 and I think that's about the only questions. I obviously you you Sundog shut down and shutting down. They were already in newspaper format. I think when you guys finally quit advertising, and obviously you were busy at Legend, etc. Yeah, and starting into your PC career. So I do have some questions on the PC side. Is there hey, anything hey, else Cur in chat? Curtis, yeah, I think yep. Brian Weasler did. Just just a quick question um, related to the Coco. Do you still own a Coco? Oh yeah. Or do you? Okay. Sure. Yeah, I I, I actually started going through storage not that long ago, uh, like in the last couple of years, and brought out all the Coco stuff and set it up and managed to get one of the systems actually working. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of like a disk drive on one didn't work and another one wouldn't power up. And, 
So I have a number of non-working units, but at least I got one piece, one element uh, to make a whole working system. Well, if you need upgrades, we've got many people in the community and get you like two meg and a six or nine and get you right back up and running. So. Actually, I guess that's one last question I would ask on the Cocoa side of things. Um, when, you, when you get to the point where you're kind of retired from being a, a full-blown game designer, and I'm assuming you'll want to keep doing your novels if, if they're successful, would you ever consider going back and just doing a retro game? I mean, we've got cross-development tools. You can you assemble a program in half a second these days. Was that something you'd ever consider doing just for a fun project? You'd probably make a tiny bit of money. I wouldn't expect, you know, to make a mint on it. But. Yeah, well, if I ever did it, it wouldn't be to make money. Um, <laughs> I mean, thing. <laughs> the, the thing about it is, I mean, I if you look at the, the progression of my career, um, I really enjoyed programming early on. But that's something I actually gave up, you know, like 20 years ago. Um, so... Diving back into that would have to be, I'd have to be really motivated uh, to get back into that. I have to relearn a lot um, in order to be successful there. And I, I, I sort of shifted into sort of a different mode, which was I really enjoy the design. I really enjoy creating stories and, and uh, worlds and experiences. And I really like working with people who are better than me um, to bring those to life. Uh, and the idea of going back to sort of one man, one show, um, you know, it works for a book, but I don't think I would, I'd want to do that again. I, I don't think I would be happy with what I ended up with um, if, I, if I did that. I really like working with the team and I really like pushing boundaries um, on, you know, better and better systems. I think the next game that I would want to make if I did it would be VR. Okay. Sorry. Oh, no, no, that's okay. That's, that's, that's actually a fairly common response. Some of, some of us are just, you know, kind of the retro nostalgia type thing. And the fact that, you know, as, as you mentioned, because you're working with huge teams all the time, I think the, the era of having a single programmer can, that can crank out a game that actually is, is, you know, admired is pretty rare these days. There's a few indies that manage to do it once in a while. But basically you need, you know, Hollywood-sized, you know, teams now to do things. Well, that, that's, that's not true. I actually would dispute that. I mean, first of all, let me just say, I have nothing but respect for the people who are making games for the color computer or any other, you know, retro systems. I think that it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of dedication. And I really, I really do respect that. And the fact that, you know, stuff is still coming out for the color computer, uh, gives me a lot of hope and joy knowing that that's the case. Um, but I will say that with the advent of, you know, smaller development systems like phones and even uh, maybe not, maybe not the Quest VR system, but, but, um, but like tablets and things like that, Team sizes have, you know, it, it ballooned up to the point where you had to be like a major studio in order to make a game. But then it started, it came back down again. Smaller teams were making games. And and honestly, that's, that's I think, where the sweet spot is um, for a lot of experiences. Because, you know, you want, you go in, you, you play a small game on, on your phone, um, you know, uh, EA didn't make that, you know, or chances are EA didn't make that, you know, it was a small team. And, and you see some of like some of the storytelling games that are out there, they're all small teams, but some of them are fantastic. Some of them, you know, have create an atmosphere and tell a story that you wouldn't find uh, a, a major studio willing to take the chance to do a game like that. So I would not say that we have sort of launched off the cliff and now only major studios can make these massive Hollywood budget style games. There's lots of indie games and there's lots of smaller teams out there making some really fantastic stuff. And do you think that's limited to mobile at this point, like tablets and phones? No, no, no. I think PC as well. I mean, you get on Steam, 
And you'll see a ton of, of indie games on there too. Um, I mean, they have to be a, of a certain level in order to, to get the attention necessary to, um, to attract people to buy their game. But um, I think, I think those, the PC and, and I would say that um, another major uh, development that has caused that to be possible are engines. So like unity and unreal, you know, though you can have a small team with those engines, which don't cost anything until you hit a certain threshold of, of um, sales um, that you can actually make something really fantastic, really polished and, uh, and do it, you know, in a, in a, with a small number of people in a small budget. Um, I think that and third or middleware changed everything as far as small teams are concerned. Okay. That's, that's a good point. I hadn't actually thought of that. I, I thought like once you mentioned the mobile market, I was going, yeah, because actually you have far more devices to sell to in the mobile market than you ever have on the desktop market. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, you can just pick one platform and it outsells the entire combined Mac, Linux, you know, Windows side of things. Um, and that's just one phone. And then you can get onto some other phones as well that are selling just as much or, or more. But I hadn't thought about the fact like Steam and stuff or the fact that these engines are actually available that you basically, as long as you have a pretty good artist and you have a good you know, creative director type of thing that you can actually come up with a good game with a, a small limited team. And that's, that's actually good to know. And, I think, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you see some real experimental games like that too. I mean, like, uh, you know, Flow and Journey and, you know, things like that that you would never see coming out of a studio, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rob Inman's asking, has your son played any of your Coco games? Uh, so yes, um, but not a lot. (laughs) I mean, I, I think at one point I had it set up and I said, here, play these. And they're like, okay. And then they played and they're like, all right, I'm done. (laughs) So I I didn't make any fans out of my kids. Oh, wow. That's interesting. But I think they respect the, uh, the fact that, you know, those games exist and I made them and, uh, you know, yay dad. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see. I'm I'm a big fan now of. Have, are you familiar with a game called Terraria? Mm, I might have heard the name, but I'm not. Right, so Terraria, it's a modern uh, game, but it looks like it could have played on like the Super Nintendo. It looks like an 8-bit slash 16-bit game, but it's made on, a, on on for to play on like an Xbox and a PC and stuff. So that's all, almost a genre. There yeah, it is. It is. Like so the- there is. This kind of 16-bit-ish look, the like the pixel art look, is is pretty popular now. And so I'm kind of a fan of people who make modern retro games. And there's a number of them. And some of them are done very well. And mm-hmm. and I just thought, uh, for myself, if I ever got to the point where I was making a halfway decent game or if I was going to make a game, you know, I'm going to throw out some stuff on the Coco because that was my first love. But I would love to do a Coco-ish game that you play on a modern game system like a pc or an xbox or something like that so i'm a fan of them of that genre of game but i'm also a fan of playing it on cu- current hardware you know mm-hmm. and i'd love to see more of that i would love to see more adventure games for modern systems the i think they call it now interactive fiction mm-hmm. and um maybe taking something like the point and click interface with interactive fiction, so you could play it on your Xbox with your thumb pads and, and and just like you know do things. But I would love to see some of those games that had heart and soul, but brought to a new audience on a on a current platform. Uh, again, that might be something that you have to do as an indie versus an EA. But I would love to see something. I'd love to see more. There, of there that. are there are actually point and click adventures out there. In fact, there are Facebook groups dedicated to. 
um, sort of surfacing some of those games. Uh, small teams are making them, and but yeah. there it's still a genre that people really enjoy. Uh, have you played the Telltale games before? They uh, I I played a few, and when at first I could not wrap my brain around it because I was so used to playing real games. So I think. <laughs> I, I think, really? I, you know what I mean? I, I think the first one I played was like a Walking Dead one. My wife got it for me for my birthday, and I was, I'm like, oh, great, a Walking Dead game. I'm playing it on my Xbox 360. I'm like, wait a second, what is this crap? I'm not really playing a game. It's more like it's, I'm, it's a multiple-choice story. and It's a lean-forward TV kind of. Yeah, but if you, if you understand that, it is actually a cool format, but I didn't understand that when I opened up my birthday present. I was looking for a game that I could play, like a regular video game, like a first-person shooter or something. And this was more like a, a, an interactive story. Um, but yeah, that is a cool format. Well, the previous games that they made before that, I, I believe, like the, the Strong Bad game, the uh, uh, Sam and Max games, um, and even like a, a remake of... Uh, uh, Monkey Island. I think they they did a bunch that were actual adventure games, and yeah. then they made Walking Dead, and then they realized that connected with people. That was their first big real hit. Yeah, and so all of their games followed that format. Okay, and uh, and then that was kind of what led to their downfall. They refused to evolve. They refused to do anything different besides that because they knew that that sold. But at a certain point, people got a little sick of it, mm. and so they mm. kind of went away. There's a couple more questions from the audience. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, ben Drakes asks, do you have a favorite VR game or one you want to play? And Rob Inman says, what do you think about Half-Life? Uh, so I haven't played the Half-Life VR game. I want to, but I have a quest. And I don't know how to make it work with a quest. Uh, it's not powerful enough to play the, the new Half-Life VR. Um, I think you can do it with some kind of graphics card or, or whatever. But uh, I, I would really love to do that because I've seen some great reviews. I think the the game that I played on um, my quest that I liked the most was the um, I, I don't remember the name of it, but it's the Star Wars one with uh, you know Darth Vader, um, and uh, um, Beat Saber's fun. But I think the Star Wars game was the one where I sort of uh, and I, I think I was not alone in this. Um, I realized how much of a how much presence um, made a difference in VR. Because you're there. I don't know if any of you have ever played uh, the game that I'm talking about. Um, but as soon as Darth Vader walks up to you and you realize he's like seven feet tall, you know, or he's six, you know, like more than six feet tall compared to where you are in there, and he's there, he's right in front of you. That moment that you are facing down Darth Vader was, was really powerful. And you realize um, how powerful the experience is that where you are there with somebody. And uh, the idea of bringing people together in VR spaces is, is really fascinating for me. Um, I, I'd love to make some, some uh, multiplayer games in VR. Ben says you can hook up the Quest to your PC if it's VR capable. Sounds like maybe your hardware, though, needs a little upgrade. Uh, my PC is pretty good. I, I, have to, I have to think about that. Very cool. Curtis, did you have more? Um, just a few bits on the, on the PC side of things. <clears throat> So you, while you're, you're still at Legend, with, uh, Glenn, you're still good with us uh, I, monopolizing good. your time. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that people want to hear that much more out of me, but I'm, I'm happy to be here. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I don't have a ton of questions left myself, so if the chat wants to come up with a couple last ones too, they can cue those up while I ask these few. You'd be surprised. <clears throat> so while so you're at Legend, you you got more and more licensed titles from various science fiction and fantasy authors, and we've mentioned like Piers Anthony, Margaret Weiss, Tracy Hickman, Frederick Pohl, Robert Jordan for Wheel of Time. 
Um, were you the main person kind of driving to get those relationships going or was it the company itself or was it the authors coming to you guys after you'd had, had a couple out that were popular or how, how did that all work? So um, I was not part of that when we first started the effort. Um, that was Gateway, uh, Frederick Pohl's Gateway. So that was all Mike Verdue. Um, he was looking for a way to get, get an established audience to play our game. So we had done nothing but original titles up until that point. And so Frederick Pohl was our first kind of um, exploration into licensing. And it just happened to be a literary license because not a ton of people were chasing those licenses uh, back then. And so we did Gateway. And I was actually a designer on Gateway. And that's where I started sort of my, my PC design experience. But then it became like, okay, that did pretty well. And it, it landed and was really well received. And so we started saying, well, what else could we do? And that's when I put up my hand. And I said, listen, we need this, we need this, we need this, we need this. And um, I wanted to go after Xanth. I wanted to go after Terry Brooks for Shannara. I wanted to go after, um, uh, I, can't, I can't remember them all off the top of my head. And then other people wanted things like Alan Dean Foster. We got, but we never did the game um, based on. Um, and um, Josh Mandel wanted um, Spider Robinson's um, book, um, the... I, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was about a like time traveling bar or something like that. Um, uh, and, and because he was a real fan of it. So, um, but there were the, oh, and, and, um, and Deathgate. I really wanted to go after Margaret Weiss and, and Deathgate. Hey, it's on the screen right now. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I was very adamant um, about who we needed to chase after. And um, at about that time, we had a few more releases we were acquired by Random House. And uh, they acquired us because, hey, here's, here's a company that does adventure games based on literary licenses. And we're a, a book company, and so let's buy them to keep doing that. Uh, so they opened us up to uh, the opportunity to chase after some of these licenses. And they gave me a list. Um, after we had you know, done, uh, I'd done Deathgate, we'd done Xanth and all that, they gave me a list of people that they represented and they said, choose out of one of these. And I looked at it and I said, I hate all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, you know what? Someone just actually gifted me with this book called Eye of the World. And it was the first book of the Wheel of Time series. And I said, I want to do this. And they said, we don't represent him. Um, they, he's with Tor. I said, wouldn't this be a good opportunity to have a chat with him? Maybe he might want to come over to Random House. And they said, that's a good idea. <laughs> and so they, <laughs> they used me as a way to get into his door. Um, and, and that's when we pitched him a, um, all of this, by the way, I've written up all this whole thing uh, on my website, the mysterium.blog and the story behind wheel of time, because it's a, it's a real journey. But we went there and we pitched him with this adventure game based on his world. And he wanted nothing to do with it. Oh my God. And so, and I was like, I had actually designed like a quarter of the game at that point. I'm like, oh, geez, you know, what, what, what am I going to do? He doesn't like anything. Um, but then I pitched him this idea that I kind of had in the back of my mind that was um, Doom meets Magic the Gathering. And he loved that. He thought that was really cool. Um, because I think he thought adventure games were kind of going out. And they were at the time. They were not where you're going to make a lot of money. Um, but he really liked this idea of a first-person shooter, and he thought there was a market there. And so um, at that point, Ra <laughs> Random House said, what? 
that's not what we're paying you to do. Actually, they weren't paying us anything to do it at the time. They didn't have a, they weren't giving us any money. Um, but we're out. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're not doing what we asked you to do. So we're going to, you know, we're just, we're just not going to help you. You know, we'll keep our, our interest in you, but we're just not going to do anything for you. So then we started saying, okay, well, if they're not going to help us, we'll go shopping around. And that's when we went to all of the major publishers out there, including Activision and GT and, and uh, Maxis and EA and, and uh, everybody. I went on a road show with, um, with Wheel of Time in my back pocket showing everybody. And when we pitched to GT, they liked it. They liked it so much that they acquired us. They acquired the company. And thank God, because we needed some money in our pocket to, to make that game. And so that, that whole relationship with GT was its own story. But at least we got to make Wheel of Time. And what, what question was I answering you? <laughs> I don't know. I've forgotten, too, because it's been so fascinating. <laughs> you, you asked if he was... It's basically talking about if, the authors yeah, and, you were and asked building if he was instrumental uh, in, in uh, getting them in, yeah. Yes. So, yes, I was instrumental in... I was instrumental in going after the ones that I really believed in. And, again, like, Xanth was one that I really kind of wanted to work on, but didn't get the chance to. Um, but I think that making Deathgate was better for my career. I learned a lot in that process. And Deathgate was actually the first game that I made that was all me. It was my 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 baby from the beginning to end, and uh, I was really proud of that. Just okay. out of quick. There's one, there's one that was on your LinkedIn too. There's a PS3 game called Rat Race, which you were listed as a design director on, uh, which was described as a game that was story driven, character focused, episodic content. So I'm imagining it would have kept you know putting new updates out constantly. And then Wikipedia mentioned that it had been canceled before release. So I'm just wondering what happened. How far along did the project get along? So it was a really unique situation. Um, the company's name was Super Ego, and I joined because they had they had two groups. One was in San Francisco, and one was in New York. And the people in New York were the artists and the writers. They had stand-up uh, comedy writers on staff. They were really funny. They had some some great uh, great resumes. And then all the engineers were over here in San Francisco. And so I came on as a designer, and I was really their first designer. They had been kind of putting things together. The writers were suggesting things. They kind of thought they knew what they were talking about, but they had never designed a game before. So I came in and I imposed a lot of structure and I created the arcs um, and I created the, 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 um, uh, what the, the, the player was actually doing uh, in the game. Um, and we were a first, party a first party product through Sony uh, for the PS3, but they were not funding the product. They were only, we were just part of their first party, but we were still self-funding and we were being funded through an angel investor. Uh, so we made, I think, four episodes of that game and it was really funny. It was really cute. And I'm so sorry it, it never made it out. But uh, it was just about that time that the subprime market crash hit and our investor just said, nope, got no money for you anymore. And Sony, they were happy to publish us when they didn't have to finance anything. But as soon as we came looking for money, they said, nope, that's not going to happen. So it just died. So it was purely a, an economics money issue. Is absolutely. Yeah, hmm. absolutely. It was a really cute game. I mean, I have no idea if it would have been a hit or anything, but I think it would have found an audience. It was it was fun. I just have a quick question as far as, like, you're, you're dealing with modern games on PCs and, and game consoles. What are people writing in now? Like, what's the language uh, that people are using to develop modern 
video games? Well, it really depends on the platform. Um, I would say that, uh, like, when you're using Unreal, most of it is an Unreal script. And I want to say, I'm going to get myself in trouble here because, I mean, everything starts with C. And it's some version of C okay. um, that people are working with. Um, and... Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to delve further because no, I, that's fine. I'll probably end up seeing okay. the wrong thing. So, some variant of C with a random punctuation mark at the end of it. Yeah, I think C sharp <laughs> actually they're using. Okay. One point. It could be. Sweet C triple plus or something. Um, <laughs> I I actually had to write my my um, final project in C plus plus because and it was an operating system and it was the worst goddamn nightmare <laughs> that I oh I hated it. It was the only thing I ever wrote in C plus plus. I had to learn it just for that. <laughs> yeah. And nobody ever, they, they taught it my year and that was it. Like they didn't teach it after that. They didn't teach it before that. Just for my year. I had to learn C++. Nobody else had to. <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah. That's how I felt. And then um, the last one I wanted to talk about, and I'm like, if anybody else in the panel can you know, have some other questions for you, please feel free to do so. But we'd kind of talked a little bit about Glee, and you were talking about the getting licensing for the Journey song. But you had kind of mentioned on our pre-talk test on Thursday that you know the whole Glee experience was quite interesting in many ways. And I just wondered if you want to kind of go in the background of how that all came to be and what happened. Sure, I, I hope you know, you guys find it interesting. What, uh, what was the Glee for those of us who don't know? What was the Glee uh, project you worked? Right. So I joined a company called uh, K Lab, and they were a Japanese company. I actually still think they are. Um, They still exist, I mean. Uh, And they were making mobile games. And they were making mobile games in an environment where, um, you know, it's a very, very different ecosystem in Japan for these kind of mobile games. Um, Everybody knows, like, these card RPGs. It's just part of their culture. Um, So you say casual card RPG in Japan. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, you know, everybody's going to know what you're talking about. You try to sell a game like that in America and they, what the hell are you asking me to do? Like merge characters and, you know, they, they eat each other and level up or, you know, what, what the hell is going on? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And why do I have, yeah. Anyway. Um, so i I became, I joined the K-Lab America studio. So they had started a very small studio, um, in America and I came on as sort of their producer slash designer. And I developed a game. Uh, I learned a lot about how Japanese monetization works and, and all of that um, from them. Um, and gotcha. Is anybody, are you familiar with gotcha? The, the term, Japanese term? No, I'm not. You will be when I explain it to you. Um, <laughs> so gotcha is like booster packs. So, or it's like a, a gumball machine. So you pay for something and you don't know what you're going to get. You're going to okay. get like, or loot, loot crate maybe. Okay. Is a, yep. a better term. Um, so games that's the, yeah. Lots of games had them. I think they're starting to phase them out now because they're realizing like Japan did how unfair they are. Um, so gotcha in um, Japan was huge in that um, it, they had to regulate them because they were making too much money and people were getting really upset. They have gotcha uh, salons, you know, like, these literally like these, these gumball machines kind of things that are, you know, filled, uh, the walls are lined with them. Um, that's how big it is uh, in Japan. And so that's how they make their money. Uh, you give them uh, a little bit of money in the, in the app, you give them a little bit of money and you get something and you don't know what it's going to be. 
the thing that I liked about it, and I like it in terms of games like, you know, Magic or Hearthstone or, or things like that. I, I actually really like the fact that you're paying for something and you're getting something and it's going to be important for you or good for you somehow, even if it's not the thing that you wanted. Uh, so you get, uh, you know, a card. And even if you can't use the card or it's not good for your deck, you can like use it to, you know, boost another card, make it better. Um, a lot of American games at the time were making you buy things like power-ups. And you'd buy it and you'd use it and maybe you'd get a little bit further in the game, but then it'd be gone. And you'd have that buyer's remorse. Like, if I had just played a little on my own, maybe I could have gotten over it. But now I paid the money and now I'm out the money. I have nothing to show for it. At least with Gotcha, you'd have something. So I made a game called um, Crystal Casters, which was kind of a, a puzzle game. Have you, ever, have you ever heard of Puzzle and Dragons? Probably not. Not me, you know. No. So it was, a, it was huge in Japan um, and even a little bit in the States. They had like festivals, you know, with all the characters dressed up. And uh, it, it, was, it was major. They, I'd done Holiday for, for Puzzle and Dragons. But a lot of people were copying it. And basically it was kind of a a little uh, like a bejeweled um, game, little core game that fed into a, a bigger meta game of the, this collection game where you're getting creatures and you plug those creatures into this bejeweled game and you fight things. You know, it's like a little RPG, but with this puzzle game as, as at its core. Um, and I made a game kind of like that. It wasn't Puzzle and Dragons, but it was my own kind of core puzzle game. And it was really, really well done. It, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was original. It's actually one of the first original games I had made in a long time. No license. So I made it its own little story. If you go to mysterium.blog, there's all the cutscenes from, from that game on there, too. It's, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, and it, it found an audience, but it was never a big hit. After that, uh, they made a game called Love Live. And Love Live was a bunch of little girls singing in competitions. And it's based on an anime in Japan, and it's huge. It is the, the reason that they are able to make money um, is this game called Love Life. And so they said, we need to take this Love Life game and uh, figure out how to make it palatable to the American audience. Because they had, they had done it, um, they had released it, and it had not really done all that well. Um, people were not connecting with it. They didn't know the anime, and the gameplay was, you know, hard. Um, and so what they said was, what's a title that we can attach to this Love Live game, and uh, hopefully it'll connect to people. And they found Glee. Glee is about a bunch of kids who sing in competitions, and it's attached to a lot of really high-profile music. It was, on paper, it was perfect. It was a great, uh, great um, uh, property to attach to this kind of game. And so it became my challenge to figure out, how do I take this Love Live game and meld it with Glee which are not hardcore RPG players and figure out how can I attract those fans into playing this kind of game. And so um, I did that. And I'm actually really proud of the work that I did there. I, I simplified things. I made it so that um, uh, people would understand what, what's happening and no vampirism going on or weird, you know, uh, card maneuvers. And I was able to tell a lot of the story from Glee. I started out, I had no idea. I'd never seen the show. And I was like, what? You know, I, I don't think I'm going to enjoy working on this game. But my rule as a game designer is find something about the property that you're going to love. Because if you don't, the, the people who do love that property are going to smell it from a mile away. If you don't have respect for that property, then they're not going to want to play your game. I've seen plenty of 
licensed games like this that um, you know that that people just wouldn't want to play because they don't respect the license. And so I started watching the show, and immediately there were two things that were really obvious to me. One was the writing; the writing was great and really funny and kind of self-aware. And the second was the music. The music was outstanding. They chose some really powerful songs, um, and so. And the characters were fun, but mostly it was the first two. And so I managed to be able to tell a lot of the story in these little cards, these little story cards that sort of boosted things, but they had little moments from the story. Um, and uh, and the end result was an experience that uh, we, we got a lot of the songs that we wanted. <coughs> we didn't get a lot of songs, and that's, that's a whole other story about song licensing. Um, but the fans really connected with the, the product. And I, I was really happy to see the, the community that grew around that game. Um, a lot of people really felt like we took it seriously. We respected it and we loved it as much as they did. And that was, that was the goal. And again, what question was I answering? <laughs> well, just a story of Glee in general, like oh, okay. how it all got involved and the whole, I, I wasn't aware of the whole history of it being based on, you know, Japanese anime. And then trying to translate that for the North American market. So that's, that's an interesting, interesting take on. And that's one thing I've discovered with some of these other, you know, podcasts from other shows too that you know are European centric or, you know, Japanese centric and North American centric is that the game play that is liked by each region sometimes is violently different from the other ones, and they just kind of shake their heads at stuff we do and vice versa. And there, there's definitely a culture gap between oh, everybody. I had I had more uh, conversations conversations um, with uh, the. Japanese producers about what uh, American culture would um, uh, would appreciate and accept that they did not want to hear. I mean, they forcing people to um, to be as hardcore as Love Live expected their audience to be um, was not the right approach, and it it took battle after battle. Um, there's a lot. I, Maybe I'll I'll just say you know go read the the, uh, the behind the scenes on Glee because I could I could go on forever about <laughs> about all the the craziness between me and Fox and and, and K Lab in Japan. At one point, I don't think anybody was talking to each other. Mm. Not not too much Glee there. You're saying no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. What? I think Curtis has monopolized a lot of the questions here. We do have a few other people on the panel. Before before we wrap up, does anybody else on the panel have any questions for Glenn? Uh, I know there's a few of us here who actually make video games too, like Nick Morentes and Paul Shoemaker. Actually, before we move on, I just yeah. want to mention, Cindy actually is in the audience. Oh, she, is Cindy? She texted me. Yeah, she's here. So, hi, Cindy. Thank you for coming. Cindy is the um, the artist who put this um, this cover together. She's amazing. Um, I, I I love the process. And I love the end result, and I really appreciate her being part of the uh, of this of this whole endeavor. So, thank you, Cindy, for coming, and thank you so much for for the the, the cover. Yeah. Actually, related to that, I do have one other question. I just thought of: is, is the, the the person on the cover is that modeled after somebody in real life? Mm, well, totally yes original? and no. Um, we did find, we looked everywhere for, um, a photo of somebody that was in sort of that position, um, with the right expression. And we ended up finding a stock photo that looks nothing like this. <laughs> okay. So she started with something, but the end result is, is very different from where she started. Yes. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you. Yeah. This is a great artwork. Tell us the line again that you said about a cover, how the cover has to sell the vision. How did that go again? Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of rules for a good cover, but 
Um, the, the one thing that stuck with me is the cover makes a promise that the book needs to fulfill. And, um, and this one definitely does that. And, I, and the reason that I bring that up um, is because there's a lot of ways to go about making a cover for your book in this new ecosystem I find myself in. And one of those is pre-made covers. And those covers can be beautiful. They can be fantastic. I've seen some that, um, you know, are, they can, that hold their own against the best covers you've ever seen. The problem is they don't actually speak to the story. You know, the, those characters that they're showing, you know, maybe maybe if an author buys the cover before they ever write the story, then maybe it does. But even so, there's probably nothing particularly special about it. And I really wanted this cover to tell this story. I wanted um, I, I wanted the, to use the dice to bring the, the reader, the viewer, into the story, to make it as you know, dynamic and as interactive as a cover can be. And you'll never see this cover on any other book. You know, because they won't have that character. They don't want to have that dice. It won't mean anything. But for this book, it does. Yeah, and that's something, actually, I remember, like, the like some of the old Ace science fiction books from the 60s and 70s that I used to buy and read a lot there. I mean, they'd have a cover that had nothing to do with the story at all. Like, it's not even a character that appears in it. It's got a scene that doesn't appear in the book. It's just like, where did you come up with this? Is this just like, it's it's stock paintings or something? You know, somebody found some good Frank Frazetta artwork or something? I don't know. Right. Actually, and now with, you know, everybody and their brother uh, writing a book and releasing it uh, and self-publishing, there's a lot of demand for covers. And so there's a lot of stock imagery out there. And you'll see the same stock imagery on multiple covers. This is something that gets popular and then you'll just see it everywhere. That's good that you were in contact with somebody that you'd worked with before that understood you and how you work and, and come up with something really good for your, your first book. I was just grateful that she had the time and the inclination to, to do it with me. Um, I'm, I couldn't be more pleased with how it ended up. Very cool. Yeah, thank you, Cindy. Um, so anybody left on the panel, uh, anything you'd like to ask Glenn? Nick Morenti is our game designer. Paul Shoemaker, our game designer. Anybody here want to ask him anything? Okay, I think yeah. everybody's so used yeah. to being muted. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, uh, this is Rob, if any games ended up being developed from the GraphExpress project. Hmm. I don't know that any commercial games were developed. Um, I mean, we sold a number of them, and I think people used the environment, but I don't, it was never licensed for a commercial product. Mm-hmm. I think that was actually something I remember I asked you about this a couple of years ago on Facebook because I, I bought in GraphExpress and then the wording to me was a little bit confusing about the whole licensing thing. So I, I wasn't sure, like, could I release something if I, you know, I didn't want to sell it, but I just want to release it as a shareware project or a, a, a public domain or freeware project. And I was confused by the licensing terms, the way it was worded as to whether I'd have to still pay you something just for using the engine type thing. So that, I don't know if that occurred to anybody else, but I remember at the time, I, I wasn't sure I could do something unless I, you know, came up with some brilliant thing that would be able to sell type thing. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, but I actually just saw that Doug Mastin showed. Yeah, up. I just saw that yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, cool! I didn't see that. So, so Doug, um, I don't hold anything against you at all. I'm 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 happy that you laid the groundwork that you did. Um, yeah, at the time it was really rough that, that we couldn't get, we couldn't complete it together. Um, uh, and having Jeff come in, you know, save that project and I appreciate it. But, you know, I, I still am grateful that you started that project and I get that it was your first game and I know how much of a challenge that is. So, 
you know, don't, don't worry. I, I, I appreciate what you did. That's cool. Thanks for being here, Doug. Yeah, we need to get Doug on now. See so where, 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 where you, this, is, this is your life, right? Uh, oh, we planned that, by the way, Greg. Just so you know. So yeah, <laughs> I, glad, I said Greg Glenn because yeah, Richard, Richard, yeah, Richard was saying Richard was saying Glenn in the chat earlier. Uh, Greg, I'm I'm confused. I'm sorry. It's it's late. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for popping by, Doug. And he was also mentioning Doug. that uh, Phantasm was amazing and certainly helped to get the project back on track. Yeah, it was, it was, I don't, I can't imagine have make, making games without it once I started using it. I'm trying to remember Jeremy Spiller, he had his own assembler. I think he made that. He also tried to optimize the living bejesus out of like, like uh, Roland's. It wouldn't surprise me. So Graphics Express was the, I heard about it. I haven't seen it, but this was basically a tool set where you could use all these game engines in basic to do hardware scrolling and background music and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, windowing, right? multi-voice music in the background, all kinds of things, sprites. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And I think somebody recently said they started to use it and they just found that they ran out of memory because the, the memory <laughs> the memory left to basic wasn't that much, you know. So the I cool actually, set, I've, I heard that. Yeah. I mean, it was very powerful, but very demanding. <laughs> uh, I remember the manual even mentioned things like you should preload all your graphics and your and your, your resources and run one program and then chain it to another program to actually run your game because you'd be out of memory by the time you, you got that far. But yeah. <laughs> Did you That's answer good. David Lord's question about would you do it all over again the same way? Well, which part? Coco? Uh, probably everything. Probably everything. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> okay. Another half hour? Okay. I, will, I will tell you one story that, I mean, it could have gone very different for me. Um, well, after leaving college, um, I interviewed at a number of companies that were, uh, they had paid for the, the opportunity to interview sort of the top students at the school. And at the time, I was like one of the top students in the comp sci uh, major. And so I interviewed with like DuPont and, um, and Bell Labs. And Bell Labs at the time, that was a really respectable place to, to start working. And they gave me an offer. And they gave me an offer of um, they were going to send me to grad school. They were going to pay for my grad school. They're going to pay me half salary when I went to grad school. And that was, you know, that was amazing. And I, I remember going off to Washington State and sitting on the beach looking out of the water thinking, I can't do it. I can't write operating systems for the rest of my life. I had just gone through that old C++ fiasco. Uh, there's no way I, I was going to do that for the rest of my life. I'll go insane. And so instead of taking that offer, I decided to sort of jump off the jetty. And um, I just wrote to every company that went to Game Developers Conference that year. And at that point, it was like literally 50 companies. You know, there was a, a one page of, of companies that went there. And I said, can I get a job with you? And uh, one of them wrote back and it was Legend Entertainment and they were on the East Coast, you know, funnily enough, but it was one of the only ones that was, and they gave me an offer. And it wasn't like, you know, the money was uh, less than what um, the Bell was gonna give me, but the opportunity to work on games, I was like, you can actually do this for a living. It's possible. And so I just, I had to, I had to go after, I had to try it and I did it and it, it made everything. It, it established my life and I don't, I would not do it differently because in what other, uh, what other um, uh, profession, I, I mean, there are some, but none that I was going to go after. Could you make these stories up, make these worlds up, make these experiences up and share them with people and get paid for it? 
So I, I count myself as very, very lucky, very blessed for uh, doing the things I've been able to do. Wow. I think that's probably, that's a great way to end the segment on I those agree. words. Those are very poignant words there. That is awesome. That is super awesome. Well, Glenn, we appreciate you being here. We appreciate you being our, our guest today, our very, very special guest, and for giving us almost three hours now wow. of, uh, of content. So um, that's awesome. We, we got a lot more show to do, so we're going to continue to <laughs> filibuster here, and you're welcome to hang out, but you probably have more important things to do with your time, but you're welcome to hang. Um, I can't thank you enough for being here on behalf of all of us who've been a fan of your works for the Cocoa. And I'm looking forward to your book. I'll be going to your blog and, and pre-ordering. I want a hard copy. Um, I would like I would like um, I would like an inscription that says "In loving memory of David Ladd." Um, David hasn't died yet, but I will always all of my all of all of all of my memories about David Ladd are loving memories. So that's going to be the inscription that I would like to have. Uh, <laughs> you, you will do insults too, right, Glenn? You will do insults. <laughs> hey, you know, I'll write anything you want. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Biggest jerk I ever met. <laughs> we'll be happy to write that. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, to, to wind up, um, please uh, check out the, the pre order. If you're interested in the book, please pre order on Amazon. Um, we are, I'm, I, right now, there is a Goodreads giveaway, We're giving away 100 copies, e copies for free. Um, um, it's a, you know, you have to enter for the chance to win one of those hundred copies, but right now there's actually a pretty good chance you could win. So make sure to check that out. And, uh, and yes, uh, go to my blog, mysterium.blog. If you want a physical copy and you want it autographed, the, they will not be available until August 16th. That is launch day. Um, but, uh, hopefully everything will be lined up by then and it'll all go perfectly. Cool. Thank you. And also, uh, when we do get to one of your games, which probably will be within the next month uh, as one of our Game On challenges for the week, uh, we'd love to have your feedback and, you know, kind of a bit of a story about the game, or maybe you can laugh at all of us trying to play it and, you know, tell us how much we suck. I'll and, laugh uh, at my own game. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll laugh at you. Be laughing at you. I'll be laughing at my game. <laughs> but we'll try to get in contact with you. If you have free time to pop in for a few minutes to talk about, that's great. Or even if you just send us an email with some you know, you know, hidden stories in the background or, you know, why you did this certain decision in the game or something. Sure. That is awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Glenn. Um, we are going to take a commercial break and then we're going to be back with everyone's favorite segment of the show. We're talking about, of course, game on the game on segment where we're going to talk about the game of the week. Our star person nick marota will be taking us through that i think we've got a new coco thoughts from samuel geim so all this and more after this break thank you so much glenn dahlgren for being here the new book is called the child of chaos available at amazon and in goodreads all the links are in the description of this video i think we've been posting them in the live chat periodically as well for people to grab onto um, thank you and we'll be back after these words so now Thanks I got to yeah. Thanks Glenn. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. After these messages will be right back. Fletcher, I don't need that report tomorrow. Great JT. I need it tonight. 
But, J.T. Fletcher saved $300 on her office away from the office. Radio Shack's revolutionary Model 100 computer. It's a word processor, phone directory, and dialer. It even communicates with the office computer. Fletcher, how's that report? Fletcher. Radio Shack's Model 100. Save $300 and put it to work. You'll go far, Fletcher. <laughs> You'll go far. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. On holidays, Uncle JT would entertain us with stories of his business conquests and his assistant who would meet any deadline that he imposed, no matter how ridiculous. Well, until she shot him in the face, that is. Hi, this is the award-winning Alan Huffman of Subbeat the Software, and you're watching Stevie Fall Off Cliffs. What's going on, guys? Stevie Stroh here, and I want to say thank you so much for being part of this adventure with us. It's been such a great experience in doing Coco Talk every week, and the support we get is just amazing. And so the fact that you watch and listen is all the reward that we need. However, if you would like to become a patron of the show and offer some financial assistance towards the production and hosting costs of the show, we do have a Patreon site available for that, and you can reach that by going to our website at cocotalk.live and clicking on the Patreon link. But just do us a favor and watch and listen to the show. This is not the Joey Serial Switch. This is the Joey Serial Switch. Control up to three serial devices. Order yours today at CocoMan.biz. Radio Shack, America's technology store. Right. This Christmas, Tandy has a very special offer. A family color computer pack to take away at a very special price. This family computer comes complete with software and costs an incredible $449, a saving of $241.69. It's powerful, educational, and ideal for the young and young at heart. The easy way to start computing. The color computer family pack from Tandy. Get it while it's hot. Tandy, the biggest electronic store in Australia. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tim. Playing Daggereth like that idiot from the book. <laughs> You're watching Coco Talk. World from And now Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. Thank you, yes, you guys, and thank you. Color Pete, Color Pete, fight the insects in Color Pete. Shoot the bug every time. Go and watch your twerk line. Look out, here's the spider again. <laughs> stop, listen, bud. That scorpion is out for blood. Watch the flea overhead. You know it once you get. Hey there, it's that spider again. It attacks in the night, and you know it's a crime. With a beam of light, you kill it just in time. Color beat, color beat, you've got no friends in color beat. 
your health care, they ignore. Billing is their reward to you. The insects all ganged up. The button got all banged up. Caught the spider again. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Samuel Do you think the younger audience would even know what that theme song's from? Everybody knows the We Spider-Man. have a younger audience. <laughs> well, Ben Drake's is kind of younger. Yeah, the younger no. audience are those those 30-year-olds, right? So, so the spider gets man. some well-deserved love in that video. Never mind the centipede. The spider is just the star that's of that. Uh, so for those that don't know, from the original little... Krantz cartoon Spider-Man from the 60s. No. <laughs> that was a here comes the spider again. I we think again. how can we possibly top the last one last week? And no, I think he's uh, he's equaled it at least. <laughs> All I can say is that each week. These productions are worth the copyright strikes I get from YouTube. That's all I gotta say. So, <laughs> it's oh, by worth the way, Ben Drake says he does recognize oh, there it. There we so. go. There we go. Our younger audience gets he's it. He's gonna outgrow the show at some point, though. Like they're getting really, really good. Like, does he realize that? Yeah, he's not gonna need us anymore. For? We're holding him yeah. back at this point. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, so as you saw there from Samuel Gimes, the game this week was Colorpede, a great clone of Centipede. Are you ready for us to roll the results, Nick Marota? I am. All right, here we go. Rolling results. Hello, welcome to the Game on Results for Colorpede. We had 25 scores this week. Our Alan Murphy, 4,107. Catlord, 4,901. David Ladd, 5,014. Mikey, 5,250. Joshua, 8,393. Mark Bosley, 8,951. Tim Halloran, 9,385. The Devil Bunny, 10,428. Ken Reichardt, 12,674. Damon Beals, 15,187. David Croker, 24,321. Adam Tandy Guy, 25,497. OG Stevie Stroh, 31,936. Canadian Retro Things, 42370. Brian Weasler, 55920. Mr. Dave, 6309, 56851. Rogelio Pereira, 61947. Tom C, 66292. Jim Rye, 78640. David O'Connor, 87878. Nice score. Buck Owens, 109471. Frodo, 132024. Me, 134.517. Tasman, 436.591. And the number one score this week was Elkers Boyle with a really impressive 528,630. Thank you so much for all the fantastic sports submissions this week. Game on! Yeah, game on! All right. There we are. Had a great week with a lot of scores. And uh, it was interesting seeing people, the scores were constantly climbing through the week uh, either among different people or among the same person. They were leapfrogging themselves. So yeah, it's, it's cool to see uh, people making progress. I, I have to admit uh, my, my right hand is still sore from that stupid game. I was going to work in Nitrous 9 last night after playing and my hand was so sore I couldn't type very much so I just gave up and went to bed. <laughs> I can relate totally to that. <laughs> so you see my screen? Yes, we do. 
So there's the score from Rainbow. I these are I've obviously not been vetted, so I can't guarantee the ten million ten is accurate. Million points. But, but those that's where Rainbow <laughs> reports anyway. And and how do you get a perfect all zero score? That's exactly that, that's yeah, su- that's suspect. If it was like ten million three hundred and sixty four dollars and twenty two cents, I'd yeah. believe that. But you know, yeah, I'm sensing there was some, uh, especially some... considering Photoshop. You know, stamping wasn't invented yet. So. Yeah, ten million. <laughs> Something is amiss here. And then there's the review the for Color Pete. It got uh, good reviews. Uh, and this was one of the more pricey titles, apparently, at thirty four ninety five on disc. Wow! But uh, but well worth with the rising with the co- rising cost of entertainment. It was well. Worth Look at the, this here. It says games for the eighty C. That yeah, is a really that dated. Of, that's a dated reference. There was a big uh, argument back in the eighty one eighty two era between whether to call it the eighty C or the Coco. A guy, Dave Lagerquist from Chromoset, is the one who came up with the name Coco in this Chromoset cassette-based magazine. But a lot of other people said that sounds, you know, childish, and we want something, you know, manly-sounding type thing. So the ADC was popular, and it, it, it was a battle for about six to eight months in the magazines, not just in Rainbow, but in, in some of the other magazines, too, as to what to call it. And I think, if I remember correctly, Wayne Green, who eventually published Hot Coco was doing 80 microtime. He much preferred EC because he was used to the tier city model one, two, three, four. He's used to these types of names. But even he eventually caved in because, of course, when they came out with their own Coco ma- magazine the year after, they called it Hot Coco. Right. But, uh, yeah. That was, I remember the, the the letters pages were filled with people arguing back and forth of this. <laughs> less months. filling, tastes great. Less filling, tastes great. Oh, wow. And but nostalgia too. Um, Color Pete itself was the very first game that Intercolor per, put out, and the the advertisements even said engineer designed. You know, because the person that was actually a, a, a fully blown engineer, he wasn't just you know the a kid in the basement type thing. So that was part of their advertising campaign. And of course, um. they came out with Robotech not too long afterwards. And of course, Colorpeed brought us um, the game we played a few weeks ago, uh, Candy Company, as well. It was one of their original games. So, yeah, and Willie's Warehouse. They did. They did a, they did a bunch. Uh, Grand Prix Whiplash. Uh, Grand Prix game. Now, what is this hogwash you're showing us now? Yeah, just I, I found this loser with a bunch of videos online playing Coco games. And, mm. um, so I thought. It was... <laughs> so I mean, I was going to say that looks like Steve Stroh, but it can't because he's got you know dark hair. Yeah, yeah well, it's a very young, dashing Stevie Stowe, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, what do you guys think of the game? I mean, this was... I, I loved it. It was addictive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I haven't really played it much since I got my Coco, but I played it a lot this week, obviously, and it uh, and it just reignited my love for this game, how uh, how perfect it is as a, as a uh, clone of Centipede. Yeah. Yeah, this, I mean... Go ahead. This had to be an Australian game. All the insects are trying to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and the spider's the one that always got you. <laughs> That's about accurate over here, too. It was yeah, definitely the most accurate one, I have to say. I mean, there was a lot of competitors. Even other color pe- or centipede clones were out before. I think the closest, uh, as far as gameplay to the arcade, besides Colorpede, would have been Caterpillar by Aardvark, which uh, you know had all the elements of Scorpion and everything else too, and played quite close. But the sound was very, very minimal. And Dave Betson admitted he didn't know how to program sounds. So he basically just duplicated the sound command from Basic. But there was also like Caterpillar Attack from uh, Tom Mix, which had pretty good sound effects. Had gunshot sounds and yeah. stuff like that. But you could only move up and down in one spot. And yeah, 
I didn't have the scorpion or the poison mushroom, so I was missing a lot of the gameplay elements. That was, actually, was definitely the cream of the That cup. was the first game I got from my Coco was Caterpillar Attack on cassette. Somebody actually said, hey, I got this. I can make you a copy of this tape. I'm like, oh, wow, this is awesome. So I got like a, <laughs> a game on tape, and it was Tom Mix Caterpillar Attack, and I can't tell you. Um, how you know how many times I played that game? I think when we were playing this game this week, when we were chatting on Discord, somebody mentioned I think it was Mark Bosley where you could get a segment stuck even in this game. Now it was notorious in Caterpillar Attack where you could get a caterpillar head stuck between mushrooms and it wouldn't yep. move, and until you killed it, you were stuck too. The game would just wait, right? But on this one, very rarely. But I, I remember seeing a segment getting stuck, but then the game would just flip levels anyways. Did that happen so. to somebody playing? It online happened twice this week? to me during my my gameplay in that one yeah, I game. I heard about that. When you say getting stuck, what do you mean? Like it would just because it got stuck between a mushroom, like it got stuck between a mushroom and the wall, and it wouldn't move. Oh, and yeah, then if right, it was right, like right. the last, yeah, the head would just be stuck there, and you you could still shoot it and still get points for it. But like Stevie mentioned in in Color Pete, it actually lets you go to the next level if that was the last head segment going around. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That was another thing this one did that most, I think, I don't think any of the other Coco clones did actually, where they actually changed the color of the mushrooms. Now, yeah. obviously, their cake game had a lot more colors to go through, but this actually went between red and blue mushrooms. Yeah. That was a nice feature. That was, yeah, was one nice thing I liked about Centipede. And one of the things I always missed in Coco games, even like uh, uh, Missile Command did it too, where the game never changed. But the, in, in order to kind of track the progression of your game they at least mixed up the colors and mixed up the background colors. so what you were doing never changed what it looked like never changed but as the more you played you got variations on your foreground and background colors and that was at least something that was something you could look forward to like oh what's the next color set going to look like you know as a player i like seeing what the next palette choice would be and and that was so rare to get that in Coco games. So this one, the fact that altered, yeah, we had our choice of red and blue, right? So and this used both of them. Um, and I've and Polaris does a really good job too of taking the four you know, four ver- the, the two sets of four colors and mixing them up so much to kind of simulate that diversity. You know? Yeah, we even got to the point of nicknaming like this is the night level of Polaris because it's got a dark blue sky. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um. So the big scoring opportunities obviously are when the uh, mushrooms go poisonous and the caterpillar comes straight down at centipede comes at you straight down and you shoot it in the head because each head is worth a hundred points as opposed That's to the really ten. Yeah, now somebody mentioned and I didn't get to verify this, but somebody had thought that in the arcade version, if you shot the head, the centipede would resume its normal side to side trajectory. But I wasn't able to verify that. Uh, but I, I thought, and I thought the arcade was the same as the Coco, where we just keep coming down and get a bunch of points. But I really I liked it when it when it would come down in one spot, and then straight after you shot, if you stay underneath it and you shoot them all before they get down, then another one would come in the exact same spot, and that yes. happened a number of times. And you could just get massive amounts of points when that happened. Yeah. Well, Color P does does try to adjust that a bit. It'll let you that happen like about three times in a row, and then it'll move where the Color P comes on, so it hits a different trajectory. So you'd have to adjust. And move back and forth. Like I couldn't, you couldn't sit there with just one line coming over and over and over until the poison mushrooms yeah, gone. Yeah, It eventually yeah. switch it up on you. Yeah. And then when well, they, they did do that, it, and they come okay. down to the bottom. They would go back up again. They wouldn't keep on coming down to the bottom, so they wouldn't. They wouldn't kill you if they if they got down to that low level. And it was a really good opportunity just to shoot as many of them as you possibly could without having to worry about getting killed by them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because once it hits the poison mushroom, it comes down. And then it'll work its way back up the quarter of the screen, like basically where the mushrooms have to be for the fleet to come out. But if you take too long, then you get little head segments coming in off the sides, and they come down at you right at that point. They don't 
yeah. you know, snake the way up. So you, you get a head segment for every segment that's in your quarter screen, I believe. Yeah. And then when that happens, and all of a sudden the spider comes in again and, and you forget about the spider and he comes and nabs you. <laughs> it's like, oh, that damn spider. <laughs> and and the, flea, the flea mechanic in here is very similar to the arcade because basically the, the game checks to see how many mushrooms do you have in the bottom, roughly a quarter of the screen. And if it gets below a certain level, then it starts firing fleas to refill that in. So if you end up shooting all those mushrooms away, the fleas will just keep coming out. But if you keep a certain number of mushrooms on that bottom quarter, then the flea won't come out as often. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know the logic behind the flea. I just thought it was something it just did to, just just because. I didn't realize. It no, was even a the arcade game it. did that same mechanic. Basically, people used to come up with patterns where you'd build certain mushrooms at one side of the screen on the bottom, so you wouldn't get the flea to constantly come out, and then you'd free up the rest of the game space on the bottom for you to move. If you're still on the video, this is Marin Lee playing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Marlin Lee. Cool. Yeah, I got no, a chance it's to very play. Good clone, yeah, very I played good once or twice this week and uh, definitely enjoyed playing it again. And there, this kind of reminds me of like with uh, Galagon. There's a certain games that are they they have somehow just captured the DNA and the heart and soul of the arcade experience so well. It really makes you wonder how the hell were they able to do that? You know, it, you, you, we can only guess to some. We just had Some a game point. designer on. We should have asked him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, you go down to the crossroads, and uh... <laughs> right, right. But in we, Georgia, we have we have heard stories of them just like looking over the shoulders of other players to watch the game forever, just to see what happens as the game progresses and taking lots of notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One nice thing about Color P too is that he tried to do it because we, of course, we didn't have sound hardware. Like the original arcade game had that whole you know thing in the background and that thumping noise, yeah, which the, I think was meant to represent the steps. And he did attempt that. There's that little dun 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 in the background as you're yeah, playing, you even on this one. Just good job for considering the yeah, yeah. sound capabilities of Coco. Did a good job for sound. Yeah, I would love to see a Coco Three Centipede clone. That could use. I think that could palace. actually be a transcode because the original is written on a six five zero two with a pokey yeah. chip. Mm-hmm. That that is definitely within the technical realm of plausibility. You could do an exact clone, right? And then we could you know have some actual palleting going on, and um, maybe a little bit of background samples. Uh, it would be kind of neat. I tried playing it on, on both my co- one of my Coco threes and the Coco one, and uh, I played on the Coco three on my the one in the background I've got here, the model four Coco three. And because I didn't have the joystick ports sorted out yet, I had to play it on the keyboard. Um, and then when I switched over to the Coco One and started playing it on with a deluxe joystick, I found the deluxe joystick so much better when you had fast things happening. You could get out of the way of things a lot quicker. Yeah. I tried it on an actual trackball, too, because in the arcade it used a trackball. And I've got that big Wyco trackball that Brian Weasler sent me. But that thing is literally using, like, a pool cue ball. So the ball is really heavy. You've got to, like, swipe that thing, like, 14 times to move over, like, four mushrooms. So it's not responsive for the game. But I did try it. I thought it would be kind of cool to play Centipede with a trackball. But I was like, nah, it wasn't happening. So (laughs) Maybe it's the way the code read the input. Maybe it wasn't optimized for a trackball. And it's also the way the Wyco trackball worked. It's more meant as a precision device. Not a quick move to the side. Yeah. yeah. When, when they yeah, did the Microsoft like... mouse drivers for Nitrous 9 on the serial port, like the Microsoft mice, yeah. they had to do the same thing. They called it a ballistic response. If you move at a certain speed, you don't just move as many pixels as the thing registered. You you know, scale it up geometrically. So if I move at this speed, well, I'm going to move four pixels for every one the actual controller's moved. 
And if you do a slower one, well, then you do one-to-one. So you kind of adjust the speed that way. And color P would have to be reprogrammed to take that into consideration for the Waco. Mm. Yeah, because the Waco was like a cue ball yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't make it go fast. Of course, I guess our mouse had a pinball in it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, pinball, cue ball, take your pick, right? So. Um, <laughs> they were deadly weapons no matter which one. You yeah, pick. exactly. <laughs> As far as uh, strategies, obviously, wait for the once once you have the scorpion coming up, poisoning the mushrooms. You wait for the lines, and then you can just you know, peg them all off in a row. One mm-hmm. nice thing about that too is if you if you figured out the patterns, as David was mentioning, where they come down the same line for a few in a row, you can pretty well ignore the spider at that point because if you let the um, the mushrooms stay after you shoot them all, and the the next one comes down, and you hold down the button for rapid fire because you have mushrooms right near the bottom where you just killed off the previous centipede. Your rapid fire is so fast that if the spider tries to come at you from above, you'll shoot it before it ever gets a chance to hit you. Like I found yeah, I almost yeah. never got hit by the spider during those circumstances. It was when there was no poison mushrooms. I had more of a trouble trying to gauge where it was going. And occasionally the spider does that thing where it bounces on the bottom, only like the first three squares up and down and a zigzag going all the way across. Those were tougher. You had to run around them. Yeah. Yeah. That's I got done by that so many times. Very cool. So in our little, uh, our little, uh, um, test we did yesterday <laughs> and we were all talking about various things and I was playing along in the background and, and the game challenge closed and I kept playing because it was addictive <laughs> yeah. every couple of minutes it'd be like oh that damn spider <laughs> that's right <laughs> so yeah so it was a, we had a great turnout again uh, and over 20 scores again which I'm really happy about and uh, no, good choice good game Curtis came in with the five hundred thousand at the end, which I thought was. Really now was that, and that was that just like five minutes before supper again too? Was that? Uh... No, I, I played it about <laughs> four times, and I was getting scores like less than ten thousand because I hadn't played the game in so long. I kind of forgot all the tricks. I forgot after to I make... got back into the flow. Then my game lasted. I don't know it was about an hour and a half, and my hand was so damn sore after that. I was going to say, I forgot to make an injury list. We had Tasman and Curtis <laughs> on the uh, injured players list. Cocoa Talk <laughs> does uh, does not provide any type of workers' compensation, so uh. <laughs> we're not 15 anymore. We can't do this. Today. And the worst thing is, it's not even from like hitting the fire button like on some games. This has rapid fire. This is just from like just twisting around all the time yeah. trying to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel my my right hand and my left hand. You know, the the button hand and the the, the, the joystick hand both were, were cramping up afterwards. <laughs> yeah, my left and hand, my left hand, which I held the button down, actually wasn't too bad. It was the Actually, no, wait a sec. No, I used my right hand for the button and the joystick for the most part. Well, yeah, but basically my right hand is the one that was really – it's still having problems today. Left, left <laughs> hand's recovered. did support keyboard. Did anybody use the keyboard? Yeah, yeah we had some people demonstrate with, it. Yeah. I didn't even know it supported the keyboard until uh, somebody mentioned and it. And some people think it plays better that way. I Personally, I prefer the joystick, but that's what I grew up you know, doing it back in the day, so I was just more used yeah. to it, I guess, but – yeah, I'd, like, like I said, I found the joystick much better when things got fast and you could get out of the way when you needed to. So with the keyboard, you were limited to the speed that it repeated when you pressed now, the Now, how about Deluxe versus uh, Black Beauty? What's the scope on that? I only, Black Black, yeah, I, only used, I only used the Black Beauty and I liked it. I just can't get on with that button on the Deluxe. I don't like the button on it. Further. If I still had my old sawed-off shotgun Black Beauty, the one with the old metal stick you unscrew and then I broke the screw end off so it was just flat and didn't like puncture my thumb. I would have preferred that because that's how I played <laughs> oh, yeah. it back in the day. That would have been it was cool, perfect. Right? It was like a thumb stick on a modern machine except, you know, an actual full-blown analog Coco joystick. I played with a Deluxe in this case in free float mode. 
What about uh, virtual reality? Would this be a good Ben Drake's? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Frodo uh, in the chat there says he played with the keyboard and he preferred the keyboard. I heard mm-hmm. that from a couple people, actually. Yeah. Yeah, okay. When I first started playing with the keyboard, I didn't know what the fire thing was. and I tried every combination. I didn't think of shift. And then <laughs> and I, I can't remember why, but I hit the shift button for some reason. It's like, oh, that's the fire button. So uh, That's a load of shift. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. and it has a pause key which is nice because I did need that once yeah space bar mm. yeah I needed it once too I actually got a knock on the door and I had to go and do something and I was in the middle of a really good game yeah it was good times good game yeah good game uh, good does, any, does anybody have anything else they want to add on the color peed experience they had this past week or do you think we've we've beat it well enough anyone anyone I'm good. Uh, Nick yeah. Marota, would you like to inform us all what game we'll be playing for next week's challenge? I know you're all in huge suspense for next week's the game. The suspense is killing it, me. Next week's game, if I can get rid of this menu, will be... Dun, dun, Color, Color Scripts! Yes! Oh! It's a top I 10 title I've ever game. heard one. I love <laughs> I this work game. work on my 1982 bird report. <laughs> oh, man. What did I do on my summer vacation? Highest words per minute wins. I, I, you'll, go, you'll go far, Fletcher. I've, I have watched all the long plays and walkthroughs of this game. It, it's yes. incredible. It's amazing. It's fantastic. I know, I know this game better than all of the other reports. <laughs> And the ending always changes. <laughs> I was right this up this there game was castle. a real challenge with 4K, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> okay, you guys know next week's game is Bomb Threat. Ooh, Bomb Threat. So again, for those of you who don't know, this is a commercial game. And so if you don't have a copy, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to play But uh, we had a lot of people who ordered the game on... Uh, cartridge and or cd over the last couple weeks so now you can pull them out plug them in and have some fun yeah and we if you're just tuning in today saying wait a second i can't play we promoted this four weeks ago so we gave everyone like four weeks to order your digital copy your virtual copy or your you know or your physical cartridge which was just released recently by neil blanchard and i have my yellow cartridge which looks fabulous re-released actually because i did sell it in cartridge format a couple years ago too so. Unfortunately, for those of us in Australia, it wasn't an option because it's at the moment with all the craziness with deliveries over the world, it's at least eight weeks wait before we get anything mm. from the states to here. Well, nobody. So. I thought somebody from Australia did order the uh, cartridge from Neil Blanchard. Yeah, I could be wrong. Well, I'd su- be surprised if they got it in time. I've, I've I've had a number of deliveries here from the states that I've had. In the, the quickest okay. one this year has been eight weeks. All we'd have to do is put it on a boomerang and throw it to you. Yeah, that'd be quicker. Yeah. Then it would just come back, though. Absolutely. <laughs> it depends how you throw it. Okay. Uh, so that's our it's game next week. The, yes, bomb threat. It is excellent, excellent, and, uh, excellent. So anytime you can start. And thanks again, guys, for another fantastic week of fun and uh, gaming. Fun and gaming. That was a good one. That was good really good times were had by all. I believe. And I believe I'm not alone on this, but I believe Coco Thoughts deserves another play right now. I believe we need Absolutely. to have an encore I presentation of, of this week's Coco Thoughts. So, for your listening yeah, yeah. and viewing pleasure to wrap up the whole Color Pete experience, enjoy this week's Coco Thoughts for the second time. 
And hey. now, Coco Thoughts. Cheering. Not sharing. By Samuel Gimes. Not uh, hearing, Stevie. I'm not hearing it. Oh, here we go. Color feed, color feed. Fight the insects <laughs> in color feed. Shoot the bug every time. Go and watch your sport climb. Look out, here's the spider again. Will it stop? Listen, bud. That scorpion is out for blood. Watch the flea overhead. You know it once you get. Hey there, it's that spider again. It attacks in the night, and you know it's a crime. With a beam of light, you kill it just in time. Color beat, color beat. You've got no friends in color beat. Your health care, they ignore. Killing is their reward to you. The insects all ganged up. The button got all banged up. Got the spider again. Oh, that's, oh, that's so awesome. And don't we're gonna have to have a no better. We're gonna have to have a top forty of Coco Thoughts soon. We can, we can, we can actually do that between Coco Thoughts and a few other things now. We can have we get to have the American American all we gotta do now is just resurrect Casey Kasem. And, yeah. um, and there we go. <laughs> Our own album. Yes. We'll get yes. somebody to we'll get somebody who does a good uh, impersonation. Okay, and, and I didn't get a chance to really properly say hi to Tim Holleran. Thanks for being here, Tim. We hey. we have shown off some of your videos. You've done some interesting things. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you you, you did one of yours was a Coco keyboard cleanup, right? Yeah. And then you're now working on the um, the USB power source, so we've shown off some of your videos. So um, thanks for what you're doing. And thanks for being here. And if you have time to hang out and you're still awake, we'd like to hear about what you got going on. And, and that way we can hear firsthand so we don't have to sit here and guess, well, does he doing this? And does he have a, a diode into his doohickey and his dipole and his triangulation and all that <laughs> kind of stuff? We can just figure out what the heck you're doing and not guess at it. Um, sure. So you got yeah. time to hang? I do. Um, so just let me know when you want to chat about it. Yep, yep. So I don't know how much news we have. Do, do we maybe want to hear from Tim before we get into news? Or what do you think, Curtis? Do you want to do projects and updates first, and then we can just do news, and then you guys can just tell me when to cut it off? Well, we have some game on news. There's too, lots right? of news. There's okay. 30 plus stories. All so. right. So how about we'll do we'll do updates and acquisitions. And we'll start with Tim first because because he's, he's new to the show. Um, and then we'll do game on news. And then and then we'll cover some cocoa news until we all just to fall clean asleep. it up a little bit. Yeah, but we won't get into all of those. Well, because yeah. we're, we're already at three and a half hours, and yeah, uh, yeah. I'll be brief. Um, I, I wanted to show off. Uh, I kind of moved on. I don't know if the camera will catch this, but uh, I have a permanent cocoa two converted. I'll try to center it here to USB power, completely working. Okay. Uh, this is a pretty aggressive mod. Uh, you have to remove the. Uh, the Q1 uh, transistor, um, but I talk, Discord's great. The server you guys run um, is wonderful, and lots of folks helped me. Uh, the salt chip's a little bit of a mystery, but if you realize that you can look at the Coco One schematics, and uh, and there's lots of folks who are pretty knowledgeable, gave a lot of help. But this computer completely works. Um, you use a little cord to plug into the back. I'll see if I can capture that. Yeah. Um, Disconnected power, and then of course your USB power goes right into a power strip, and you could not tell the difference uh, between this and, a, and another one, other than 
It's extremely cool. The hottest thing <laughs> there is a is the CPU. Uh, the entire, you know, uh, left hand side of the computer is just cold. Um, runs for hundreds of hours and uh, really, really, um, you know, just plug it into a power strip and it works great. Um, so making some progress. Uh, and um, please reach out to me. I'm trying to recruit some hardware savvy folks to try this out. So if folks are interested on Discord or Facebook, please reach out to me and I'll get you info on how to how to try this out. Oh, cool. And then I was thinking about something, too, because we were commenting on, on one of your videos, and I made a statement, and hopefully I didn't sound like a douche when I said it, but I made I made a statement of something like, you know, this isn't new to, to use USB to power 8-bit systems. And I wasn't saying that to demean or belittle what you were doing. I was just saying that as a kind of a matter of fact. So hopefully you didn't think I was poo-pooing your project oh, or anything like that. No, you know? you're, you're exactly right. I think I chatted you. I started because I was interested in doing it on this. I'm, I'm mostly a Z80 collector, as you uh -huh. can probably guess by looking around um, uh -huh. these are not like david's cool coco conversion these are all <laughs> um, but the model one's really hard um but my my motivation was actually the atari 800 um which comes with a brick the size of a real brick yeah and you can simply <laughs> wire this up to a USB A. like cut the cord off take two wires and wire up and plug it into the atari and it completely works better than it ever did it's, it's amazing and i think most of the other communities have this so trying to get a challenge where um you know none of these transformers and other parts are getting any younger but having an option to pull this out um and be able to use usb seems like a great thing in the in the candy both the z80 and and the coco uh, absolutely the, because those there, there's a few things that are not going to be over-the-counter just replaceable parts like we can get some of the chips we can get capacitors but certain things like power supplies and custom chips are going to be harder to replace. So to have a source for an alternative is is great. Yeah, and um, you know, I took out the transistor, the Q1, but uh, you could also do this by bending salt pins. But salts are rare and not replaceable. Right, so right. That seemed like a terrible way to go. This this little power transistor, you can get these for ten bucks or less somewhere and put a new one in if you wanted to undo everything um but that is this is a huge source of heat in a cocoa this thing yeah, yeah. oh there, there is somebody okay. else that actually is working on doing a replacement for the salt chip that's I've seen terry, video. Trapp, terry trapp yeah oh, by the way retro innovations wants to know jim brain wants to know how to get a hold of you he does cocoa hardware stuff too uh, discord or um discord or facebook what is your name Tyler. what is your name on discord uh Tim Halloran, I think. Tim Halloran. He's on, he's on yeah. our Discord server, Jim. And so he's yeah. on Discord yeah, and he's on Halloran. Facebook. It'd be interesting to uh, work on an extension of that to make it work with the Coco One. Of course, a Coco One power supply is more difficult because you've got plus 12 volt rails and things that are not native 5 volts. So you'd have to have DC to DC converters and things like that. But, could it, but it could be quite easily done. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I haven't tried that. I have a couple Coco ones. One of them works. The other one doesn't. That You might also remember yeah. I posted that I melted the keys on one of my Coco ones doing a retro writing experiment. <laughs> Some of you may recall that a few months ago, and I still have not replaced that keyboard. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it's definitely doable. I think this mod would work on a Coco 3. I'm just starting to look, um, I think, mostly as is. It would work just fine. It's very cool. 
Yeah, I'm trying to find him. He's in. He's in. Uh, he's in Discord, Jim. I'm trying to find yeah. his handle for you. Tim, it's Tim Halloran, or I can. Yeah, Tim. Tim uh, Harry, I found you. I found you. Well, it's Tim. Tim Halloran, right? So I don't know what yeah. your actual number is on there, but Jim, he's in there as Tim Halloran. Halloran. So if you search for him in Discord, I'll put that in the chat, Jim. Thanks. He's three posts back in the Coco Talk lobby. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just did a yeah, search. I was to find out. Yeah. I thought that, I was actually joining the chat, but it was it's kinda of like being backstage at a Met Gala here. This is really amazing. So the things you guys do awesome. Yeah, well listen, I, we like we like seeing people doing projects for the Coco and especially doing things that are different a little bit outside of the box. Um okay. it's definitely pretty Literally. cool. Yeah, outside of the box. Yeah, literally, right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's um, Terry Trapp is working on a salt replacement. I think he's calling it Mr. Dash or something like that. So he's got a handful of videos that he's been doing to figure that out and doing doing the schematics and stuff. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, he had Actually, this is... Staff. He helped a lot. Um, okay. The salt is very tricky to guess. And once he wrapped this... his head around what I was doing, it was he was very helpful. There's something that uh, we may be able to. I'll, I'll uh, contact you on Discord too, Terry, because um, I'm um, planning a uh, um, a uh, what do you call it? A reboot switch on uh, for Coco One, Two, and Three that basically leaves the power supply running but disconnects the rest of the circuit um, for you know for half a second or something, and does a cold boot without having to power cycle the power supply. So we may be able to incorporate our projects together and make one that does the lot. Sure, yeah. And with the USB mod, you could just put up, up like, instant, you know, a, a contact switch, just like the reboot in the in the powertrain, you'll probably be fine. Um, otherwise, yeah, yep. it'd be, you'd have to be careful about all the, the bounce, the, the DC bounce. Um, but I, I think it, as long as you kept it off long enough, it would probably be okay. Cool? Yeah, so, and the, yeah, the whole thing of uh, making sure you don't get any um, spikes when you connect the power rails back up when they're we're fully powered, that's, that's something that's really important to a project like this. So I'm designing a soft start um, reboot thing that, that'll, that'll do it softly so it won't put any extra stress on the, on the components. And the whole point of that is, like you were saying there, the power supply components are not getting any younger. Um, exactly. And, and the, the less stress that we can put on them, the longer they're going to last. Yeah, and I, and I do think the heat is is pretty bad. I started the project because my Coco two just ran so hot. It, it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that was how it was supposed to work. Many people have told me that's how it behaves, but it was unbelievably hot. Um, and one of the last mods I did when I went permanent was actually wiring it into the power switch prior power switch prior to that. And now it works like a regular Coco. You used to just shove it in the <laughs> plug it into the power strip, and the computer came on. <laughs> You, yep. do, you yep. don't have a can of you don't have a can of Freon just laying around because Rick Adams used Freon quite frequently yeah, back during the. No need for that. <laughs> <laughs> it runs totally cool. Uh, as a matter of fact, with my Coco Three, when I use it for like Game On Challenge or something, it surprises me. Like I'm like the heat coming off. It's fine. But um, this week was fun because this game ran on a Coco Two, so I got my uh, 19th place using the USB powered machine. That's awesome. Fun. Yeah, awesome. Cool. What, what? I will mention too. You're mentioning like the hottest part of your 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 cocoa now is the six eight nine chip, right? Yes. Absolutely. Replace of the six three nine takes one tenth the power draw. So. Yeah. Mm. If you put a six and I have swapped it back and forth in the cocoa too. I, I have a couple chips. Um, it, it much cooler. Yeah. And then you, you probably wouldn't be able to tell anything. You know, interestingly, 
um, on mine, I have like, I, of course, when I started with the Cocoa, I didn't know what I was doing, so I bought like a 16K non-extended basic, and uh, it, and this little adapter to the uh, the ROM to do its, you know, extended color basic is also, you know, slightly warm. I mean, nothing bad, but it's the that and the CPU are the two warmest chips on the on the board. Um, so if you had a real one, it might be might be better. I don't know how that works. Yeah. What's your background, Tim? What I mean, you 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 say you're a, Z, a Z80 guy. Like, what was your first yeah, computer? Um, and yeah, I, I'm a I'm a programmer. Um, I, I worked in the software industry, mostly programmer. I got into the Z80. I thought it was cool. Um, never had ones in the day because, of course, never afforded them. I grew up, interestingly, background wise, I grew up in a town where digital equipment manufactured the VT100 terminal, which is, of course, world famous at this point. Um, and we had lots of digital computers, but very little things. So I got into the Z80 and I've been in it for many years and I write a lot of software. But in the Z80 Tandys, you have to learn hardware. You just won't have working machines. Um, it, the, the Cocoa world is really cool because you can buy a machine and it 90% of the time works. In the Z80 world, it's 90% of the time it doesn't work. And see if you get it working, sometimes it just stops working for no no reason. Yeah, a lot more complexity in them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, mm. and then of course, if you get into the big candies, I spent a year and a half restoring a Model Two, and uh, it, those are even worse. But the uh, you know Model One, Model Three, and Model Four are still you know much harder to keep them just running compared to a the average Cocoa, where you just get one and plug it in, and ninety percent of the time it works. Uh, great little mm. machines. Have you come to any functions like Tandy Assembly or any of the vintage computing festivals or anything in the past few years? Uh, the last two years I've been at Tandy Assembly, I presented. Um, I did a hardware mod to a Model 1. Uh, it was interesting. Your, your, uh, Glenn talked about not realizing about uh, you know drawing during D-blank and uh, you know to not get flicker in the game. And um, myself and George Phillips came up with a mod for a Model 1 to allow a programmer to detect V-blank in a Model 1 um, with no chips, just three wires, and wrote some software and demoed it at, at Tandy Assembly. Most folks didn't understand it at all, but a few of the big five game developers saw it and were like, wow, we wish we had this. <laughs> <laughs> I believe the MC-10 has the same issue, too, where you can't fully detect when the V-sync's happening, even though it has yeah. a timer chip built into the CPU. Yep. Don't, don't talk about my MC10 like that, Curtis. They didn't think of soft, you know, the software being able to see that in the Model 1. Um, and uh, the Model 3 and 4, you can do it, but um, not in the Model 1. Funny, I, my, my introduction to, uh, com, to computers, to programming, was actually on the Z80 as well. It started off with a uh, Dick Smith System 80, which was a, 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 a Model 1 clone, and the Micro-B, which is also a Z80. So, uh, you know, she, you know, switched over to the Cocoa and never went back. Yeah, those are great systems. Of course, we have Ian Maverick in the Z80 world, and he's yeah. in Australia, and it's, uh, you know, um, a Tesla has a great website on the Dick Smith system 80, um, I think it's Terry Stewart, um, is his real name, but great website if anyone's interested. Uh, yeah, Dick Smith System 80 is a great clone of the Model yeah. 1.
So good luck with that, right? Things up and get inside. It's probably turning into DC somewhere. Yeah, I, th I think somebody. I, I, know, I know enough to be dangerous about that, but I think part of it's for the serial ports. Why they need the AC or something like that? I don't know. Um, that's cool. Well, and listen, we're glad to have you, Tim. Let, let's get you on again. Let's, you know, the door is open, so you can join us again. I'd like to have you on and talk more about it. Feel free to hang out. Um, I just kind of want to be cognizant of the show time. We're getting close on the four-hour mark, so I have a feeling we're going to get through updates and maybe call it a show for now. So maybe a, maybe an after show is in order to get into game on news and some bomb threat and things like that. Um, so projects, updates, and acquisitions as we go around the room. Who else has got something they want to talk about? Something they worked on this week? Something they're working on, thinking about? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? 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 <laughs> Nobody? Nobody's got it. Brian Weezer, you have to have bought something this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you want have one a book for keep sure, the Brian. Keep economy you going. Yeah. Yes, I wouldn't want to disappoint my fans, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gotta, uh, I'll just make this a book week, I guess, then, so... Um, one that, um, uh, uh, Grant Leedy had mentioned, uh, does Grant, does Grant read? I didn't know Grant read. <laughs> uh, well, he just yeah, looks at the pictures. <laughs> he just looked at the pictures. <laughs> there was a book called, uh, yeah, it can be surprising. It's called Tandy's money machine. It's about huh. Charles Tandy. The guy okay. who kind of got the whole game started. So it was, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of interesting and, uh, nothing. I mean, it's just a book about, about Tandy and, Getting it all going. Chapter 23 is actually about, I think it was 23. Let me look here again. Sorry. Uh, chapter Game. 20, where is it at? 26 is on the birth of the TRS-80. Oh, wow. So, but uh, I thought I, just, I was able to pick it up. It's only 99 cents I picked it up for. So it wasn't, uh, wasn't it? but it was kind of interesting little find. It's a when hardcover book. When did they write that book? When did they write this book? I thought they Grant only. This. I thought Grant was in the Oprah Book Club. Um, <laughs> Nineteen ninety-two. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, hmm. um, and What's then another book here. What, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna. I was just curious. What that keyboard is beside you there? Oh, oh! Don't get too excited there. That's a twenty-dollar <laughs> uh, uh, Goodwill find that I'm just using to pipe MIDI songs to. So. Uh, nothing uh, nothing yeah, too yeah. fancy, just a, a <laughs> an old uh, Radio Shack one, realistic one. So, oh, for twenty bucks oh, cool. for twenty bucks, yeah. But uh, so I'm trying to get the uh, the Coco MIDI working with that, and uh, I'm just going to use that to as, to play my music through. So, I don't know how, how to play music. I can do chopsticks, and that's about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, another one here that doesn't seem to be too common. It's called the uh, the working TRS-80. Yeah, that one I'd never seen before you posted the pictures on Facebook. Well, according to Tim Holleran, sure. 90% of Cocos are working when you when you get them. So There you go. So <laughs> here's the, here's right. the proof, right? Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, is that, the, is that book the follow-up to the broken, the broken one? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, another book here. I, I've been kind of on a book kick again. So uh, here's one. It's the TRS-80 Color Computer Graphics. Nice. Who's the author of that one? Oh, cool. This one here is a uh, Don Inman. Inman. And who is Dimax? Because the Don and Kurt Inman assembly book is also with Dimax. Is Dimax a person, place, or thing? What is? Uh, I, I was, it was a technical a... publishing company from what I remember. Oh, they did not just Coco stuff, but with Dimax. Okay. 
Yeah. So it's a weird way to say it, though. I wonder yeah. the same thing with, if yeah. it was like, with Dimex, like a what, DJ or is something. That, yeah, it's yeah. like uh, some celebrity that has one name, like Bono. Right. Prince. <laughs> Dimex. <laughs> We're doing a collab with Dimex. <laughs> and then uh, another book is the uh, Top Down Basic for the TRS-80 color computer. Hmm. I so usually do down basic. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I used to do all my programming from the bottom up. So this bottom is uh, reverse engineering basic code, apparently. So, uh, kind of what I picked up on it, they just kind of go through, you know, basic, you know, from top to bottom type of thing. That's I guess cool. is another way of saying it. So, yeah. and, and that's for the Cocoa. That's not a generic basic one. Nope. For the TRS eighty color computer. Yeah, it's and that's a third party book, right? Uh, yes. It's not a Tandy publication or anything. So. Looks like it's a pretty solid, a pretty uh, yeah. got a lot of content in it too. Yeah, Ken Ken Skyer. I've never heard of that. I one. mean, to me, these legitimize the platform when you have third-party publications that are that are not just fluff pieces. You know, they're kind of deep dives into stuff. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's very cool. Is. Yeah, I like the artwork. Nimble saying that that book cover reminds me of those covers that. You could shake the blue lines and would wobble with some kind of eye trick. That might actually be all the magic mushrooms from Color Beat. Yeah, I'm so, not sure. Um, <laughs> no, that is really neat. Those are. And neat. then one more, one more that I know is part of a Radio Shack series. I know I've seen this. There's, there's that wizard on the front of it. And I wanted to start. I think it was like three different ones, but this is the uh, uh, basic, basic, You're, faster and better with other mysteries. I think there's like three. Yeah, yeah, that whole other here. mysteries was a whole series. There's stuff from the model one and three going through the ROMs. Is that, that Coco? Because that looks more like a, a Z80 one to me. I, sure. I think it might be. Um, yeah, it, I think they're mostly for the model one, three, and four. But, yes. but I'm sure a lot of it would still be applicable because it's basic and, and was based on Microsoft. I'm, basic, I'm trying to remember, so. didn't Dennis Bathory Kits, didn't he do one of those yeah, in that series? It was mostly hardware mods and things. It's a, it's a classic for the model one. Okay. I, I copy of that. Um, I'm trying to remember the title, um, but it's it's a great book. Yeah. So I just kind of I know I've seen pictures yeah. before, and I kind of kind of yeah. passed them up a little bit, but uh, I thought, well, let's start adding them to the collection there. So that's yeah. cool. That's all I have, sir. Well, we're disappointed. Uh, we usually, I, usually bring us so <laughs> much well, more. I could show one more thing if you want me to. No, please do. Just, uh, just, just, just please do here. Um, I did. I did pick up. This game is part of a lot uh, that I got. Um, I haven't quite finished sorting through it all yet. Let me try to grab the pile here without throwing it. Um, from 1997, I think I got them almost all of them through 1982. It's the uh, the microcomputer newsletter. Oh wow! So they oh. started out as kind of a, a paper, and then they slowly transitioned into more of a in magazine, more, man. more of a more of a glossy magazine. Now, who is like the this? publisher of this? Radio Shack. Okay, Terrace yeah. City yep. Microcomputer News. Yep. So I got uh, almost the whole lot. Here's one. Well, here's uh, January of 1982, and there's two two children that seem to be having an awful lot of fun with their co. <laughs> so they're looking at each other. They're not even looking at the game. <laughs> number one. Um, <laughs> And look at the yeah. palette on the game. Yeah, look at the, I love the pink and, and sky blues that never existed on the cocoa in that picture there. So, yeah, yeah. that's beautiful. I have a, yeah. 
I have a copy of that here, a, 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 a different one of it. So what, what was what was the, the, the photographer saying? Okay, kids, if you could do me a favor and look really creepily at each other and skeeve us out, that's what we're going for here. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would just love to get that monitor. Yeah. Monitor. Oh, yeah, the, the silver the TV. TV yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Hold it up, hold it up a little higher. We want to focus on these creepy kids. These kids are creepy. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. they are scaring the f out of me right now. These, this is like this is a movie waiting to happen where they move into a house and people die. This is what I'm. Yeah, this expecting. is like Children of the Corn, I think, or something. That, uh... <laughs> oh wow! Seriously, uh, it's funny you should, it's funny you should say that. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the Children of the okay. Corn is actually filmed just about ten miles away from me here. Oh wow! In in cornfields, so but yeah, you still alive. Kids on yours, David. Oh, good. Yeah, mine's got the uh, the Model One Hundred on it. Oh okay. So, well, where are the creepy kids? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, there's no They're inside the Model One Hundred. Oh, well, oh look, Rick Eulen's got one of the Wizard I, books there. I found the Bathory Kids book. Oh, that's the best. That's the Dennis one. So is that for the Coco? <laughs> no, that was Model it One and Three. Is, yeah, I think. Model one, three. Same guy, different Model computer. One. Okay. Yeah. Oh. It's full of Model but it, One. But it must not have been a very long publication. Like I said, it went from 1997, and at least what I have goes up through 82, so I don't know how. It does go earlier than that. Uh, they did a, they published the, uh, two volumes of the originals, the very first ones from 77, 78, as little booklets you could buy, and I've actually got those. Maybe I'll try to dig them out here after we go onwards. Uh, but uh, they they published that, and basically, when you bought a new computer from Radio Shack, they actually had a little card there, and you could order it, and you can get it for free from Tandy for I think six months or a year or something like that. They give mm. you a free subscription, then after that, you had to pay for it. How many oh, how many uh, advertisements for third party products were we finding in this Tandy publication? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's not quite true. If you were buying like Model Two, you know, word processing or accounting software from. Ashton Tate or something like that, they'd advertise that because they actually carried that in the stores. But as far as Coco stuff, no. Okay. Is this what you're talking about, Curtis, here? Yep, that's exactly here. what I'm talking about. There's two of those. Yeah, the reprint. And this has like issues, uh, all issues, uh, 20 of them, all in, one, all in one book. It's kind of a, oh, neat. kind of yep. all bound together. There's, there's so. two volumes of that. So there's the very first run of 20, there's the next run of 20 as well. Very good. Okay. That's cool. This one here's got oh. a big long list of all the. Uh, all the model one, uh, model one hundred basic commands in it. Does anybody else have a uh, update or acquisition? Anyone, anyone? Paul yeah. Shoemaker, what you been up to, dude? We haven't heard from you in a while. I've been working uh, quite a bit on that uh, poker squares. Yeah, game yeah. That I've been developing, and um, yep. that's in the game on news stuff too. So if you want to do it okay. now, go ahead. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, uh, and uh, I can show a, a quick demo of it if um, sure. if that would be good. Take just a second. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'll shrink my news down by one. That'll help. <laughs> you guys, let me know when you can see what Where I'm sharing. See? I see you. Okay. Yep. So right now I've got it um, mostly working. So the first thing that I had to do was write. A, um, a separate program, and I haven't quite figured out how to put it together yet. A separate program, and it didn't look like it did anything, but what it actually did was it drew the, the play screen in the background. And then I, I'm going to, of course, merge those together at some point, but it's doing something weird right now, and I can't figure out why it's doing it. Well, board can call cards, right? You can chain them. Yeah, maybe I'll do something like that and then see you, if that works. Save on memory. Man, this looks really good. Uh, thank you. 
thank you. So, so now I've got an issue where it always starts with exactly the same deal every single time. So I, I, I need to seed the random, the random number generator, but I haven't mm-hmm. quite got that figured out yet. Minus time, minus timer. I tried that, and it, it, it's not working for me. So I have to noodle on it a little bit more. But so I've, I've got it mostly working. And if you guys have ever played poker squares bef- before, and and um, I was posting on Discord maybe a couple of months ago. There's a Coco 2 version that I, that I just started playing, one of the uh, handful of card games that the fellow did. And remember, Curtis, you and I were talking about whether or not the the sort of Marquise aspect of it was done in, in basic or if it was done in assembly. It mm-hmm. sort of has the different colored blocks going around the outside of it. Anyways, it was playing that That's game, cool. and I thought, oh, try see if I can upgrade it or update it to a Coco 3. So it's it's the game basically works where you just try to build um, poker hands both horizontally and vertically. Oh, that's on, neat! On all five of the on all five of them. So this you sort is of like five card stud or five card whatever on on many levels here. Yeah, or, yeah. or like and bingo mixed up mixed yeah, in together yeah, maybe or something yeah. like that. So you can you can you decide where you want to play the next card, and if you want to try to get a flush, or you want to try to get a straight, or you want to try to get two pair, or something like that. And then every once in a while, kind of surprised it hasn't done it yet. It will randomly allow you, right there, to pick flip. one of these five face cards to, to flip, flip over. Okay. And so now it it adds a little bit of of randomness as well as a little bit of you know. Poker plane. Hopefully that's not too loud. Um, and then I have it pretty much working. The cards look really, really good. Yeah, yeah I still want to yeah. get a copy of your cards because I'm actually going to build them as actual graphical images for Nitrous Don and include the entire deck as get put buffers. Sure. Rather than, like, I think you said you just have the face cards, the backs, and then you have everything else drawn manually. Right. I'm actually, just to make it easier for the program, I'm just going to make, here's 52 cards plus the back. And then you can just make whatever card game you want. Oh, that's cool. That's what I'm. I'd love to really make. Okay, when you're done, it it calculates. It calculates you. each hand. Okay. And we'll give you the score. And and this is the piece that I, I still need to work on a little bit. Is it doesn't it doesn't calculate all the hands exactly right yet? I haven't okay. quite got that logic all worked out. But it calculates all of the all of the each of the hands on each of the columns and rows, and then it, it'll it'll put up a little. I think I saw a version of this that does diagonals as well. But I guess the diagonals are randomly generated for you. So, well, one of them is, but the other one's not. The other one's not. That that's interesting. Dad, maybe a diagonal. I used to play a game. I used to play poker squares on a Coco back in the day. There's a Coco two version, and mm-hmm. it, and it generated the diag. It did the diagonals as well, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's um, it's it, it's coming along. It's coming along pretty well. Um, and the the looks awesome. Well, thank cards you. are oh. nice. Yeah, the, the, the cards are based off of an 8-bit deck that if you just Google cards 8-bit deck, and I've, the guy's name is Michael, and I can't remember his last name. So, um, Can you get permission this time? I, 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 I didn't. This one, I'm not selling it. I, I'm giving ah, it away. Okay. I'm giving it away. So it's a labor of love, and everybody cards can... Cards are cards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but I, I modified it a little bit because the size of his cards were too big for it to fit you know, basically five cards north to south on the screen. So I modified it a little bit. So they're a, a, a tiny bit different. But the rest of it is all um, something That's that great. I've designed. 
um, based and off. You're of using a that very uh, patch that game. Nick and, and Nick Morandi's did to do the by two twenty five graphics in Basic too, right? Yes. So I I got his patch, and that's how I'm I'm able to in Basic. So this is all in Basic with a couple of assembly language subroutines. One is that draws the card, and the second one that actually pops these little um, I don't know, score tiles up as well. Um, and uh, the rest of it's all in basic. And so I used his his patch, which allows it, which allows you to use all of the normal basic commands in the 225 um, row mode in uh, hmm. the H screen too, which is really really cool. And then I saw someplace else uh, a couple of pokes, one of the you know unraveled books or something that um, a couple of other pokes I added, which prevents H screen from erasing the screen when you go into it for the first yep. time. And that's how I'm able to draw the, the the background or the play screen first and then go ahead and execute the second Switch program. Yeah. 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 So that's uh, that's where I'm at right now. I'm getting pretty close to done, but I have um, a little bit of play testing to, to do and then quite a lot of code cleanup to do and fix the scoring a little bit. And then I'll be uploading it to the... Um, to the archive for anybody who wants to check it out. How are you writing Sweet. your code? Are you writing this in the emulator or are you using a, uh, an editor outside of an emulator? The, I, I use Notepad++ and what LW tools to write the assembly language on my PC. And then all of the basic and everything I'm writing on the Coco 3 behind me. Oh, but God, the, help you. The assembly, uh. <laughs> is, is, the assembly you got to do, well, for me, I have yeah. to do it. Um, using those third-party sort of tools, but um, writing in basic on the Cocoa is the way to do it, is the way I'm doing it right now. Okay. Yep. That looks really good. Thank yeah, you. And, and, I, I do want to steal your card set and put it in Nitrous 9, too. Of course. That's of awesome. Course. Yeah, so when, I, you're, when, you're pro, when you're programming basic on the Cocoa 3, you use the width 80 mode to, to do all your typing, I guess? Most of the time. Most of the time. Most And, and I do that just so I can see more of the listing at any given point in time and um, because yeah. especially when you start to go clean up the code and figure out you know am i duplicating something do i is there a simpler way to do it it's much nicer to see 80 columns worth all right do you Absolutely. also have the 28 yeah. line text mode enabled too so you get the full vertical no i don't think so i think yeah, uh, there's I folks get the, to do that as well kind of like the graphics screen where you're doing 225 it does the same thing with the text you get three extra lines oh is that is that part of nick's patch or is that a separate thing um I know Sockmaster had a patch for it. I'm trying to remember if Nick incorporated it. Too bad mm. Nick wasn't here to ask. I can't remember if he incorporated that or not, but is it definitely available? There's a couple of pokes you can do to enable that as well. Neat. No, I'm not doing that right now because I notice it does like sh- shrink up when I'm, you know, go back into the text mode. So, but that's that's where I that's where I'm at right now. Probably, um, hopefully, no more than a couple of weeks away from sending out, letting folks noodle around with it and give it a try. That's very Neat. cool, Paul. That's very very yeah, cool. Excellent. That's excellent. Um, does anybody else have an update or acquisition they want to share? Brian Schubring, are you raising your hand? Just got to say, I got to get uh, going here. Got to go to dinner. All right. Well, thanks for being right. here. Thank no, you. It was a great show. Good good job, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Curtis, for, for getting thanks, that man. lined up for us. Um, I do have one thing to show, but I don't want to be greedy. I, I want everybody. Oh, Mikey. Just just a mini update. I'm I'm planning to... Um, resume working on PyDrive Wire this coming week, the uh, next two weeks, so I can meet my previously published schedule. <laughs> Very cool. And that I've learned will, never that, to make those again. That will include. Yeah, I know. Will that include the deload <laughs> server? Uh, yeah, that the deload will be in there. I haven't heard of anybody having any real problems with it, so it's gonna go okay. in. Very very cool. 
Did you get your cables sorted out there, Mikey? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much for the most part. Okay, we gave you plenty of time yet, to do but... it, I have to say. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have a quick show and tell. This is a courtesy of Jason the Cocoa Man Reichard, and I'll be doing an unwrapping here live on the air. But last week I showed off my uh, Commodore Hall, including my uh, Commodore 10... 84S monitor that happens to have an RGB input. So Jason the Cocoa Man Rikerd came up with the cable, produced the cable, and got me the cable, and, and it literally came in today. So within a week's time, he designed it and produced it and shipped it to me. And it's got two different ends, right? Ooh. So one end is the uh, is the RGB for the yep. Cocoa. Right? So that's the Cocoa RGB, nine out of 10 pins. And then this yep. end here is the, what is that, five or six DIN pins? Six. DIN six. six. Pins. Right. The RGB yeah. analog DIN on the Magnavox. Right. So this should go into my Commodore monitor. And then I should be able to look at native RGB and get some decent audio out. So I'll be trying that after the show. And I'll be trying that tonight when I play um, the bomb threat for our game on. The, the real joy of the Magnavox is you can also hook up the composite cables because there's composite. Well, there's just one switch in the front. You can instantly switch between the two. Right, right. Thank, uh, yep. Sweet. So, so yeah, thank cool, you, then. thank you, Jason. I was not expecting that. I know he was going to work on it, but I wasn't sure what the research and development time was, or anything else. But he got it done, got it made, and got it shipped in a week's what time. A guy, yeah. What a guy. Uh, Stevie, did he give it a clever name? Uh, there is for I asked for that. There's no clever name. There's no uh, sticker on here, and it, <laughs> there is there's absolutely zero toggle switches on here too, which is a little bit disappointing. So. <laughs> now it sounds like you're bitching. Yeah, I'm bitching. You went, you, went, you went from like thank you, Jason, but I've got some suggestions for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> no. no. I have to say good, I, I need to order one of those myself because mine, which I made back in the '80s, here the the ribbon cable's gotten pinched a few spots, and sometimes mm. I have to jiggle it or it loses one of the color guns. So I have to get a new one, and I think if Jason's ready making it for you, and if it looks okay when you try it tonight, I'll, yeah. I'll probably order one from him. How too. about the Commodore I've Roo? <laughs> I've got all the bits here for my uh, RGB mod. I'm going to try RGB to VGA and see if I can get that to go into my uh, into my Model Four Coco Three. So that's that's in that bag. So okay, doing a similar thing here. Uh, Grant Leedy's asking if I'm hungry. I'm actually thank, thank you for your concern for my personal well-being, Grant. Uh, but no, I'm not hungry. <laughs> Um, I'm just trying to be conscientious. So this is a democracy, though. So we're going to let the panel decide, and we're going to let the audience decide. We're we're at four hours. We actually have a lot more to cover with news and game on news, and it's really up to the audience. Would the audience like more Coco Talk? Do you need the snoozy newsy, as Mikey likes to call it? Are you guys ready? Because we could probably get we probably have another hour left in this show for those who uh, want to do it and those who want to watch it. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I'm probably going to walk away <laughs> and let you guys <laughs> handle the news so I can go Thanks take, a, support. take, take um, a break and do <laughs> things, but I'll let the stream keep running. I, I um, actually had a thought. You guys can bounce. I'll bounce this off to you guys if you think it's ridiculous. We were talking about possibly doing an after dark to do bomb threat today. Now, some people like games. Some people, maybe just me, like news. Um, we could actually combine the two. We could actually have somebody playing on, like, on the right side of the screen and watch you know, some people playing it, and I can just rifle through the news tonight at an after dark just to get it caught up. Because if I wait till next week, we're going to have like 50 stories, and that will be the entire damn show. <laughs> what do you guys think of that uh, wacky idea? I like that idea. 
You're talking about doing an, an, a news after dark? Well, we have two votes from the live viewers. Uh, David Lord says press on. Frodo says press on. So it's really up, uh, partially up to the people who are here. Do you guys want to still be here? Or are, are you done? Do you, would you rather take a break? Because, Curtis, you've got to anchor this news. Are you good to do it? I could. If, if everybody wants it, I mean, that's up to them. Okay. Yep. I'm going to have to duck out at some point, but I'll come back. I'm, I'm, you know, if everyone decides they're going to do it, I'll, I'm happy either way. But mm-hmm. I, like I said earlier on, I do have something I've got to do for probably 10 minutes in the middle sometime, some unspecified time, but I'm happy either way. David Ladd and Grant Levy both like my idea of just having a split screen so you can still have some live gameplay and then I can just, you know. So we have some news and whoever's have, playing the game can interject once in a while. We have two votes for keep the show going. We've got two votes for doing it on a second show later on. What? Who else on the panel? Second show. I'm getting hungry. Okay, Mark, yeah, Mark B is getting hungry. Okay, we got another vote for, for a split screen. So it's looking like the votes to, to do the Yeah, but we need to get it done tonight or this weekend. So it's the, the news is still news and it's not history. Um, and then next <laughs> week we have a special guest host and a guest streamer, Robbie Inman, will be uh, broadcasting a program for us live from Arizona, home of Ron Delvo next week. Um, so, all right. So we're going to go ahead and then start to wrap things up. So I'm going to go ahead and play the outro and then we'll come back for parting thoughts. But I really enjoyed today's show. And I'm going to be honest too. Last week, floppy talk you would think the one person who would have been bored to tears or would have rage quit would have been me i really enjoyed the floppy talk and the storage talk um i i thought that was just good mm-hmm. conversations and uh, and I, yes, that was yeah. good stuff um and this week to talk to glenn was a treat and it's this show is definitely like a box of chocolates from one week to the next we don't know what we're going to get you know we 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 pop open that lid and and sometimes it's uh you know <laughs> sometimes it's sweet sometimes it's not right so um, but that's the kind of the great thing about this program is that even us who are on it don't sometimes know what. Sometimes it's nuts. Yeah, sometimes it's nuts, like almond joy, oh, right? So I got a really quick thirty. Oh no, I'll save it for the parting thoughts. It's all right. All right, so we're gonna Sorry. run the outro, and we do we do have a, we have a new a new patron this week too. So Graham Webkey became a new patron. I mentioned him at the beginning of the show, so we definitely want to thank. The patrons, um, and so for you know the money that that we get from our patrons, it covers all of our costs, and we have we have created expenses that we didn't need to just because we're trying to saturate this show in as many places as possible. So we have audio and video podcast hostings. We live stream to multiple sources, which costs money to do. We are boosting the Discord server. So all the money that we get, it goes back into the show. Nobody's padding their their wallet here. But we appreciate um, the fact that people are, and and honestly, like 80 to 90% of the people who are paying to be on the show are already on the show or volunteering their time on top of that. So it's very uh, it's very much appreciated and it's very humbling and very flattering that you guys do that. And I just want to say a special thanks to Grant's all And suggesting that. maybe some of that money can go towards buying you a razor. Uh, maybe. maybe. <laughs> or actually, what I just got a new contraption here. Let me wind it up for you, Curtis. There you go. That's where all the Patreon money went right there, Curtis. Special gift just for you. You paid for that fancy ring, did we? That's right. That's how much he appreciates us. You see that? That's right. So I'm going to, real quick, I'm going to play the first part of our intro, which thanks our patrons. No, because then we got the train wreck that starts on that. Never mind. All right, you guys, your patrons, you know who you are. We love you. We appreciate you. We're going to hit the outro, and then we'll be back for parting thoughts. Thanks, everybody. This concludes another episode of Coco Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things Coco Talk, visit us on the web at cocotalk.live. We'd love to hear from you. 
Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to CocoTalk at CocoTalk.live. CocoTalk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because CocoTalk is rocking the 8-bit world. Consider supporting the show with a purchase of merchandise from our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, click the Patreon link at our website at cocotalk.live. Cocotalk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Cocotalk is rocking the 8-bit world. Coco Talk would not exist without the community, its cast, crew, and contributors. Thanks go to Curtis Boyle, David Ladd, Mark Overholzer, Grant Leedy, Bruce Moore, Nick Marenkis, Rondell Vaux, Rick Adams, Jason Riker, Richard Lorbieski, Jim Brain, Tom C., Rob Inman, Mark Bosley, Brian Joyce, Ken Riker, David O'Connor, Brian Weasler, Terry Stegney, Nick Morota, John Strong, and many more, especially to Steve Bjork for production suggestions and James Different Daffer for making my head explode. help support the Cocoa community by visiting some of its various contributors. A list of resources is available at imacoconut.com. That's I-M-A-C-O-C-O-N-U-T dot com. The Cocoa Talk theme song is copyright 2008 by D. Bruce Moore and Greg Sheeler. Mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually half German, back. but I'm half German by blood. So. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I know. The oh. first time I heard German heavy metal was like scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the outro is over. It is now time for parting thoughts. Not deep thoughts, but parting thoughts. So I want to thank, number one, I want to thank the people who come together every week to help this show. So Mark Overholzer, who has always been here for us from episode one, who is our chat moderator, and he gets all the links out in the live feed. So when we're talking about something, he's right on the spot with doing that. And he makes sure that we make sure that we know when people are chatting, we try not to forget people in the live chat, but sometimes it gets hard to manage the people talking and the people listening and the people chatting. So we try to do the best we can. And thank you, Mark, for what you do there. Curtis Boyle for, for bringing in great guests and for doing the news for us, Curtis, and and God forbid for that. On rare occasions, uh, I actually get to do it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, God forbid <laughs> that Nitrous 9 shite that you've been working on. Thanks for that. Uh, David O'Connor, thank you for bringing Neo to the program, one of the best members of the panel we've had in the past 20 Obviously years. Obviously the most intelligent, too. Yes, yes. yes uh, <laughs> He's a faithful me, Ella. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Everybody who's here. Mark Bosley, our backup streamer and engineer, who's always here. Brian Weasler, who's always buying all the good shit off of eBay. 
Uh, Nick Morota, who's just here to make us all jealous of his looks, so we appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, Michael Furman, who likes to we we had a, we had m- multiple discussions about being muted and not stepping on our special guest today. What does he do? Right out of the oh, freaking box. Yes, Mikey's Mikey's got cables. Cables and cables and cables and cables. Yes, uh, but Mikey, you do a great job with the. And I've said this for. <laughs> years that drive wire is a fantastic amazing protocol incredible product Pied, see Thank there you. see there's neo neo pie drive wire is the best mc10 incredible right and i got you i got your message about pie drive wire mikey i gotta yeah, yeah i just send been, you some stuff it's nah. been slammed the last couple of weeks but you can just send me a screenshot, screenshot. or whatever and i'll help you We'll start plugging away at it. All right. And so uh, f- so, so, final thoughts. And so, uh, Timothy Holleran, thanks for being here for your first time. And please come back. And thanks for what you're doing. And we look forward to – we will follow your career with great interest, sir. Um, any, so we didn't scare him too Any much. parting thoughts for the folks at home? No, it's a great show. Um, thank you for doing this for the community. And thanks for welcoming a Z80 all right. That's right. Well, well be, being the cultured person as, that I am, I refer to it as the Z80. But you're you're welcome to to that. <laughs> well, we let other people on here. So. Well, well, actually, well, actually, well, actually uh, it's a Z80. Yeah. <laughs> the earlier I was trying to explain, it. I have some Z80 for you. Yes, yeah, so. the Z. The Z. Zed. Zed. Is Zed here? Zed's not here, man. Zed's not here, man. Paul Shoemaker. Any parting thoughts, Paul? No, just uh, good to be back on the show after taking a, a, a bit of time away, but uh, nice to be back. Thanks, yeah, guys. thank good for having yep. you, and um, thanks for uh, all the stuff you're working on. It's really cool to see. Rick Eulen, any parting thoughts? Good, good. All right, Michael, like the show. Michael Furman, parting thoughts? Go play some uh, bump that. There you go. Mark Bosley, parting yeah. thoughts? Nah, I'm done. All right, Brian Weasler, parting thoughts? Uh, Coco forever. Coco forever. Nick Morota, parting thoughts? <laughs> I just love this show. Thank you so much for doing it. Oh, well, thank you for Game On, the greatest segment, everyone's favorite segment, everyone's favorite part of the show. I incredible. believe you. It's incredible. It's an incredible segment, fantastic <laughs> segment. David O'Connor, parting thoughts? Uh, we have a very special guest that's in the pipe works. I won't say anymore. I uh, won't say anymore. No. L. Curtis Boyle, nobody cares next. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Lancer, Lancer, Lancer. Um, yes. My party thought is, uh, what, what time do you want to try to do this dual screen experiment? Probably and, uh, try to get the 9 o'clock, so three hours from now. So 9 Eastern, so it'll be yeah. 7 my time. Yeah, okay. yeah. And in the live chat, we've had Frodo and David Ladd and James Jones and Ben Drakes, Mark Overholzer, Nimble, Grant Leedy, David Lord... Erico, James Jones, Frodo, Chris West, Grant Leedy, Nimble, Erico, Mark Overholzer, A Meditation, uh, Grant Leedy, Nimble, Robbie Inman, David Ladd, Robert Sieg, Kevin Holloway, Frodo, Steve Rasmussen, a.k.a. Buck Owens, David Ladd, Retro Innovations, uh, Robbie Inman, uh, all kinds of people in the live chat today. Drencore, obviously thanks to our Doug Mastin, the creator, the original creator of the Contras. Doug Mastin was out there. Thanks, Doug, for stopping by. I don't know if you guys caught that, but when he was talking about when Doug showed up in the chat there, he mentioned that Contras was the very first Coco game he ever tried to do. That is a hell of a thing to try to bite off as your first project. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, really. Honestly. And it's probably one of the most, like you said, Curtis, it's probably one of the top five 
games that that pulls you know doesn't pull any every trick out of the hat every trick out of the hat absolutely ben drakes our vr guy david lord has been out there frodo ben drakes uh frodo with great richard lorbieski and his people skills and erico and fedor was out there fedor stamen and dave and sharon that's mr dave 6309 now he's upgraded his handle to the winning processor Richard Lorbieski, Jim Gary was out there. Hey, Jim and Fedor and Nick Morota. So, yeah, we've had a jam-packed audience. Thanks for being here, jam-packed show. Thanks, Glenn Dahlgren, for being here. And we're going to press the button. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, See you in a few hours. Bye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.